You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. From Steven Spielberg, director of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Poltergeist. Contrary to popular superstition, hauntings and poltergeist incidents do not necessarily occur in old, dark, abandoned mansions. They can occur anytime, any place. The house looks just like the one next to it, and the one next to that, and the one next to that. And yet, it's special. It is inhabited by a young couple. Their three children. And something more. Poltergeist is a German word. Geist meaning ghost, polter meaning... So a poltergeist is a noisy ghost or noisy spirit. There's no simple answer as to why these phenomena occur. At first, like a child, it simply wanted attention. At first, people are just puzzled by the phenomena. Soon, it became inquisitive, experimental, mischievous. Furniture topples over. Objects fly around by themselves. Vases may be shattered. Fires may spontaneously break out. Most of the time, there's a particular person that the events seem to focus around. It grew restless. The initial outbreak will terrify the family. Then it became frustrated. They are typically violent. Hostile. Apparitions have been reported. Angry. It can be violent, vicious, and destructive. And now, its focus is clear. As of yet, we don't know how to control them. Its form is revealed, and the games are over. Next summer, the unknown will be revealed. Visible will be seen. Poltergeist. The first real ghost story. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Christine Makepeace. Hello, good to be back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Vincenzo Natale. Hello, Mike. We kick off October 2020 with a look at Toby Hooper's 1982 film Poltergeist. It's the story of a suburban family beset by supernatural forces. If you've not seen Poltergeist, its remake, or its sequels, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We plan on spoiling everything. 
So, Christine, when was the first time you saw Poltergeist, and what did you think? I was much too young. Uh, I, not to give away too much, but I am the same age as Poltergeist, so it was kind of always on when I was young, and it terrified me. I know, you. good thing you just said we're spoiling, but the, there's a specific uh, face-ripping scene that haunted me for a very long time. I will tell you, I've never actually seen the face-ripping scene because I turn away every single time. <laughs> it starts off goofy, but it gets real, and it's it's hard to watch, so I respect that decision. Yeah, I, the probably the only time I saw it was in 1982 when the film first came out, and like you, I was way too young. I was 10 years old when I saw it. Vincenzo, how about you? When did you first see it, and what did you think? Well, I'm the old man in the room. So I was 13. Oh, God, you're ancient. Yeah. And I saw it opening day at the Eglinton Theater, I remember well, which is was a beautiful theater here in Toronto. It no longer exists. It was uh, a wonderful moment. That was a, People have spoken endlessly about it. It was an amazing summer for movies. It kind of hit me at the moment when I was truly in love with film. And it was sort of a magical time to be 13 years old. It was just one extraordinary experience after another. And I guess maybe Poltergeist was the first film that I saw that summer. I think it preceded E.T.'s opening. And I probably saw it before Wrath of Khan. Probably kicked off the summer of 82 for me. So a, a very significant experience. This opened June 4th. So it would have been right around the time school was letting out, I think. This and E.T. were coming out, I think, what, two weeks apart from each other? And me being 10 years old, I felt like I was a little too old for E.T., but a little too young for Poltergeist. But I still went and saw them probably multiple times. But Poltergeist, oh my god. Yeah, I think 10 years old is is too young for this movie, or at least for my fragile little self. I was really scared out of my wits with a lot of it. It's still packs a punch even all these years later this pg back when pg was a lot easier to get (laughs) there was no pg-13 yet we were going to have to wait a couple more summers and a couple other either steven spielberg directed or produced films between gremlins and temple of doom so that we would get the pg-13 after all the, the upcry about that but here in 1982 we were safely ensconced and poltergeist manages to get a pg rating surprise surprise well they put little robbie in a taxi cab and sent him off without any kind of supervision that's just how things worked in those days well he did have e-buzz with him <laughs> true enough i wanted to talk a little bit about haunted house narratives and just how prevalent they were and still are it just feels like right now hauntings like looking at things like the annabelle and the oh, what is the it's all part of what the conjuring is that the universe that these are all part of i mean all of this stuff going to see these movies now it's like okay i feel like i've already seen this stuff you know when i was 10 years old nothing is really impressing me too much but i could just be you know super jaded no, I, I don't think that's it at all, because you're right, this still feels fresh. It it manages to. I don't know how every haunting movie doesn't try to steal this narrative, but it's still, every time you watch it, the beats feel fresh, at least to me. And I, there are still parts where I go like, oh yeah, this is how it escalates. That's cool, because I don't feel like everything approaches hauntings in that interesting of a way. It's an interesting moment. I feel like... 1982 being sort of the early Reagan years, and now we're in this sort of 
Trump nightmare. There's a weird mirroring going on culturally. And so that Stephen King, who was kind of dormant for many years, surged back. And I'm, I'm convinced that that is directly related to Trump. And in a similar way, I feel like, although not nearly as an extreme example, the early Reagan years also inspired a certain flavor of American horror. And so perhaps that's why when you watch Poltergeist now, it really strikes a chord. I'm sure we'll end up talking about the remake, but it was interesting watching it because it really feels like all of the Poltergeist films kind of track the American psyche <laughs> as it's evolved or devolved over the years. When a movie starts off with the Star Spangled Banner, nothing on screen and just the Star Spangled Banner on the soundtrack, it's like, I don't think I'm reading too much into it to try to look at this film as a picture of what the American dream was in 1982. It just feels like it's calling out to me like, hey, look at me in socio-political terms. <laughs> and then when you have Stephen, the Craig T. Nelson character, reading a book about Reagan while his wife is smoking dope over on the on the bed and i'm just like okay was this before just say no or after just say no i know that for sure the drug war was going on at this point this just really seems to be speaking to me about capitalism and the way that you know steven is this kind of a big shot in his company that he has sold 42 percent of the homes that are in this cuesta verde place but maybe things aren't as pleasant as they appear on the surface especially when you're there knowing of all the things that are under the ground that are going to start popping up and it just feels like okay this is such a, a, a an early reaganism type of, of picture i completely agree with you yeah and you get the impression that they were hippies to some degree and now they've sold out and here they are in their fabulous suburban home and everything's great but of course it's not. I don't know if this that's the case or not, but I feel like that's the first time I ever saw that spoken of in a movie. Afterwards, there was the big chill. Like, it's a caucus seven. Afterwards, there were these movies about radical leftist hippies who sold out uh, in the 80s. But I don't think there was anything like that before Poltergeist. I never picked up on this before, but watching it the, the last time, I didn't put two and two together or 16 and 16 when... Steven is telling the Ghostbusters, he's just like, oh yeah, my wife is 31, no wait, 32, and my oldest daughter is 16. I'm like, oh, okay, so you guys got together when you were pretty young. It seems like there's a lot of history going on with this couple, but they seem to be okay about it, Like as opposed to other couples who had to get married because of teenage pregnancy, and then there's a lot of resentment that goes on throughout the years. So I'm glad they actually seem fairly well-adjusted, at least in this movie. Uh, we'll get to Steven's uh, drinking problem in the second movie as we talk about it. That's probably one of the things that I've always enjoyed so much about this, is, is that like relationship that Steven and Diane have. Because, a lot, I mean, in real life and in, in media at the time, and now, I mean, that's not always a thing you see. You see a lot of infighting and broken families, and it's it's nice that they kind of act as a unit. And Diane even has that line when they're in the bedroom, like, you remember when you used to be fun? And it's it's teasing, and it, in, it indicates a, a weird character trajectory that maybe we're not in on. But, like, she's not, she's not resentful. She doesn't, like, hate what he's become. And I thought that it's a refreshing way to look at this couple. Like, yeah, people change, but, like, they're still on each other's side. And I, I respond to that. 
it doesn't feel like it's criticizing them. It doesn't feel like a critique. It just feels like a, an observation. The family is whole at the beginning of this, and eventually they become whole again at the end. We do lose Carol Ann. Dana just kind of goes off, does her thing. You already talked about how Robbie gets in a cab and he and E-Buzz are out of here. So many of Spielberg's films, uh, you have a missing parent. You know, even that same summer with E.T., it's like, I think maybe they mentioned that the dad is off somewhere with like a new girlfriend or something. But so often in haunting films and other horror films, there's a, a fracture in the family. And I'm thinking of things like The Entity, and I'll bring up The Entity a few more times as we talk. The Entity with the missing father and the kind of weird relationship that the Barbara Hershey character had with the son character. It, it just always felt like you know that was the real problem that needed to be solved, and that was kind of what let the, the horror into their life. I know that you guys had a very frightening, in a great way, experience watching the movie. Maybe because I was older, it didn't scare me as much when I saw it. But regardless, I think people, part of the reason people love Poltergeist is because it is like a warm bath. It's a very inviting horror, as horror films go, it's a very inviting horror film. And it doesn't do what many horror films do, and that's part of why I love horror films, is it doesn't try to attack the basic tenets of family and of conventional morality, it, it, it actually affirms them. But somehow it still ends up being like a wonderful funhouse ride. Like when you watch the other movies, they don't have that. But even the second film, which has the same cast, you're right that Steve has a, a moment where he has a, you know, he's drinking and he has a, a you see his dark side. The third film, the family isn't even really there. And then the remake, the family is in an economic vice, like they're in, in tremendous economic trouble, and it's causing fractures within the family. So it's the only one. On this episode, we're doing something a little different. I'm sprinkling in the interviews that were done about the various aspects of this film. That said, we're going to break now for an interview with Dahlia Schweitzer, who has written a book about haunted homes that should be available by summer 2021. So, Dahlia Schweitzer, how did you come to the idea of writing a book about haunted homes? I always feel a little bit self-conscious when people ask me stuff like that or, you know, ask me about my upcoming project because I feel like my books always start with these sort of like really naive observations where I'm just like, huh, that's interesting. After the 2016 election, I needed to just, I needed like escapism and I was all tapped out on zombies. So that was out. So I just started watching a bunch of horror movies and I'd always been afraid of horror movies when I was a kid. I think I just, you know, I thought they would give me nightmares or whatever. So I'd never seen the nightmare on Elm street movies or Halloween or any of those movies. So I just started kind of organizing film festivals for myself and I was going through and watching all these kind of horror classics. And I watched the Amityville movies. I think it was just sort of like all these movies that are set in suburbia, which you always think of as being really safe. But yet in all these movies, suburbia is, of course, terrifying. And then also just the idea of the how easily the danger comes inside the home. You know, so even if in like Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, you don't have like a haunted house. You still have this idea where like the house can't 
protect you. Like it's not a suitable defense. And in Amityville, of course, like, you know, you don't breathe a sigh of relief until the characters are driving away with the, you know, uh, escaping the home. And so that's kind of where the original query started, where I was like, oh, there's something interesting here, because we always think of home as being a place of safety and sanctuary. And yet in horror movie after horror movie, home is frequently where the horror happens. You mentioned the Amityville horror, and I'm curious what other major films kind of made an impact on you the most as you were researching this. One that deeply disturbed me was The Entity. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in in, in my book is how, you know, even though we have this preconceived notion of the home as being this place of safety and sanctuary, quite often for women and children, the home is the most dangerous place. And I thought that that kind of pops up in interesting ways uh, when you have, I think it's the the Conjuring sequel where Lily Taylor gets the bruises on her arms and like every morning she wakes up and there are more bruises on her arms. And in The Entity, this woman who lives alone or a single mother keeps getting raped by a ghost and no one believes her. And I always think back on what Rod Serling said about how, you know, you can, you can sort of say things with the Martian that you could never say if it was a Democrat or Republican or something like that. And I always think of horror movies and how like you can say things in horror movies that you'd never get away with normally. And so that's what enables horror movies to kind of get under your skin and really get to the heart of the matter in a way that a lot of movies don't. This woman insisting that she's being raped and just being disbelieved by, you know, her therapist and police and just like every sort of authority figure will probably hit home to a lot of women because that's the reality of many women who are actually raped and, you know, nobody wants to believe them. Hereditary definitely wins the the award for the movie I most underestimated. Um, I thought it was going to be, you know, just just another one. And then, and it starts off and it's kind of a slow burn and I'm just like, okay. And then I slept with the lights on that night. I think that was the most terrifying movie I've seen in a long time. You have a statistic in the book about domestic violence and just how many incidents there are of domestic violence over a period of time. And the numbers are just staggering. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's interesting because Quite often in these haunted house narratives, the woman is, you know, either it's like in the Amityville movie, you know, where you literally have an abusive husband or you have the abusive ghost, satanic, supernatural figure or whatever. But the haunted house movies really play on this idea of how vulnerable the woman is in the home. And I do like that you make this real distinction in the book to say, you know, there are the the gothic houses out on the edge of town where, you know, the Bateses live or these, right. you know, we'll pay you a million dollars if you can spend the night type of houses versus these are the cookie cutter homes. These are where you're supposed to feel safe. And I also really appreciated how you track the growth of the suburbs and where we actually came from in order to have this suburban world. People normally think of the suburbs as sort of developing organically, you know, because I think at least in America, we we maybe underutilize city planning, you know, and so we 
we just kind of figure like, oh, well, you had the city and then, you know, there's just the, the layers of suburbs that sort of um, are, you know, like the rings outside the city. And what's so crazy about the suburbs is that's not at all what happened. And it, as I say in the book, it really is a sort of carefully constructed house of cards that's so like artificially manipulated by the government and the banks and sort of like to further these specific agendas and just the way that, you know, certain people were allowed to buy homes and other people weren't allowed to buy homes. And there was just so much more kind of strategic planning and ulterior motives than people realize. What's crazy, I mean, I talk about this when I teach my um, History of American Television class, because one of the things that I really emphasize is I think, you know, kids today or whatever tend to think like, oh, well, this is ancient history, you know, or like, you know, civil rights. That's like, that's for the history books. And it's like, no, like this stuff was not that long ago, you know, and banks could legally tell a black family like, Nope, that neighborhood's not for you. That house isn't for you until not that long ago. And what's crazy is it's still happening now. And this is one of the reasons why I I went to my publisher and I was like, can we expedite this? Because Trump is playing into this right now, you know, with all his talk about how Biden's going to destroy the suburbs by, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, opening it up to, um, you know, African-American families. And it's like, we haven't changed, you know, we're still redlining, you know, maybe it's a little bit less explicit in the paperwork, but it's still happening. Oh, God, yes, it sure is. And then looking at all the gerrymandering and just how that affects uh, the political districts as well is crazy. Yes, exactly. And so it was, it, it's like, we now no longer have that, that naivete about like, oh, we're in post-racial America. Like, I think, You'd be hard pressed to find someone who would deny that racism is an issue in America. But I think the just the nuts and bolts and also just, you know, how black families are economically disadvantaged today because, you know, their grandparents weren't allowed to buy a home. I mean, it's just like there's there's like decades of this maneuvering that's gone into play. I was very surprised to read about with the Amityville horror the the way that rage is kind of an infection that gets in there and especially we'll get to the men in the family and again going back to the domestic violence just how the men uh, James Brolin uh, Craig T Nelson and Poltergeist 2 it's like they get infected with a, almost like a rage virus um, but instead it's a more of a spiritual one I thought it was just testosterone that too it's like the boys will be boys, you know, and the, the Amityville, I'm terrible with remembering actors' names, but like the, when he, uh, James Brolin um, is using the axe and he's like chopping wood and that moment is terrifying. And, you know, he's not, you know, he's chopping wood. It's superficially benign and it's just so scary, the frenzy with which he's doing it. And you're just, you're reminded of you know, how much stronger the man is than the woman. And I mean, it's just, but yeah, I feel like so much of it plays into stereotype. As we were talking about Poltergeist on this episode, we were just amazed at how things changed between 1982 and 2015 when the remake comes out, especially the way that the family, I mean, you see that the, the 
they even make a joke in the second one about the downward mobility of the family going mm-hmm. from Stephen, who makes a really good amount of money. I think he counts for 42% of sales of homes in the suburb to then uh, the, the new family in the 2015 version where the dad's out of work, the mom's the breadwinner. There's a lot of tension about that going on. And this whole thing of once we get into a house, we are stuck and we are, are sunk here. We have to stay in this house, no matter how haunted it might be. In the remake, I love that awkward moment when the real estate agent is talking to them and her shock and embarrassment when she finds out that the dad is unemployed. And it just really kind of hits home because obviously like, you know, if, if it was the, if the roles, the gender roles had been reversed, you know, and it was the mom who was unemployed, it would sort of like nobody would bat an eye. But just the the level of discomfort in that scene. And then I think like the wife calls over to him and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm having an awkward moment with the real estate agent. Like they really sort of play up just how awkward that moment is when he's like, you know, I was laid off. It does speak not only to the fact that the the downward mobility, but also just like the the way that it's like his whole social standing with the real estate agent has plummeted because he doesn't have a job. So it's like we're still holding people to the same standards, right? We're still expecting him to be the man of the household and the breadwinner and all that, um, even though the world around us has changed. This whole thing that you've picked up on, too, with the, isn't this house a bargain? Can't we, isn't this perfect? <laughs> it's such a steal and, and like over and over again. And the emphasis on the fact that, you know, oh, that little murder that took place, that just allows us to kind of access, to get like a, you know, a foot in the door for this suburban fantasy, this sort of rite of passage. And, oh, it's, you know, it's such a bargain. And then, um, yeah, it's just the, the fact that it's like, yeah, who cares like what happened and houses don't have memories. And it's sort of, I think I'm always very drawn to when certain things just happen over and over again, you know, these sort of patterns, um, because I find them fascinating, but yes, over and over again, like, Oh, this is a bargain. This is a steal. And then, um, even in, in like there's certain movies, there's that the Netflix one that takes place in the former like butcher shop, he actually gets when so the wife is sort of is upset because oh charnel house the charnel house his wife is like how could you not tell me that these murders took place here and then his reaction rather than apologizing is to kind of lash out at her and be like well you had to have known because we never would have been able to afford it otherwise so it's like the onus is on her for not being like this is weird how are we affording this building did something terrible happen here which I think is just like such like just masterful manipulation. Like it's her fault because she didn't ask. So like over and over again, it's like, of course, something terrible happened here. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to be in this lovely house. When did haunted house movies become haunted home movies? When did they make the move from that gothic mansion I was talking about to the suburban gothic? The genre or the template or whatever really kind really like grabbed hold after the economic collapse in 2008. And I think because that was when I think it, it was, I mean, again, you know, the Amityville movies were going on in the 1970s. Like, I think a lot of this stuff had been trickling in 
with the rise of suburbia, but they definitely latched hold when we had the the housing collapse. And I think people realized that this this was not going to be just like a ticket to some kind of American dream. Did you notice any other out of the norm uh, gender roles as you were exploring these films? Well, so there's there's something interesting that happens in terms of gender with these films, where on one hand you do have the very cliche gender dynamic, where as as you said, you know, the man has the the rage virus, um, and the woman is the one who's being you know abused or dominated or whatever. Um, but that has sort of like a a more nuanced effect on these movies because it is precisely because the the woman is sort of more sensitive or delicate or attuned to the supernatural or whatever, that the woman realizes what's happening long before the man does, right? And that's another pattern that just gets played out over and over and over again, where she's like, I think the house is haunted. And he says, you're being ridiculous, right? And, or variations of that. Um, and then because she's the first one to realize she's often the one who's more proactive in defending the family. So the haunted house movies, like the haunted home movies, like they, they start off really playing on conventional gender stereotypes, but then there's sort of this unexpected twist where, you know, inevitably the woman is proven right, you know, because the house is haunted or the child is possessed or whatever. But in a lot of these movies, it is the woman who plays more of an active role in protecting the family until, Often like the, you know, the, the very, very end and then maybe the, you know, the dad kind of pulls it together. Uh, but usually, you know, I mean, and I think Hereditary is a good example of that where, you know, on the surface you're like, oh, look how cute. It's a suburban family. But Tony Collette is, is just, uh, I think, a more, a stronger, a more memorable, a more pivotal um, character in the film than her husband. And even in movies um, like uh, There's Something About Kevin, which I talk about, even though it's not a traditional uh, haunted home narrative, it does play out with a lot of these tropes. And you think of Tilda Swinton as being sort of the the weaker parent, right? Because she frequently can't, she can't um, stand up to her son and she's being bullied by her son and the, you know, the dad comes home and everything's great. And then the dad leaves and she's being bullied, but also like, who's the last one standing, you know? And I think that that plays out a lot too. So I think there is some, I think one of the reasons why I find these narratives so fascinating is because there is this complexity to gender roles. Last year, I think it was last year, we had Us, and I think that's the first time I remember seeing a black family terrorized by otherworldly things. What are some of the other instances of that that you might have found? I know people loved Us. I just couldn't get into it. Um, and so I would, I'm always, I always tell my students, like, I'm delighted to be proven wrong. So if you can, you know, give me that insight to Us that will make it come alive, uh, please do. And I loved Get Out. Get Out, again, it's not a traditional sort of haunted home narrative, but you do have this idea of, you know, the the charming house in the suburbs where you think everything is going to be incredibly safe, and then it becomes this, you know, horrific nightmare for whatever black characters uh, stumble into it. And then other than that, they're like, they're very, very few with African-American characters. 
haunted mansion like earlier on was like, oh, I'm not really going to get into this one. Um, and then I went back and rewatched it and was just so disturbed by all the stuff that I hadn't noticed the first time around. And so the haunted mansion really exemplifies like all the troublesome racism, you know, the fact that like you have, yes, you have this black family and they're in a haunted house, but they don't own it, you know, and the way that the the mother slash wife is treated like property to kind of be bartered back and forth. I mean, it's just when I went back and rewatched it, I was like, wow, that's really disturbing. Um, and then you have the the sort of like the comedic takes on it, uh, you know, with like the Keenan Ivory Wayans and stuff, which they're funny. But you're also kind of like, why is this? Why is this the only representation of a haunted house narrative that has some diversity in the cast where it's more than just like the one exotic character who's coming in to like consult? Right. So it's it's just very weird that it's it's so it's so limited because I feel like you you expect there to be a little bit more diversity and just nothing. I had forgotten about the haunted mansion and it's so funny because I always think of Eddie Murphy's joke about what if a black family had moved into the Amityville horror house. I would have been in the house and said, Oh baby, this is beautiful. We got a chandelier hanging up here, kids outside playing. It's a beautiful neighborhood. Being out underwear. I really love them. This is really nice. <laughs> Too bad we can't stay, baby. Well, and that's I mean, Jordan Peele said that's that's when he named his movie Get Out, like it was a reference to that Eddie Murphy skit. So, you know, he, he, Jordan Peele talks about how influential that was. And, you know, and that is, it is brought up in some of the more satirical takes where you, you know, you see kind of like, I don't understand why white people are so weird in this situation. So I think that's great, but it's just, it's glaring that there are so few others. And for instance, when I originally put together the proposal for the book, one of the things that I wanted to do was talk more about non-heteronormative families and sort of what happens to them in the haunted house. And then I was like, oh, they don't exist. So apparently, you know, you, you very rarely have gay families buying haunted real estate. Well, I think you said that there's one movie where you, there is a gay couple, but then what they leave town and it's the the niece and her boyfriend. So it becomes a heteronorm, heteronormative couple anyway. You think it's going to be all diverse. And it was funny because I, I interviewed like the director and he was talking about how they, you know, they were very aware of the fact that, um, you know, that this kind of thing hadn't been done before and they wanted to have sort of, you know, more diversity. And that when he pitched it to the actresses, they were like, yeah, let's do this. It's like, yeah, we got we got the gay people out of the way. And then the daughter and her boyfriend become the heteronormative couple remaining. Is it the one called Home? Yes. Okay. Go. By Franklin. I keep them straight because like, you know, the names would very would clearly reflect, you know, like some subplot or whatever. But this is this is just a disaster. It's like if I don't have the index cards in front of me, then forget about it. Tell me a little bit about a house is not a home. That movie is the only one uh, that I could find that had 
an African-American family. Like it, it fit all the tropes except for the fact that the family wasn't white. So it's, it, um, it's not a satire. You have a, you know, black family who moves into a home that appears to be, you know, middle class. Uh, and then the house is haunted and it's, predictable and formulaic in the ways that these white haunted house movies are predictable and formulaic, except that the family's not white. And I remember when I was like, I was like, there's no way this is the only one. And it's the only one I found. And I interviewed Gerald Webb, uh, who is uh, one of the producers on the movie and was, is like the plays the dad in the film and he was saying that yeah one of the sort of inspirations had been like oh well no one's done this that's weird let's do it and then they like couldn't find distribution and it's just so amazing to me because I mean it's kind of like the record industry where it's like nobody wants to try something different you know so it's like oh well I've got the new Britney Spears and it's like, oh, sure, record deal. Um, but then you've got someone different and it's like, oh, I don't know what box to put that in. So we're just going to pass. And so even though the movie is fine, I mean, again, it's it's not, you know, uh, you know, Academy Award winning, but neither is, you know, Amityville 17. It's distinctive because of how unusual it is. And yet it didn't really get any traction. A lot of these movies you can find to rent on, you know, Amazon or iTunes or Netflix or whatever. And I had to buy the DVD because it was just, it could not be found anywhere, which is sad because it's, you know, it was the production value is fine. It came out in 2015. Like it's, there's nothing like they're just, let's just say that there, there are many more worse movies that are on Netflix. Let's just put it that way. So you said that you talked with uh, one of the filmmakers for that. And I think that you talked with quite a few filmmakers while you're putting this book together. So with that movie, I talked to Gerald Webb, who um, was not the the director. He was one of the like the the he plays the dad. I don't want to say he's like the hero of the movie because it's got a bunch of people. Um, but he he's the dad, uh, and he was sort of one of the producers of the film. And this is this is just one of those like weird stories where this kind of thing happens to me. Um, I was watching the movie and I was like Gerald Webb, Gerald Webb. That sounds really familiar. And I looked up on Facebook and we were Facebook friends and I have no idea why. And we have no like mutual friends. I've, I just, it was no, no clue. Um, but so I just sent him a, you know, Facebook messenger request saying I'm writing this book and can I interview you? And he was like, yeah, sure. I hate the idea of sort of like, you know, the academic in the ivory tower who's just sort of, I feel like I'm armchair quarterbacking. You know, I'm like, oh, well, this must have been what the director was thinking about. You know, it's it's nice to sometimes reach out. And so, like, um, you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, the haunting of Hill House and I have, you know, w- all these sort of theories about what I think that, you know, the, the mini series is about. And it's again, it, but it's still just like theories. And so it's nice to be able to talk to someone, you know, who worked on it and find out like, Oh wow, they were actually thinking this, what I was thinking they were thinking. But it's funny because I always talk, to, I always tell my students, you know, sometimes the filmmaker doesn't know that they're thinking about X and Y. They're just responding to something that's in the zeitgeist. Uh, so just because they aren't thinking what you're thinking doesn't mean you're wrong. But when they are thinking what you're thinking, it's, there's something very validating in that. So whenever possible, I try to talk to people. 
but sometimes it's, you know, it's a, it's a total fluke and it's like, you know, who, if you know somebody who knows someone or, you know, and, you know, random people are very, very friendly and outgoing and happy to chat and then other people are not. And so it's kind of like luck of the draw who talks to you. In this case, um, Trevor Macy uh, happened to be friends with a friend of mine, uh, Jeb Brody. And I told Jeb that I was working on this book. And he was like, oh, do you want to talk to one of the people who did The Haunting of Hill House? And I was like, oh, my God, yes. Um, And so that's how we were connected. I guess you could have spun off into all kinds of different directions with this because I'm thinking of like the apartment trilogy by Polanski and haunted apartments or just there's so many different ways you could go with this. Yes. And I think one of the things that's kind of fun. So the, the book is for this specific series that Rutgers Press does that are called quick takes um, where there are these sort of these smaller books. And so it it keeps me in line. Because I I can't just go spin off into, you know, like that has to be another book. Like it's like I can't, I can't just add another 20,000 words. And so I kind of like that because it allows me to be really super focused. You know, like the um, my L.A. Private Eyes book was for the same series. And again, it was kind of like I wasn't going to talk about Private Eyes in New York. Like I have I've turned that book into a course that I teach. And then in the course, I do talk about, you know, privatizing in New York and how they're different from privatizing in L.A. Um, but for the book, I just had to stay focused, which is kind of good for me because I'm always like, hmm, well, that's kind of interesting. And then it's like tangent. Are you doing the same with this one? Are you teaching a course uh, on haunted homes? Not yet. Unfortunately, um, at FIT, there's a, a lengthy course approval proposal process. So I am ironically teaching a course this fall based on going viral, which was already put in place before anyone had even heard of COVID. Now there's this very surreal component to the class where like, I was sort of when I was working on on putting it together and I was like, how do I integrate COVID? Because like I have to talk about COVID. Um, and I was like, do I just have like a day where it's sort of like, this is COVID day. And we just talk about how all the templates show up with COVID. And then I was like, no, it's like, cause COVID's like interwoven itself into like every fabric of our life at the moment. And so I just now have COVID just woven throughout the course. I think the thing that to me is the freakiest is like, oh my God, have we not learned from our mistakes? I'm giving my students examples of things that were done, you know, in like the 1990s. And here we go. We're doing them again. That's the weirdest where it's just like we just, you know, does that sound familiar? Because that's what's happening right now. That's the most infuriating where you just kind of want to like hit your head against the wall and be like, we did this already. So when is Haunted Homes going to be out? Unfortunately, I don't think Haunted Homes will be out until the summer of 2021. I think there have been some delays due to the aforementioned COVID. I'm hoping that they will be able to push it out a little bit earlier and get it out in the spring. But as of now, it's summer 2021. Do you have your next project in mind already? Oh, no. Yes, I do. And again, it's going to start with that same kind of like naive question that always makes me cringe a little bit. But um, I I actually 
was thinking about doing this one before the haunted homes. And then I knew that I was moving. And so I was like, it'll actually be easier right now to do this more bite-sized project. And then once I've moved, I can kind of sink my teeth into this next project, which will, which will definitely be several years of work. I want to write about memory and specifically the sort of cultural social erosion of memory that's taking place at this moment. And I don't have anything like terribly fleshed out, but what drew me to this question is sort of noticing how basically we forget everything, myself included. You've noticed I like forget names of actors and never ask me what what year a movie came out like I'm just a disaster um but you have on one hand you know the young people who I remember I remember like when I was in in school we had to memorize things and in previous generations I've heard they had to memorize the Gettysburg address and now you know kids don't even know their own phone number so on one hand of one side of the spectrum you have this sort of just this like forgetting and there was some crazy statistic about like you know how many kids have no idea that the holocaust even happened i mean there's just this this loss of sort of facts history narrative memory and then on the other end of the spectrum we have increasing numbers of people living with alzheimer's and dementia as a result of longer lifespans and so you you have like the old people and the young people are all forgetting everything. There's something really interesting to me about that. And I have not yet decided where it's going to go. Um, but I know that I've, I, my sort of, my methodology is to have this kind of like naive interest in a topic. And then I just start accumulating books and articles and lists of movies. And then I kind of figure out where it'll go. Uh, like, you know, the haunted house one, it was just like, oh, this is weird that the suburban home becomes the place of danger. So again, I start with these very sort of cringingly naive queries and then it sort of takes on a life of its own. So Dahlia, if people want to keep up with you and your projects and want to, you know, maybe see when the, the book is actually coming out for haunted homes, where should they go to find out more information? The best place, but the least interesting place is my website. This is Dahlia.com because I rarely update it, but it does get updated whenever there's like a new book. So this is Dahlia.com. And then I have, they can look me up on Facebook, which also barely gets updated. And then there's Twitter where I post lots of angry political tweets. Um, and then it's, uh, my handle is Dahlia Destiny. Any combination of those will definitely let you know when the book comes out. We're back and we were talking about how Poltergeist is differentiated so strongly between it and E.T. in that the Freeling family is whole at the beginning and the end of the film. We don't have any fractures between the parents like we do in Close Encounters, the family splitting up like they did in War of the Worlds, where I think there might have been a missing mother character. There's a really nice article about how families are united and divided in Spielberg's work, and I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Unquestionably, this is where I guess the debate about who directed the movie comes up is it's such a Spielbergian notion, like the tremendous 
face that the movie shows in the basic goodness of people and the value of a traditional family relationship is so Spielbergian and is it just imprints itself all over the movie from from literally the first frame. There are so many little things in the movie where I keep saying, like, these are Steven Spielberg's fingerprints. Things like that Steven just happens to be watching a guy named Joe. And I'm like, okay, well, that eventually will be remade as always. And I know that at this exact time, Spielberg was already talking about remaking a guy named Joe and even showed it to the screenwriters before they started talking about doing a horror film together. He brought them in and showed them the film and they're like, yeah, we're not really interested in this, not knowing exactly how to make deals in Hollywood. And they kind of walked away from it, but then they they called back. They're like, but we are interested in doing a horror film. <laughs> so they managed to get Poltergeist out of it. Things like that. Things like the one scientist who has the bite on his side. And I'm like, oh, this looks like a shark bite, you know, and I'm just seeing like all of these little nods to other Spielberg films. Like the only thing that I didn't see in the movie was a shooting star when there was a nighttime sky. <laughs> I mean, even the clouds rolling in when Robbie's climbing the tree and the clouds are coming in, I'm like, okay, did somebody get ready to open the Ark of the Covenant? Because these are the same clouds. It looks like that come over the Island when the Ark is about to be opened. Yeah, no, no, it's, I mean, it's ILM and it's obviously the influence of his friend, George Lucas, who's, products are everywhere in the movie oh my god are they ever (laughs) (laughs) i didn't realize but in the one all the great material you sent i learned that poltergeist was shot before et and somehow in my mind i always maybe because et is you know such a cornerstone of who steven spielberg is as a director i always sort of assumed that that was shot first but since poltergeist was shot first you can kind of see well that was um a kind of a warm-up for E.T. and a lot of the visual and, and by the way I'm I'm very conflicted about who really di- directed it I can because I, I have tremendous respect for Toby Hooper and I can see some of him in this as well but I can only imagine what it would have been like to be in the orbit of Steven Spielberg at that moment who is you know kind of like the Mozart of American cinema like he's just and at his apex like at the at the absolute zenith of his abilities as a filmmaker, I'm sure just getting close to him, it would be impossible not to feel that imprint. Even if he wasn't like telling Toby Hooper what to do, I think just the fact that he wrote or co-wrote the script and and the outline and, you know, it obviously came from him. It just like infects everything in the film. That was always kind of my feeling about it because I, I, I don't love a lot of Toby Hooper's other work, but I mean, he's a competent director. I just feel like myself, who has never directed a movie, if I worked with Steven Spielberg, I might be able to direct a nice movie. I don't know. It just feels like being around that energy and with that capability. Like I, the man says he directed it. Like why? Why don't we just believe him? I, I don't know why there'd be some big conspiracy theory around hiding the truth. And there's a podcast. I don't know if it, it was in the all the lovely. Uh, readings that you sent over my because I, I i got lost in that for, for a couple hours uh, i was there too podcast there there um i wanted to re-listen to it before this but there's a gentleman that talks about the fact that toby hooper was there and he directed this movie and steven spielberg did not so i don't know he, to me he did 
and it and it just benefits from Steven Spielberg's presence. There's a lot of finger pointing when it comes to there was a behind the scenes short that was filmed around that time and that was I think directed by Frank Marshall one of the co-producers of the film and it's basically it's the Steven Spielberg show like look at how involved Steven Spielberg is with no shit this is going to sound really harsh but in 1982 who's going to run out and see a Toby Hooper film versus who's going to run out and see a Steven Spielberg film it's that thing where you know no matter who's directing it you put like the big name across the top. You know, everybody at this moment knows Steven Spielberg. He's got a track record. They're going to want to see this movie. Whereas Jane and Joe America aren't going to necessarily know who Toby Hooper is, other than, oh, maybe the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the hardcore horror fans. But it's not like he was able to pack him in. So no wonder you put Steven Spielberg's name over the title as big as you possibly can, bigger than the title of the movie. <laughs> It doesn't matter what it is, as long as his name is on it, then let's buy the lunchbox. They're even doing it now, much to my dismay, like with the new Candyman, you know, Jordan Peele's Candyman, even though Nia DaCosta directed it. Because obviously, I know why they're doing that, because people recognize Jordan Peele's name over Nia DaCosta's. Back, why would I believe it was any different back in the 80s? And this this movie has more to do with. Steven Spielberg's other works and then it does like you said for Toby Hooper's like if you were like yeah I love Texas Chainsaw I'm gonna go see this haunted house movie you might not walk away with what you were expecting and at that moment I was hyper conscious of what was going on because I Raiders of the Lost Ark was such a pivotal experience for me that was the movie that I saw that made me understand what a director is or made me aware of there's somebody telling the story and, and the, the, the way the story is told is very important. And I don't even know how many times I saw that film in the theater. So Steven Spielberg was such a powerful cultural influence as a filmmaker to the point when E.T. came out, it killed everything around it. And famously, Blade Runner and The Thing were just devastated by it because they opened up within a couple of weeks of E.T., and the cultural momentum was just overwhelmed by E.T. And, and anything that was sort of dark or adult or, or negative in any way just was not desired. Like it was nobody wanted to see those films as great as they are. And I, you know, for me, those movies are more probably more impactful than E.T. was. But ultimately, but at that time, I don't know that there's any other filmmaker except maybe Francis Coppola when he did you know, the time that he did Godfather 1 and 2 and the conversation. But I don't know that there's any other filmmaker that's had more of an uh, influence on popular culture in a particular moment than he did at that moment. So poor Toby Hooper, because how do you stand out from that? Like, how can you separate yourself from that? I don't think there's any way. And I believe the Toby Hooper directed the film. Like, I think Toby Hooper is a, a really an excellent director. I think that he has tremendous ability and is a, a really fine craftsman, particularly at that time. And I can see his influence. I think I'm willing to bet that some of the edgier elements of Poltergeist belong to him. And it was probably nice. Spielberg has, especially at that time, kind of could swing into a really saccharine place. And I bet Toby Hooper was a nice counterbalance to that. But there was just no way 
given that story, given that the story was kind of birthed from Spielberg, that he was ever going to walk away owning that movie. Spielberg had a uh, had Lucas producing uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they were very involved together, and you know, doing the story conferences with Lawrence Kasdan. But Lucas is a presence, but he's not nearly the excitable presence. It's like you know, Spielberg and Scorsese. If you lock those two in a room, they would probably just like tear each other apart like weasels or something. You know, they're just amazing when it comes to their love of film and just the way that they talk and they get so excited about stuff. Whereas George Lucas is yeah, kind of like fades into the wallpaper sometimes. All right, that's fine. And this was the first, I think, the one of the first times that. Spielberg was producing something, and he would learn, I think, from this experience when it came to things like Back to the Future or um, Gremlins, where it's like, okay, you got to let it breathe a little bit. And we do get those Spielberg touches in things like Gremlins and things like Back to the Future, like when I think it's Billy might, or it might be the... Um, Oh, I can't remember the the younger character when they're running through town and you see the marquees and one of the marquees is watch the skies. And that was originally before they came up with night skies, which then eventually morphed kind of into this kind of into ET. That was originally what he was calling it, which again was kind of a throwback to that last line from the thing. But they said, no, you can't use that as a title. So he had come up with a bunch of different titles, but that's there on that marquee. So it's like one of those, Oh, look at that. That's a spiel. Spielberg touch, but that movie is really owned by Joe Dante a lot more than Spielberg. That's a really good point. I, I'm, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure Spielberg, based on some of the interviews that you sent to us, I, I think you're right. I think he he realized that he had he didn't want to repeat that experience. And you're right as far as Spielberg getting really saccharine. I mean, the next thing that he would direct would be the Twilight Zone segment of Kick the Can, which is like the schmaltziest of all of those segments, and it's like. You know, you think like, hey, if you did direct Poltergeist, maybe you would go for something a little bit edgier than this. But I like Spielberg adjacent projects. I like when he's like involved, but not like the spearhead. Uh, I, I I don't know if, if his, his his like unbridled sensibilities are really what I'm into. When we talk about Poltergeist, there's no way to talk about it without talking about that time in cinema, because in American cinema, because I really feel like 1982 changed the course of Hollywood. And it, it never, I almost want to say it never recovered. If you think about the films that opened that summer, beginning with Poltergeist through to, yeah, Wrath of Khan, The Thing, Blade Runner, Tron. In the fall, there was Creep Show. The seeds of virtually everything that we see now were, were sown that summer in terms of mainstream popular Hollywood filmmaking with something like Poltergeist, we can see that Spielberg was really reaching a point of creative influence that even in the Jurassic Park Schindler list days, he would never reach again. It was a wonderful moment. I mean, it was, you know, I th- I'm sure for adults, it was, it was depressing, you know, for Pauline Kael or somebody like <laughs> for serious critics, at that time, it was probably depressing because essentially it was um, B-movies, the kind of mo- movies that were classified as B-movies in the 50s and the 60s were becoming the A-movies. And and the intelligent, meaningful dramas and the influence of the French New Wave and the attempt by American filmmakers in the 70s to really evolve 
the medium were vanishing. And, and really what was being offered were fantastic rides for the audience. Like it, it you know, Hollywood became a theme park. And but if you were 13, <laughs> it was a wonderful moment. It was, it was magical. And that and, and I don't I don't believe for a moment that Spielberg was ever cynical about what he did. I think that he just made the movies that he loved to make. And they just happen to synchronize with popular taste. And I mean, I think he is a filmmaker who loves to be loved, but I, I truly feel that he is as passionate about the kinds of movies he's ma- he makes as, as Ingmar Bergman is about his films. And um, and it, you know, and, and of course, it, it really shows. So it was done with tremendous earnestness and, and, and a serious intent. It's such a fascinating moment because in in that sort of incredible explosion of creativity, there was like also a tremendous tragedy because the Twilight Zone famously had one of the worst accidents of all in film history, the, the death of Vic Morrow and two children. Um, so just at the moment when Steven Spielberg made this poltergeist and E.T., and he was kind of, he sort of reached the stage of being the greatest filmmaker or the most successful filmmaker in the world, this horrible, horrible thing happened, not to directly to him, but to, you know, a movie he was producing. And he was going to do a different Twilight Zone segment. I'm not sure which one it was, was it? But it was a darker story. And so he did kick the can, I think, partly because it was after two children had died and the, an American actor. And I think he felt like he needed to do something sweet. He couldn't do something dark. And the result is, yeah, <laughs> Probably the most saccharine thing he's, he's ever done. Well, at least he didn't do Little Girl Lost, because I know there was already talk of, you know, how dare they take this Richard Matheson story from the original Twilight Zone and turn it into Poltergeist. But, I mean, there are some similarities there, um, though I have to, you know, you brought up Tron earlier, and I have to laugh because there was a Simpsons parody of Little Girl <laughs> Lost that actually referenced Tron. Do you see a light, Homer? Move into the light, my son. Homer, this is your physician, Dr. Julius Hibbert. Can you tell us what it's like in there? Um, it's like, uh, did anyone see the movie Tron? No. 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 Yes. I mean, no. No. We've talked a little bit about the question of authorship when it comes to Poltergeist, but... I want to really talk to an expert about it. Writer Chris O'Neill has been working on a book about Toby Hooper, and I was fortunate enough to ask him about his thoughts regarding the kerfuffle around Poltergeist. If I were to have a trial right now as far as who directed Poltergeist, the scales are really tipped in the Spielberg direction. Seeing the -the behind-the-scenes footage with Spielberg calling all the shots, hearing from witnesses like Zelda Rubinstein or from uh, John Leonetti, they're saying that Spielberg was the one who directed the film. And I'm curious, what went on there, and why do you think that it's not that? Well, I believe it is a Toby Hooper film. It was a very strong kind of 50-50 creative collaboration in the lead-up to the production with Spielberg, and with Hooper, Spielberg was such a dominant presence on the set. Rather than necessarily having stories from 
the poltergeist shoot. I have a few other stories from other shoots that Hooper was on that I think if you add them all up, it gives you an an idea of what happened on that film. What I find really interesting about the whole poltergeist situation was it was during the production and before the film was even released that it was very much in the public eye that people felt Spielberg secretly really directed it or ghost directed it. I know in kind of recent years with the internet, information about film shoots or reshoots or recuts or whatever are a bit more commonplace. Most of the time of films from this era, I think you only ever really hear these stories when it's 10, 15, 20 years later, when the dust is settled, there's no PR or involved anymore. It's no longer the marketing machine. It's no longer getting the movie out and sold. It, it, it's on, it's in the library and kind of people sit back a bit and they, they tell some stories and whatever. For example, the way several people believe that Sylvester Stallone really directed Cobra or how uh, Kurt Russell really directed Tombstone. Now I don't, have details on those um productions to to state one way or the other but i didn't hear that maybe i maybe i'm i just wasn't very clued in but i certainly didn't hear those stories until um years after those films and yet something here like with poltergeist this was something that was kind of going on as it was unfolding in the public eye and before it even came out so i as i'll go along i have a kind of theory about that as well because if you have a film where a huge creative element of it is Steven Spielberg, who at the time was, let's, he must have been the, the biggest money spinning filmmaker of that period, having just done Raiders of the Lost Ark and before that Close Encounters and before that Jaws. And of course he had coming out around the same time as Poltergeist, uh, uh, ET. It sounds like there was a lot of people who it was good for them to push the Spielberg angle. However, as much as I can say that, there, I think there was an unconventional by um, general industry terms way of how they worked. That's where difficult to definitively say no he directed it. No, no, no. He directed it. I think, like, as I said, I think I present now in a list of different points and things why I think it ultimately favors with Hooper, but also how the film does have very strong Spielberg qualities. And indeed, he was a creative force behind the film. So it's not to say that he wasn't involved in the film hugely in influencing it, but at the same time, he wasn't the director per se. So like I said, here we are 38 years later still discussing this. The only time I, I, I get the sense at the time when this was happening was the only time you really heard there was an issue with a film with creative differences, shall we say, was if a filmmaker had somehow been removed from the project or didn't have final cut and that filmmaker was trying to be very um was was trying to point out basically the film was no longer his but that's not the case here both filmmakers involved are both claiming everything was amicable 
and everything is above board. And yet there's a lot of qualities here which people question that. As I was saying in the in the research of my book in in this book I've been um, working on, I've been trying to get a good strong sense of Toby Hooper as as a person, as a filmmaker, in terms of his work methods, the way people refer to him, actors, crew members, etc. In doing so in films prior to and in some cases after Poltergeist it gives you a good idea of how things unfolded but initially I believe in the late 70s maybe 78 79 um, Spielberg met with Toby Hooper and I think they became friends like a lot of filmmakers in Hollywood uh, Spielberg was a great admirer of Texas Chainsaw Massacre for example, when, when, when Toby first went to Hollywood, his mentor, the person who kind of tried to get him into the industry and was trying to set him up with some projects was William Friedkin. A, a lot of people really were quite taken by Texas Chainsaw. The two filmmakers started talking about collaborating on something and Toby wanted to do a film along the lines of The Haunting, the Robert Wise 1963 film, a haunted house movie, but something incredibly that could be visceral and ghost story you can only imagine the initial thoughts going through his mind when he when they, when these two very excitable filmmakers got this idea of let's do a project together and apparently, and that's what happened spielberg says let's work on something so in 1980 when spielberg was uh, in production on Raiders of the Lost Ark back and forth they they corresponded and created a treatment for a film to be called it's nighttime some people think that dark skies project split up and be uh, elements of it went into et and elements of it went into uh, what became poltergeist apart from like the most superficial family in peril by some sort of supernatural alien force element to it i don't really think there was anything else to it i think there was this was just a different project and it's nighttime was the bare bones of what became poltergeist so the two filmmakers developed the concept of it's nighttime and i believe the plan was always that this is toby's project steven spielberg was going to get it rolling he loved it, the concept. He was developing it with Toby. He was a co-writer, the story. Toby, I don't think, is any, in, in any way credited in, in the creation of it, but he, but he was. So that's another element that if it had been story by Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg, maybe people would have a different opinion. But it kind of, just looking at the credits, it, it just sounds like Spielberg on his own or with other people came up with it, because I know there's other script writers, of course. Throughout pre-production, the film was rigorously mapped out and planned out, and it's so intricate in terms of the spectacle of special effects involved and things there was a lot of planning in, that had to be involved rigorously so the two of them were heavily involved and and you got to remember and this is very important spielberg was the producer so he wasn't the director he wasn't like the final say necessarily on the creative aspects of the project but he was in a business level invested uh, in the project you know he was actually involved in it and therefore he needed to see it come to fruition in some shape or form and that's very important in what i'm going to come to in a few moments and and also to to to, to note spielberg's been involved as in some sort of producer 
capacity on several films. However, in most of the cases, he's executive producer. He wasn't the producer. So, for example, Back to the Future is executive produced by Spielberg and it's Steven Spielberg presents. It's not a Steven Spielberg production. So that's very important to kind of highlight as well. If you go through his producing filmography, in most cases he his name's on there, but he, he took a back seat. Whereas with Poltergeist, he was a bit more forefront on that. So I mean, that's an also a very important thing to, to highlight. Filming begins and very soon after it begins, it seems that Spielberg's presence on set very quickly became felt. And he not only was on the set, but seemed to be taking charge quite a bit, basically doing what in a lot of cases a director would seem to do, which would be calling the shots in terms of, uh, sorry, when I say calling the shots, I mean like, uh, instructing crew to do this, asking questions. And when you see that behind the scenes footage, that's what you're seeing. Before we go into that any further, what I want to now talk about is what people have said about Toby on other film productions. If you add up these stories together and then come to this scenario, you can see what happened and how Spielberg became to be more involved than he initially intended or maybe should have been. And at the same time, I think it's, it's Toby's film. So one term that often comes up when you hear people talking about Toby is he was very childlike or softly spoken, as I said already when we were talking. Shy is also something else I've heard used and introverted. These are all not necessarily qualities you think of in someone who is helming a major Hollywood production like Poltergeist. And it was a big production. I get the impression Toby was not, was an incredibly talented filmmaker, but he wasn't necessarily a very good business man in terms of uh, the, the logistics and practicalities, certainly in the early days anyway, of what uh, is involved in a production in terms of the money involved, etc. Whereas Spielberg was a talent, is a talented filmmaker still, but at this time, he was the money man. He was the person responsible for making sure the film comes in not over budget or not too over budget or on time or reasonably on time, whatever. That's something that is important to think about. One thing that um, comes up a lot throughout the filmography is when Toby had a producer who was supportive of what he was trying to achieve and did what they could to facilitate that. He generally worked on productions that went pr pretty much okay. Like there's a quote here from Harry Allen Towers, the producer who brought him in to do Night Terrors. And, and I think this is interesting. He said, he's very introverted and needs a lot of support, but capable of doing great things. Now, He's introverted and needs a lot of support. Like I said, if you have someone on your team who's in your corner supporting you and letting you, and understanding that about you and helping you achieve that, great. But if you don't have that or 
people aren't quite behind you. I can see how that could be a problem. And for example, I maybe I think that's what happened on uh, Eaten Alive, for example, or the films that he was removed from. There's a lot of accounts that he could, while on set, say directing actors, could get a bit flustered or or stumble in the way he was trying to communicate with, say, actors. And who knows if this led to other members of the crew, but I've heard this with actors um, in the way that you have communication issues with people. And I found it quite interesting that the late Lou Perryman, who worked on the production of Eggshells of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and of course was um, in, in a prime role as an actor in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. He said that on those on those early films on Eggshells and on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first film, that in Texas Chainsaw Massacre he was uh, assistant director or assistant camera, I think, or assistant director. But either way, he'd be standing there and he'd be looking at Toby communicating with the actors and he'd be in the middle and he could see what Toby was saying and he could see the response from the actors. And he, he said he, a, a lot of people, uh, Kim Hagenkel, uh, also, uh, backs this up saying that Perryman was like an interpreter. What I think Toby was trying to say was this. From all accounts, Lou Perryman was a very, uh, kind of easy to get along with kind of guy and very, I mean, you know, very personable and, and people liked him. When Toby went to Cannes, for uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, he brought Lou Perryman with him. And it sort of sounded like maybe because he felt with Lou by his side, he would be able to talk to certain people and things like that. So there's there's that interesting. And even when um, it came to a few you know years later on, on The Fun House, which was the film before Poltergeist, I was shaping the actor who was in the film on the uh, Arrow Blu-ray of the film that, that came out in the UK a few years ago. He tells a, a story that he'd be there on set and bearing in mind it's a nighttime shoot. So the lighting is very specific. So with the camera movements, the actors have to hit their marks and have to be turned a certain way. And uh, the story kind of tells is um, Toby will be talking to the group of actors, the main, say, say the four actors, the four teenagers at the, at the young people at, in, in the, in the story. And he'd be like, so you kind of, you know, uh, you, you, it's a simple shot. You, you, you know, you skitter over there, like kind of, you know, like, I don't know, spiders and, uh, you know, you know, and, and, and then you go hit your, and, um, I mean, that bad impression is something like what is, is communicated in the story. And then he, apparently the actors, again, some of them could look quite confused and he'd look at, Miles Chapin and go, you know what I mean, you, you explain it. And then Chapin will go, oh, well, what Toby's trying to say is, is when we get here, we have to move this way at a certain speed. Then we have to hit our mark and da, da, da. It sounded like he kind of needed that support sometimes of people to help. And, and also on, uh, say, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, LM Kit Carson apparently sometimes was communicating with the actors as well. So that's... It's not to slight those films and then suddenly have question of ownership over those films, but it's just an example of moments where Toby could have trouble with communication and would need that support, as Harry Allen Towers said, to, to carry it through. Also, Toby would like letting things play out sometimes and let happy accidents happen like just see how something would happen with a performance or whatever and again you can imagine a lot of producers getting very frustrated with that approach of to things you know like in terms of not just very rigidly just getting things done 
And also, there's another story from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 set where I think at one point Cannon sent down some guys to to kind of try and take charge of the, the, the shoot and try to get it more forced through to the end without any further delays or whatever. And uh, the way the story is told is uh, by one of the uh, members of the production was normally with Toby, while they were going to going through what they're about to do, if anyone had an opinion or an idea, like, Toby would listen to them all and discuss them all. And of course, it would just be wasting time. Whereas he'd be like hearing comments and looking for suggestions. These guys from Canon, if anybody tried to bring up anything, they go, excuse me, excuse me. And then he would continue, make sure everybody was going to work and then go, sorry, yes. What can, what can I uh, do for you? So I, if you take all of these elements together, imagine what was going on on Poltergeist, which was a considerably a bigger shoot, budget-wise, scheduling-wise, than anything before. Reports going back to Spielberg that we're going behind schedule, the crew don't feel like it's going anywhere or whatever. My theory is that interpreter, that kind of more forceful presence that I've mentioned in the other shoots... I reckon Spielberg, the producer, and remember, it's not just the producer, it's a, it's a producer with a vast amount of not only film experience, but experience of this film, having discussed it inside and out with Toby. I reckon he kind of jumped in and tried to like really take the reins to push the project through because with so many intricate effects and such like that, he could see it going over budget and over schedule. And he didn't want that to happen. I'm not talking like heaven's gate style over schedule or that kind of thing, but I could see it from him being a, uh, the way he would maybe have a production and the way he would do things, him getting very frustrated with that approach and being that kind of interpreter for Toby. That's what I think happened. That everything was devised so rigidly beforehand that between them, they would work out what was going to happen. And then Spielberg would almost like take charge more on the set than necessarily Toby was. Because the making of footage in that documentary, uh, it's like a seven minute, if, it, if it's the same thing I've seen, uh, is it like a seven minute just behind the scenes kind of featurette? Yeah. And, and Frank Marshall, who's producer, co-producer with Steven Spielberg uh, directed that it really pushes the Spielberg angle it's Spielberg talking with the effects people it's Spielberg talking about oh yes how is this effect going to be done and talking about oh how uh, this rig will be done it's all the some of the big intricate stuff he's discussing and there are only two moments you see Toby and he doesn't say a word in regards to he's not interviewed by the camera crew, you don't hear him saying anything. And yet, in at least one of those instances, he's there directing the young actor Oliver Robbins, who has always stated Toby was the director. I reckon what might have happened was Spielberg took him aside and said, look, to get this done, you focus on this part and I'll focus on this part. And I'm not talking necessarily about for the whole shoot. I just mean certain sections because in the majority of the cases, 
the actors talk about working heavily with with Toby Oliver Robbins there James Caron always very much spoken very highly of of Toby and of course uh when you think about it Toby brought Karen in to be in Return of the Living Dead before Toby jumped from that project to do Life Force and brought him back in to do uh, Invaders from Mars. And if I'm not mistaken, he's also in the um, Amazing Stories TV episode that uh, Toby did for, for Spielberg's show. When some of the actors kind of are a bit more diplomatic, I think that's because they're seeing what was happening on the set in some of these other situations it does sound like Spielberg would just be sometimes an overriding voice in something that was pre-discussed with the two people. So almost being in this kind of strange way, like an overly assertive assistant AD or something that not to downplay, but do you know what I mean? Like really like cracking the whip and getting things done because ultimately if that film, as I said, there was any problems, it was going to be a problem for Spielberg, the producer. That's my feeling on why that happened on the set itself. Because there are loads of photographs of Spielberg shooting. And also there are accounts of people saying, no, Spielberg directed. But we're talking about certain crew members who perhaps under normal circumstances would have had a different relationship to a director in this case like for example uh unless i'm mistaken i've never heard the director of photography give his opinion on the hierarchy because you've got to remember this film had a massive crew compared to the previous films so as i said i always feel like spielberg was the intermediate so a lot of the crew members and effects people and uh was it whether it was the makeup artist um, whether it was the um actual like visual effects i reckon he spoke to a lot of those people and it's a lot of those guys uh who are giving their impression that toby wasn't really the director it was really spielberg also what's very important to stress is what happened publicly afterwards which is mgm who not only funded the film, but they were also the distributors of the film because they had their own distribution arm at the time. If you're going to sell a movie and, and bear in mind, MGM was in, was, was kind of in financial dire straits at the time. I think if I remember, I read somewhere that of their 11 or 12 productions around this time, the only one that really made big money was poltergeist so the fact that they had spielberg on board was a big thing for them because he was like the the bit you know the most successful popular current filmmaker around if you look at a lot of the material out there the initial material they're really pushing spielberg in the forefront and not toby hooper now that's not necessarily surprising because you know I can imagine that would be the case. As with, say, Gremlins, Steven Spielberg presents. You know, there was a lot of movies where Spielberg's name was very much in the forefront or kind of large font on the poster. But with the discussion and rumors and the reports on the sets that uh, Spielberg had ghost directed, what some people were saying, I I feel like they were playing on that. Because if you look at the early marketing materials if you look at the 
what I believe is the advanced poster. I'm not talking about the they're here poster with that tagline and that iconic image of the little girl touching the TV screen. I'm talking about the earlier poster where it's just like black and white image of the suburban buildings, the housing area on the film that are featured in the film, the credits below and above lots of text. And there are three paragraphs, then the title of the film. And the first paragraph is... Steven Spielberg has been called the American Screen Master's storyteller. From the thrashing terror of Jaws to the awesome spectacle of Close Encounters of the Third Kind to the globe-trotting adventure of Raiders of the Lost Ark, he has delighted, mystified, and scared more audiences more imaginatively than any filmmaker of our time. That's the first paragraph. The second paragraph on this poster is, as producer and co-author of Poltergeist, Spielberg is joined by co-producer Frank Marshall, with whom he made Race of the Lost Ark, then co-authors Michael Grease and Mark Victor, and then finally, director Toby Hooper is after the producer and the writers, and at the very end, and the special effects wizardry of Oscar winner Richard Edlund, brackets, Star Wars, and Industrial Light and Magic. They're really pushing the Spielberg aspect there. And the next point I'm coming to was actually a bone of contention in terms of there was actually legal action about this. But if you see the original trailer, and this is, I, I believe, I think I've seen it referred to as inter- the international trailer, which maybe it is, but I, I think it's the definitely the American teaser trailer. Because it's one of those kind of trailers that doesn't have any clips necessarily from the film, or very few clips, but it's different paranormal experts talking about what pol- a poltergeist is. And if you look at the font on that trailer, the font for a Steven Spielberg production and Poltergeist are the same size, whereas uh, Toby Hooper's name is the same size as Metron Golden Mayer. And even, if I'm not mistaken, even the some of the actors mentioned, Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nielsen and Beatrice Strait are slightly bigger than Toby. So you have this massive, like Spielberg's name is as big as the title. And then the actors are second, and then third, somewhere almost almost like small print in there is Toby's name. This was an issue that was taken with the Directors Guild of America actually taking legal action against MGM. I believe the initial request was for them to pay 200,000 in damages and for all trailers to be uh, recalled and uh, the, the, the style of the font and the size to be redone. But I think in the end, it just came down to um, $15,000 and the trailers as they were playing in New York and Cal- um, and Los Angeles. They were really taking advantage of them having Spielberg and really pushing him to the front. But then the poster that eventually came out was the rather minimalist There Here poster, where it's notably pulled back of the mention of Spielberg. And also around this time, there was the public letter, open letter from Spielberg wanting to clear up any misunderstandings about quotes from his in the press about Toby's position in the film. There's a lot of funny stuff going on there and also sorry something else i meant to before i came to the actual the actual ending of the film was in post-production toby handed in his cut spielberg 
oversaw the very final edit. Now, there's only small differences between the two. I, I can imagine that, to be honest, and, and Toby was happy with what Spielberg did. But this point here is very important when people state it feels like a Spielberg film. Because don't get me wrong, subject matter-wise, yeah, it does seem more like a Spielberg film than possibly a Toby Hooper film. But um, again, Toby was making this kind of film with this kind of producer. So he wasn't making what he had made before. He was doing something else. The content of story-wise of a nice family, because when you think about it, nearly all the, in fact, all of the families you've seen prior to this point in Toby's films are, are negative. They're <laughs> very um dark interpretations of family or um, depictions of family whereas this is actually a very wholesome nice depiction of a family and i think sometimes people can get hung up on that but i think that's again rather superficial reading but what is important jerry goldsmith did the score jerry goldsmith claims he never met toby at all during the film it was spielberg he went through that score which is a good score and i like it and it's it's not a fault but i think if the score was different and it wasn't that Goldsmith score with the cues as overseen by Spielberg and it had been Toby doing it, would it have necessarily the more overt Spielberg feel to it? Because the beats and the music and the melody and things, I don't know. I, I think that sounds more like a, a Spielberg film to me. So I, I reckon that, when people are talking about how it feels like a Spielberg film, that comes into it a lot as well. There was all these elements going on behind the scenes. There's these elements to do with the post-production of the film. There was the marketing aspect of it where, you know, the studio was more than happy to push the idea that it was a Spielberg film. And even if you look at a lot of interviews at the time with Spielberg, a lot of the time they are interviews where he is talking about two films. He's talking about, E.T. and he's talking about Poltergeist. And in a lot of the interviews, he is talking about them as if he is the creative force behind them. When you see any sort of press junket or any interview or whatever, you never hear it with the producer. They always want to hear it from the writer or the director or the actors, you know. Whereas in this case, they have a director who happens to be the most famous director and biggest box office pull in the world at the time producing a movie and they have him talking as if he's taken a uh, very strong authorship of it all of these elements put together are why that it is ultimately toby's film in that on the set spielberg took more of a strong firm organizational role in achieving what the two men devised prior to shooting that Toby was going to go for. Film fans love the idea of discovering something. I know I, I do. I love hearing like how what you know such and such really directed that film. Such and such just did it for the credit because uh, it didn't take credit for it because he couldn't because he was blacklisted or or he couldn't because of union regulations and again one of the stories was that oh no toby really did want to always direct this but um because he was working under contract with et and universal he couldn't do it or there was the uh, uh strike coming up and he couldn't do these two there's all these stories but they it was always intended that toby was going to make it there's a lot of uh people who just like to latch on to these things and, and try to divulge a mystery or try to 
pinpoint a mystery and what's going on when the two figures involved always claimed it was amicable. You know, Spielberg never really talked about it over the years at all. It's very um, overtly obvious on, say, the Blu-ray that came out of Poltergeist that the only extra on it is a documentary about paranormal activity. There's nothing actually about the making of the film. It was just such a contentious uh, situation. Um, he never really wanted to talk about it. And, and I feel that Toby's career suffered from it because that should have been a big like push for him. And instead, people th- were saying, well, he didn't really make it, though, did he? He was the stooge or something. That's why in kind of the, the pantheon of the 70s American horror filmmakers or maybe North American to include Cronenberg, I think he's somewhat slighted. He did have trouble getting gigs because after uh, Poltergeist, he did the three films for Canon. And then after that, he was doing, you know, TV episodes. He directed the pilot of Freddy's Nightmares. He directed an episode of The Equalizer. And into the 90s, there were a couple of films, but uh, there was uh, more TV movies. There was a lot of, there was pilots. There was, again, episodes um, of of a series you know he he really did kind of take a a bit of a beating i think on over that whole controversy that we are still discussing today so what's your plan for the book when's it going to come out at the moment i am quite busy doing several visual essays for different blu-ray releases that's taken up a lot of my time but i'm still doing my little bit of research for this Toby project. And to give you an example, during lockdown, I made a deal with uh, Mark Rantz, uh, who who was a friend of Toby's, who restored eggshells a few years ago, and also two of Toby's early short films, The Heisters and uh, Down Friday Street, which are two um, well, the heist is a lot of fun, but Down Friday Street is an absolutely amazing, wonderfully inventive, experimental film. I, I think it's incredible. And, and Eggshells as well has some amazing moments in it and certain elements in it that you can see maybe later in, in other films of his in certain plot points and certain visual ideas. So over the summer during lockdown, I actually did like a, um, via my the cinema website because obviously we couldn't show any films i actually did like a vod uh, service of of the early films and that was really interesting because i felt like i was really getting back into the 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 films because i was cutting trailers for them and uh i was analyzing the films again just while i was prepping text work you know summary you know uh synopsis work for the website or or whatever and even the tech up uh, uploading to get the films on VOD and things. So even if things seem to kind of dip for a bit, I always seem to somehow come back up to something. So um, I'm just working away at the moment. Uh, again, I think because of the whole COVID-19 situation, uh, my initial plans were pushed to the side, which was to actually make a proper dig uh, into really getting in, into this book. But at the moment, it's still going to be a bit slower. I'm still doing my research. I'm still going to quietly keep working on it. Tell me a little bit about these video essays. Who are you doing those for? I did my first video essay for uh, the new um, American Blu-ray company, Fun City Editions, which is uh, 
overseen by uh, Jonathan Hertzberg. Jonathan and myself have corresponded just chatting about different films, different actors, filmmakers, actresses uh, that we liked. And when he decided to go ahead and, and have this company, he contacted me and said, would you be interested in doing a video essay or some video essays because of my filmmaking work? He figured there might be some angle there. So the first one I've done one for is Alphabet City, the Amos Poe film, um, which came out back in September. And the uh, Fun City editions are kind of distributed with assist uh, with sort of involvement from vinegar syndrome it's not an offshot of vinegar vinegar syndrome which some people think but it's but they are involved in the distribution and sort of um some of the uh layout of the discs uh, the creation of the discs that kind of thing so they do have an involvement but 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 it's jonathan's uh baby and his company uh to get them out so that's the first disc and uh, i'm really happy with that the essay has a music score by gabby bam bam who has her band BB uh, uh, Barbecue Tea. And uh, we've been collaborating over the years. I did a music video for her. She scored two of my narrative short films. I thought she'd be a good fit for the music on Alphabet City because just for the logistics, uh, you can't necessarily on like a an officially legally um, authorized video essay uh, from a studio willy-nilly just remove music from one scene and put it in another and things like that it can just get a bit complicated so i just figured uh it'd just be easier and kind of unique and stylish and fitting to have a, a new score that suited the film put for this video essay the feedback so far has been good on that so i'm really happy to to have that out there and the second essay i have is from fun city editions as well and that's for a wonderful underrated gem from david green a british filmmaker called i start counting which was jenny agatha's uh, first major uh, film role and it's a wonderful film and it's a film that's been unavailable for a long time or if available via like crude heavily pixelated four is to three stretched out to 16 to nine copies on youtube and whatever seeing it in its proper 1.85 dimensions uh from the interpositive these film elements are like 49 50 years old i believe you know so the, it looks they look very strong and um under the circumstances and, and the film looks great and it's a wonderful movie and um hopefully one that will be given a second lease of life from this blu-ray and a reevaluation, and I would just hope that the video essay that I've put together with Gabby somehow adds something to the experience of viewing the film within the set of features. Chris, thank you so much for your time. This has been great talking with you. I'm so glad that we were able to finally do this. Yeah, and thank you for having me.
Christine, as I was watching the beginning of Poltergeist, I was reminded of the beginning of Firewalk with Me, which we've already talked about. That was not lost on me. I don't know if I ever, ever realized that. You know, I watched these all kind of out of order, so I actually started with the remake. They really get into some ghosts being carried through electricity or entities traveling through electricity a lot more explicitly in the remake. And I really wish that they had explored that more. They're showing power lines. They're sh- they're telling us it's jumping from light bulbs. To- and I mean, all that's there in the original, but I don't feel like it was as explicit. Like, look what's happening with, with this power transferred around. And man, I'm not, I don't, I didn't love the remake, but like, if that's one thing that I, on opportunity, I think it really missed was to, to really dig into that. Like, what does it look like in our modern world to have, have, you know, when we're all on devices, not to sound like an old woman, but when we're all looking at our phones, what is it like to have an entity travel into electronics and through electricity? Yeah, it's interesting. There was a discussion on uh, We Hate Movies recently. They were talking about The Ring, and they were talking about what is it now? They're still making Ring movies, but the idea of a VHS tape that gets passed around <laughs> is just not a thing anymore and i was even reading that uh i can't remember which version of the ring it was because there have been so many and this was a more recent one where you can download an app for the movie and then it'll make it look like ghosts have taken over your phone and i'm like if there's one thing i don't want is it ghosts to take over my phone thank you the doll's trying to kill me and the toaster's been laughing at me i like how subtle they are when it comes to the beginning of the original Poltergeist, and that they're giving us hints early on about what's going to happen, especially this whole idea of unseen forces are going to ruin your lives or are going to wreak havoc. This whole thing of the guy on the bicycle with all the beer and that the kids have their remote control cars and fuck him up and he spills the beer and smashes his nuts. And then the whole uh, TV war that goes on between Steven and the next door neighbor with the remote controls. This is interesting. I never really picked up on this whole idea of there being these unseen forces, i.e. modern conveniences or toys, and that they are going to be kind of playing into this, especially with television. You know, the first thing that we see is the television, and then the television is just ever-present. I mean, every single room in this house seems to have a television. I was surprised that the kids' rooms didn't have televisions, but there's one in the living room, there's one in the master bedroom, and there's even one in the kitchen. And I never really remembered Carol Ann turning on that TV or having that TV and turning it to static and like watching her friends through the static as she's sitting in the kitchen. I was like, oh, okay, this is good. Oh, honey, you're going to ruin your eyes. This is not good. Fast 80s parenting. Don't be so close to that television looking at static. Here, watch this war movie. As a child of the 80s, I can confirm. That's still another thing about this movie that I love. It, it embraces the technology that was kind of everywhere at that time. And in, in modern movies i love when characters use their cell phones and use their devices like in the plot instead of like oh it's broken or somebody threw it in the lake like a poltergeist doesn't swoop in and come through the tv and then break all the tvs or something it's it continues to be something that i mean we're 
we're all living with and, and they have to continue. Li- I, I just love that the way it embraces it and continues to use it in the story. It's not like a conduit. It is a plot point, And I, I appreciate that. So, hey, I don't know if you know this really good storytelling in this movie. It's probably top two movies of all time for me. Um, I am continuously impressed by the efficiency uh, that multiple different stories are being told. And, and I love it. And I think you hit on a really great point, which is that it's introducing television into a supernatural world and introducing the suburbs into an, a supernatural world, which we had never seen before that, I don't think. I, I feel like the, the kind of horror that Spielberg was playing with and Toby Cooper were playing with in this movie is akin to what Stephen King was doing at exactly the same time. Because before that, I feel like horror was still very much in the realm of the gothic. It really hadn't been introduced into middle-class America. I mean, it was really Stephen King who did that, who, you know, somehow injected horror into average Americans' lives at that time. And and I feel like this movie did that as well in, in a very significant way. And then did it at the highest possible level, because only somebody like Spielberg at that time could get a horror movie made at that price point. Poltergeist was a big movie. I mean, Alien maybe had a large budget, but I don't think, and The Shining, of course, had a large budget, but I don't think many horror films prior to that were given that kind of a movie treatment. And the technology that is being used to bring these images to the screen were at the highest possible level because they were being produced by the ILM. And and people just hadn't seen that before. The whole idea of moving horror into the suburbs was really brilliant. There is no dark old house in this. There is no creepy mansion where you have to spend the night in order to make $500,000 or anything like that. This is just a regular family going about doing their thing, not really you know, seeming to hurt anybody. The only thing that seems to come up that makes them different is that this was the first house in Cuesta Verde that they moved in during phase one. It seems like things really start to go to hell when Tweety dies and when they bury Tweety and then Tweety's grave gets dug up. We don't necessarily know that as Tweety's grave gets dug up, so do all these other graves get dug up. And that seems to really, you know, we've already seen the supernatural stuff happening, but that seems to really kick it up a notch is when Tweety's resting place gets disturbed. It seems like, well, fuck you to all the other dead people that are out here. I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious with that, but not really, because Tweety's death is the, I think it might be the only death that we see in the entire movie we don't see tweety die but tweety's dead and it almost gets flushed down the toilet and we could talk about hitchcock and the the hidden world of the toilet and all that as well but almost gets flushed down until carol ann ends up giving tweety a, a pharaoh's burial with here's something to eat here's a blanket here's something to that will make it smell nice then Robbie with his whole crass, when it decomposes, can we dig it up and look at its bones? And it's like, oh, kid, you're going to see a lot of bones before this is over. It's super analogous to the rest of the movie, obviously. But like, I feel like whether or not 
is is just a, a, a an adorable, sweet, empathetic, lovely child. That this is her friend that died, and she wants to make sure he's as comfortable as possible. Or she knows this is this little bird. I can speak to this little bird. This little bird is communicating with me through the through the ether. I don't I don't know. I tend to believe that she was just a lovely little girl that wanted to take care of her, her pet. But it really solidifies light in the movie she's sweet and beautiful and lovely and oh who wouldn't want a, a kid or a sister like that and then like oh that is also the reason why maybe she gets targeted yeah when she says tweety doesn't like that smell i never really picked up on that before as far as is she communing with the dead right now <laughs> i mean in either way you look at it it's still why not but also like that's the thing that a kid would say because this is my bird i know this bird that my bird doesn't like that part makes me cry still rewatching it. I was like, oh, it's just normal. I have something in my eye, but I know it's coming, but there's just something so innocent and sweet about it. That really, really uh, is, is unique and special in this movie, I think. And I love her little laugh line of, can I have a goldfish now? Like as soon as Tweety's in the ground. Because because that's authentic to a, a little child too. Like okay, done and dusted. Let's move on. <laughs> what can what can we do now? That's fun. Uh, I love it. It's very authentic. It, the the reactions and the dialogue of the children. Oftentimes, when you have obviously kids aren't going to write their own dialogue. When you have adults writing dialogue for children, it's sometimes what like a, a, a grown up would think a kid would say, not what a kid would say. And I, they're not just their dialogue, but the, all the children's reactions in this are so authentic to, to children. Like Robbie, I know we'll talk about it, but Robbie's relationship with the clown, like it's all very much what a kid would think and what would scare a kid. And and I think that's why you, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the world the movie creates because you're like, yeah, I would have thought that about that clown too. It's creepy. I feel like that scene, the family gathered where there is in a kind of actually in a Robert Altman way there are multiple stories that are overlaid with each other and dialogue that's overlaid with, with the, overlaid with each other and a sense of chaos and authenticity that is kind of the same scene that you see in Jaws and you see it in Close Encounters and you see it in Poltergeist and you see it in E.T. It's like he's remade the same scene in each movie brilliantly but it's the same scene. And that's why it, it indelibly feels like Spielberg. Like, it doesn't feel like Toby Hooper, because I've never seen that in any Toby Hooper film that preceded that, in any Toby Hooper film that followed it. It just feels like Spielberg. Yeah, when those kids are fighting around the table, I was just waiting for one of them to call another one penis breath, which always stuck to me as one of the most inappropriate lines in E.T. It just makes me cringe every time. The dialogue... And the performances are so nimble in this movie. And this is where I would believe, I think Toby Hooper gets good performances. Like, I believe that was him. It plays like a comedy. The rhythm, the cadence of the dialogue and the turns and the little subtle looks that they have to each other is effectively comedy. And it's beautifully played. And those actors are magnificent, every single one of them. Especially Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams. I, I really like Joe Beth Williams because I think playing a suburban mom has probably got to be one of the hardest parts that you could ever get. And she invests it with such emotion and authenticity and irreverence. I never understood why Joe Beth Williams didn't have a bigger career as an actress, maybe just because she was an actress and people don't write great parts for actors or actresses 
but she's amazing. Well, at some point she turned 40 and that was it. Yeah, there you go. It's so unfair. I think she's the heart of the movie because her connection with Caroline feels 100% authentic. And when she loses her daughter, you feel that loss. And when she feels her daughter, you believe that she feels her daughter. It's I, and she's amazing. Even in this, you know, I was looking at the sequel again, and both of them are really true. Those those two actors are just outstanding. And Craig T. Nelson, I don't know if you guys, I'd be curious to what, hear what you think, but, but he doesn't look like Harrison Ford, but he sounds like Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Yes, he, he just, has big Harrison high. Ford and He does. He absolutely does. And he, I wish he had ended up getting more Harrison Ford like roles because I think he's tremendous and very watchable and have that kind of like what Harrison Ford does that like grumpy, like disagreeable air, but like, Oh, he's, we like him. You want to hang out with him. He's, he's, he's nice. He'll be nice to me. That kind of, kind of energy. And I, I appreciate that. And yes, just to reiterate or agree with everything you just said, Joe Beth Williams is the absolute best thing about this movie. Phenomenal and amazing best mom every time i watch it i love my mom but i'm like oh joe beth williams is the best mom in this movie <laughs> she just has so much so much real emotion and it just i can imagine it must have been exhausting for her she just seems so raw all the time and so believable and and it really again another thing that helps you get invested in this story is just how real it seems to that character and that actress and i love her and i wish she had been in everything I love how female-centric this movie is. This whole idea of when the parapsychologists come in, it's, you know, the one woman parapsychologist and then the two younger guys, and the guys are just like the helpers. You know, she's the center of that relationship. After they have their initial exposure to the paranormal, the scene of... Diane with Robbie on her and then the Dr. Dr. Lesh, I think it is coming over and taking a drink. And it's like they're, it's like they're swapping stories before the next battle. It feels like a war movie in this point. Here it is. It's a calm before the storm. We're going to have this conversation. We're going to talk about what matters to us. And then we're going to go on with the rest of this movie. And then who saves Carol Ann? It's Diane. Who's there, you know, with her? Well, it's Dr. Lesh and then it's, it's Tangina. So it's like, okay, great. You know, it's this whole female centric thing. The guys are just there to basically carry the bags. That was not lost on young me. Yeah, I think that's probably why this has um, stayed one of my favorite movies. To see that scene you're talking about with Dr. Lesh and uh, Diane, to see two women, one of them an older woman, not talking about oh, boys, just it's some it's some Bechdel test stuff. Like they're just having a conversation, and you don't you don't see that now that often, but um, then especially, and it, it is very speaks to you even if you don't realize it like as as a young one watching genre movies the the how female it is and how powerful the females are in it is just i mean it's it's affecting and it it is it means a lot when you're little and you can see different aspects of femininity represented different age groups i appreciate it and when dr lesh comes in with her two helpers that's very much what insidious did with uh it's paranormal investigator and her two dudes that come in with her yeah and i like that too it's, it's a fun thing like i wish more more movies did that hey everybody steal from poltergeist for your modern horror movies 
And that's probably a good segue to Zelda Rubenstein. Oh, God, yeah. What a force of nature when she shows up in this movie. It's just, I, I'm so glad, because there's a little bit of awkwardness around her introduction as far as, so Lesh, at one point, she's like, hey, I have to go away. I'm taking the other doctor with me. I'm leaving uh, one of my dudes here. I'm leaving Ryan with you, but I'll come back and I'll come back with help. This is almost like that moment. The Native Americans are outside and they're shooting arrows at the house and like she's going to escape and come back with the cavalry. So the cavalry in this case is Zelda Rubenstein. Just amazing when she shows up. It's a brilliant maneuver because, let's face it, it's a one-location film. There's hardly any scenes outside of the immediate area of the house. There's maybe one scene where they go to the university. But that, I believe that's just about it. Then there's just the other scene with Mr. Teague when they go out and there's that beautiful matte painting of the cemetery. But effectively, it's a one-location movie. And I can tell you from experience, it's very difficult to write a three-act structure around one location and keep it interesting when Tangina shows up, the movie moves into another gear. Like the movie, and the movie needed to move into another gear. Otherwise, it, it was going to become repetitive. And then, of course, she's magnificent and unexpected and funny. And, you know, again, so American. But to me, that kind of, I, I don't even, maybe there's even a reference to the National Enquirer in the movie. I can't remember. But, um, but it's that. That kind of weird, crazy American spiritualism that is represented by her, that it's just so crazy and goofy. And yet, somehow, because she could have been ridiculous, they invest real depth in that character. And you, by the time she says this house is clean, she's kind of like a superhero. It's an extraordinary thing to do. These days, yeah, we've got the Long Island medium, and there are some other like popular mediums out there crossing over a show a few years ago. But in 1982, we still had Gene Dixon was still all over the place. We had mediums that were on TV, which I don't know if people remember just like how in I've talked about it, like how in the 70s, the world was just spiritually crazy, especially the United States was just fucking nuts when it came to like spiritualism and stuff. So that's probably when this parapsychology division got started. And of course, they know Tangina because she has this powerful psychic energy and they bring her in. I kind of like that we don't have to sit through the Dr. Lesh going to her and talking her into this and just she shows up and she's there and she's wonderful and I love that Stephen and Diane can't keep a straight face when she first shows up that he's making munchkin jokes about which side of the rainbow are we working all this kind of stuff and then when they finally when she does her stuff they quit laughing it's an amazing feat like believe me to have somebody who is physically like her to walk into that movie and for it not to like slip into camp or just become ridiculous or laughable is an extraordinary feat. I actually think the film is kind of magnificent in the way that it is tonally engineered. It is a very difficult thing to introduce the craziness, like <laughs> insanity that's in this film into a conventional environment like a suburb without it becoming ridiculous, without the movie becoming ridiculous. It has a very, very deft hand. It is a phenomenally difficult thing to do. And, and I know that because there are very few movies that have ever done it. And she's a perfect example of that, that somehow 
the film continues to escalate, it starts at a pretty high pitch. Like, <laughs> I don't know how, when does Robbie get eaten by the tree? Like it's probably only 30, 36 minutes in. Yeah. Right. And he's eaten by a tree. So where do you go from there? <laughs> from there? Yeah. It's amazing. That's a, that it continues to build. Sorry. And without killing no, anybody. No, I'm just going to agree with you. So I'm, I'm excited to agree with you because that is the thing I was screaming about watching it this time is that the F, is so perfect and I kept saying that how is the escalation perfect in this because I always forget you come out swinging it, it immediately launches into it we don't have to sit there for a half an hour and get to know this family it efficiently rolls out all these important details while doing this crazy stuff and and we're just in it with them and, it, and I think that helps but you're completely right the escalation is just pitch perfect throughout and it I think you said this earlier too Vincenzo it never gets repetitive and I am in awe of that, that ability to revisit sets and revisit rooms and the closet and the pool. But it does something new and heightens it every single time. And that, that that's just so impressive to me. Yeah, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. I, I mean, the movie is crazy. Like, it's unhinged. It doesn't it doesn't really make sense. Actually, I think it's a perfect example of a film that represents what the Alfred Hitchcock axiom that, you know, emotion over logic there is no poltergeist in the movie, really. <laughs> uh, look, I've got something well scary to lay on you, okay? So, uh, strange things are happening in this house. Furniture keeps disappearing. Plates keep, like, moving about the place. The table is shrinking. And last night, I found my guitar on the fire. It means we've got a poltergeist. <laughs> I mean, at least as I understand what a poltergeist is supposed to be, it's not, it's, I don't really, at the end of the day, I'm not even sure what was in the house, but I don't think it matters because you are so deeply connected to the family and the fate of this little girl, the, the Richard Matheson influence, which is Little Girl Lost, the Twilight Zone episode where the girl disappears. I'm sure for Spielberg, like that was the, his sort of aha moment because that is the emotional linchpin of the whole film. And because you are so invested in that emotional connection and the, the, the fact that this girl disappears, it becomes more than just a haunted house movie. Like, it becomes more than just a fun house ride. Talking about the pacing, I mean, so, so 36 minutes in is when the tree attacks. An hour and 33 minutes in, so just about an hour later, is when Tangina says, this house is clean. We still have a whole other half hour to go before this movie is over. It's amazing that they can make us buy it, that they are okay sticking around in this house for a little bit before they leave. There's also that weird line where they're talking about going out and staying at the Holiday Inn on I-74, and Dana says, oh yeah, I remember that place? Like she's been sleeping around out there? What the <laughs> fuck? I love Dana, and I wish she was in this movie 100% more than she is. She's she's so funny and so, I don't know, just like such a weird stereotype of a teenage uh, girl in the 80s. And I love the implications. Like, oh, yeah, like she hooked up with her boyfriend at the Holiday Inn. I'm like, good for you, Dana. <laughs> it's a nice Holiday Inn, too. It seems nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then to just pile in all that extra stuff in those next few minutes, the clown attack, the one that gets me there, well, there's that, what I call the entity attack, where she's almost raped in the bed and the spirits flipping her up on the walls. But when she goes to rescue the kids, 
the scariest moment for me in this whole movie is that big CG creature that's in front of the door that roars at her like the MGM lion and just scares the shit out of me when that thing just appears. And that is cut together so nicely that it just looks so real to me. I, I love that creature. I feel like the um, it's worth noting all the work that was done by ILM. There is a visual language to the way these things are represented that went deep into the culture. You can't really imagine Ghostbusters existing without Poltergeist because Poltergeist established a certain kind of lexicon of visual images for what ghosts are that then Ghostbusters lampooned. But if you didn't have Poltergeist, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have Ghostbusters. Ah, Craig Reardon is worth sorry worth noting because I think he's an amazing makeup effects artist and and really defined the look of those things. Not only do you have ILM doing those effects and then the makeup effects, but then you have just old school. We're going to turn this room upside down or turn it over, and that's how we're going to have all the shit fly into the closet. That's perfect. It's such, I can't say it's a simple effect because I've seen the rig that they have to do to move this freaking house around or room around. It's not a simple thing, but my God, is it an effective thing and so super scary. The whole thing of, of Carol Ann just holding on for dear life uh, as everything's being sucked into that closet. It's absolutely terrifying. Yes. And then the idea of introducing ectoplasm and a biological component to the spirit world which again is something I I don't think I had seen before. I don't I'm not sure I'm not sure where it comes from. Maybe it comes from actual documentation about these sort of incidents, but um feels to me like Poltergeist was one of the first movies that kind of gave um physicalized some of this stuff. Like when when Caroline and, and Diane return from the spirit world, they don't come out like in clean clothes. They come out covered in placenta. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, it is a total rebirth moment. Yeah, and even the rope is the umbilical cord. Right. It is a very physical kind of thing. Like, it is, that's a big innovation. You know, in the mythology and the, and the, and the, the kind of imagery that we see associated with this genre, that's a pretty big step forward. I want to say that ectoplasm goes back to the early days of mediums, like in the turn of the century, where they would conjure ectoplasm. And I don't know what it was necessarily made out of, but they would also like form it into the faces of the loved ones that people were trying to talk to. There was ectoplasm back then, but I don't know if it was the same slime that, um, <laughs> that Egon likes to collect. <laughs> I collect spores, molds, and fungus. Oh yeah, ectoplasm has been around. In like, like Victorian photography as well, the, like the the images of like organic matter floating out, out of people's fingers and hands to represent some kind of conjuring of a of a spirit or, or connecting with the spirit. But in and you could be like, oh well, he you know they were just riffing on that. But it escalates. Like it's not just that that matter that looks like afterbirth it's when when the closet opens up again that's all organic matter it looks like the inside of a pumpkin and that like tentacle comes out so it like it takes that idea and heightens it even more and that again i think is a genius way to keep it from feeling repetitive well the closet's back but it's not it's it's completely different than what you remember it's even more awful now it's like a big mouth that's trying to suck you in it's, it's so scary because it's like what can't this entity do 
it's showing just like flashes of light and now it's organic matter. Where, where is it conjuring this from? It's, it's very interesting. And I think that protoplasm is also on Robbie when he gets pulled out of the tree's mouth. Cause he, he, he definitely gets scraped up quite a bit. And I think on his nose, he scraped up, but he does have goop on him and it's like, okay, I guess this is the same stuff. And then, yeah, they are just absolutely covered with it. And you're right. It's such a rebirth. And then even putting them in the tub and having them reawaken by wiping off the, the babies, basically, it's just, it's quite a, a nice scene. I did notice too. And I'm, I'm curious if the ghosts were offended because Diane gets that streak of gray in her hair and then she goes to color it the night before they leave. And it seems like hell really breaks loose when she gets into the bed and is coloring her hair like you know hey we gave that to you don't 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 throw your nose up at our bonnie rate white stripe for you i liked her elsa lancaster brighter frankenstein stripes right i was sorry to see them go yeah she would have had a great costume come halloween time the playfulness of the movie is really really wonderful i feel like and i don't want to be too hard on the remake because i think there were there was some really fine filmmaking in it but that film was just so dour you know, I watched both films in a short amount of time, both of them. The first movie is just so full of life. Like, it, it is it is such a playful movie. You feel, I don't know what it was like making that movie. It was probably horrible. <laughs> but it feels like it was fun. Like, it feels like the people making it were just, you can feel the energy that's going into it. It is such a, and, it, and again, it's a Spielbergian thing. And particularly of that time, I feel like. It was exploding with ideas. There are so many things going on all the time, like on every level, whether it's the cinematography with the incredible lighting that they did, like in the closet, that whole lighting effect, which I guess they used probably a million fish tanks full of water and, I don't know, dark lights or like, or, you know, just the choreography of the first two minutes of the movie with the guy on the bike and the race cars, the remote race cars uh, knocking him off the bike. It is the movie is just exploding with youthful energy, the youthful filmmaking energy. It is, a, it is, and the performances in the, in the same way too. It is a very lively film, unique in that way. Like in the horror genre, I don't think there are a lot of films that, you know, maybe Sam Raimi kind of goes to that place as well, where you just feel the, you feel the, you actually feel the pleasure that the filmmaker is having in making this movie. And then, and then, therefore, it's fun to watch. This film has that in space. I was surprised at some of the laugh lines that I forgot were there when Tangina is going to save Carol Ann and Diane insists on her being the one. And she's like, you've never done this before. I know neither have you. And then Tangina's like, yeah, okay, you go. <laughs> and it's like, this is one of the most tense moments of the film. And they throw a laugh line in there. Totally. Which, of course, reminds me of Salah in Raiders of the Lost Ark saying, ask Sherry Dangerous, you go first. Well, and then all of those corpses that are popping out, like literally popping out and, and shooting out of the ground. And especially when Diana or Diane is in the pool with all of those corpses, I'm just like, okay, yeah, I, I just saw poor Marion go through this, but this is even more horrific for me. When she slides back into the pool. That's one of my favorite moments. I really, you know, it just, and I, you know, there's a little bit of like a naughty boy kind of thing. I guess famously Spielberg tortured his sisters playing practical jokes. And you kind of feel that in this movie. Like, it's 
feel like he's torturing this poor actress by sliding her back into the pool of corpses, which I guess were real skeletons. I am mildly terrified still, even though like the the coffins popping out are kind of funny looking, like the the veracity with which they they get thrown from the ground, but it's still scary. I don't know, and and there's an I think there's an earnestness to this movie that um I think is lacking in a lot of horror. Um, I, for some reason, uh, horror is often approached like. I don't know, a certain level of like meanness or um, just like pessimism. And there's something really earnest and hopeful about this. And I think that's what makes it continues to make it unique. That is kind of something that was missing from the remake was it, 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 I didn't root. For, I didn't want to root for anybody, but I, I root for every character in this, even if maybe, oh, they made a choice I wouldn't have made or maybe. Maybe Steven could have been a little bit less harsh with Tangina about, like, I, I get why he did it in the moment, because the movie made me believe all the characters. And I appreciate that because it, it, it's, it's not easy to do, because if it was, you'd see it more often. Let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up is Robbie Freeling himself, Mr. Oliver Robbins. This is the second part of the interview that I did with him. For the first part, we discussed his latest film, Celebrity Crush. I'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes. And after that, we'll hear from the co-writer of Poltergeist and the co-writer-producer of Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, Mark Victor, and you'll hear both of those after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 3. The Doctor Who Method Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance, and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I am very curious how you decided to get into the business. What made you decide to want to be an actor? 
I was living in New York City at the time with my parents, and obviously I wasn't on my own. And, you know, I slowly matured. I was watching kids on TV, and at that time, you really didn't have cable. You had, like, 12 stations. So I used to watch, like, Brady Bunch and all these shows, and I was seeing the kids on that. And I was like, you know, I could do this, but I was really young at the time. And then my parents moved to California, and I tell them again, I say, you know, I like to act in movies, and I thought I was really kind of joking it. After I talked about it so many times, my parents said, okay, we'll put you in a commercial workshop class. And so finally I was in the class, the end of the class, my parents thought it would just end. But instead, the teacher was like, you know, it was run by this teacher named Sheila Manning. She was a, like a top casting agent at the time. And she's, you know, Oliver's pretty good. You know, he could do this professionally if you guys want it. And my parents were like, well, my parents are pretty conservative. And my mom didn't want me to be involved with that. And my dad thought that, you know, child acting was one step above child pornography. And they didn't know anything really about the entertainment industry. My dad was from Wall Street. My mom was a fashion editor on, you know, in Manhattan. So I persuaded them. I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like that. So they called the casting person up and they introduced me to a couple of agents. I remember I, I uh, was introduced to one agent it called Herb Cannon. At the time, they were, I guess, like the top child acting agency. They sent me on my very first audition. Like I met them that day, and they're like, Oliver, there's an audition for like a, a pizza commercial. Do you want to go? And I'm like, um, okay, why not? i never been on an ad before. And I got there, and they said to me, Oliver, here, we want you to pretend like this pizza is the most delicious thing you've ever had in your life. Meanwhile, it was like this cold, horrible, like day-old pizza in this guy's, in this guy's office. I mean, and all the producers and the director were there. And I think I gave like, the worst acting I'd like ever done in my life. But I'm really glad <laughs> I'm really glad that happened because then from that point on I learned what I really needed to do and, and I got over my stage fright. Well actually I nearly never got over my stage fright, but I learned kind of what you need to do on these auditions. So that's how I, I kinda of got into acting. So what year was that? How old were you? I was I think I was like eight and a half years old, right around that age. So I was really young though too. So what were those early gigs like? Were you just doing a lot of commercials? I'd only done a couple at the time when I did Poltergeist. My very first commercial was this fertilizer commercial. And you're going to laugh. I, my star of the commercial who starred with me was the man who wrote Stand By Me, among another movie called Starman. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, now and then would act in commercials to kind of pay the bills. So he was a, a writer who hadn't quite, you know, sold his scripts yet. And so it just turned out that Ray Gideon, was my dad in this ad for a fertilizer commercial. It's a really small world, and it was it was fun to do. And, and that kind of got me into filmmaking indirectly because I wasn't hitting my mark. I didn't know what I was doing, and I really didn't understand what the camera, what the purpose of the real camera was. I knew it recorded my image, but that was pretty much it. And I wasn't hitting my mark, and, and the director said to me, he says, Oliver, Oliver. And he was a really wonderful, nice man. He could have yelled at me, which happened to be like later in my life. I'm glad it didn't happen then, or otherwise my acting career might have just ended at that point. He said, Oliver, I want you to come around to my side of the camera, look through the camera, and I want you to see what I'm seeing. And I need you to hit, my, hit your mark. And the mark is where the camera's going to be in focus. So if you don't hit that, we don't see you. So I totally clicked after I saw that. And I said, oh, my God, I, I love looking through the camera. I like planning the shot. And that kind of started a, a bit of bug in me. And I, I kind of wanted to just continue after that. As you're going to school, are you then acting in plays? Because obviously you're not supporting your family. They're not turning you out to be the breadwinner or anything. But how are you supporting your passion, I suppose? 
I did both. I went on so many auditions growing up. I didn't, you know, it's funny. People think you get a lot of the parts and you think just because you're in Poltergeist, you'd get every part you went for. When in fact, you really didn't. I went out for hundreds of roles and, you know, I had a lot of competition and it come really close on a lot of movies that we all know. And for me, you know, I, I really wasn't doing it just to get the part. I just loved going to auditions and I had a lot of friends. I saw them during the auditions. And it really, at that time, you know, actor, at least child actors, I'm not sure if it's really like this today so much. It was a very small, close-knit world, and we didn't hate each other. It wasn't like, you got that part and I did it, and I'm angry at you. We all just did what we did, and we loved doing it, and we understood that it wasn't personal, that filmmakers were looking for a specific kind of role and a personality to go with that role. I did a lot of acting in high school, in elementary school. I even acted, I remember right after the Poltergeist, believe it or not, I acted in Snow White with my, like, my fifth-grade class. And I grew up in Los Angeles, and, you know, a lot of my peers were professional child actors. So you, you got some good good actors. You know, I went to a high school named Oakwood High, and Oakwood churned out a lot of talented, you know, actors and filmmakers. I, I went to school with Carney Wilson and, you know, Fleetwood Mac's daughter and, and all these people uh, who went on to become professional adult actors. Adam Goldberg, I acted in a play with him in high school. I just loved acting and anything I could really act in. And even if I didn't get the biggest part, which I most likely didn't, because honestly, there was always someone better than me for that role. I just liked working as a team, and I just love the camaraderie of theater. So help me out as far as what comes first, because I know things are shot way before they can be released a lot of times. So because in 1982, there were two TV movies that came out. There was Airplane 2 and Poltergeist that came out. What came first for you? First, it was Poltergeist, and we shot that. And that came out, I believe, like June 4th, 1982, but we shot it like a year before because it takes that long, you know, to make a film, put it through post-production. So that was the first thing I did. And then I think I did, I think I did right after that. I think I did Airplane 2. It was like immediately after. And I just loved Airplane so much. I love that. And all my friends loved it. And when they announced they were going to do Airplane 2, I told my agent, are there any parts in there for me? And lo and behold, there was. And I got to, and I went into the audition and it, I was really lucky. They loved me. And they're like, Oliver, we love you to be in Airplane too. And that was just such a joy to make that. Everyone was so nice on that set to me. Um, everyone from Julie Haggerty to Robert Hayes. I've learned this later in life. A lot of adult actors are actually intimidated by, you know, by two things. I think W. Field said it. They're intimidated by children, child actors, and animals because they can really steal the scene. And, <laughs> and, and I learned that actually was true for a lot of actors. They're kind of scared of those two kinds of people. Um, and I consider animals to be people too. So on that set, they just embraced me and I had a blast and they, you know, let me add lib lines and I just had a great time and I wasn't screaming, which was like a really nice break from Poltergeist. It was all I did on that movie. was I was terrified of something. And in Airplane 2, I got to take pies in the face and joke around and be over the top and be a bigger than life kind of person and not played very real. Did they shoot that in California? Yes, they shot it at Paramount. And that was a really fun lot to be on. It was like old fashioned studio and they gave me a bicycle and I rode my bike around. Yeah, and they actually had an arcade, a mini arcade at Paramount. And at lunch, as a kid, I was like 10 years old, and this is the 80s, early 80s, I played a game called Zaxxon every day at lunch. That was like my ritual. I'd go to lunch, and then I'd play Zaxxon. You know, a kid is like, today would be like, well, what's really the big deal? We can play them on our phone. Well, the only way you could play an arcade game then was on an arcade. And meanwhile, I'm in school, and you would never get to do that during you know, your school day. But instead, I was able to play Zaxxon. That was kind of like the highlight of my time on Airplane 2. I know Ken Finkelman's 
based more in Toronto, at least that's where he's at today. So I wasn't sure if this was in the Hollywood North days or still everything was being shot in California. So yeah, Ken was so much a wonderful man. He was so kind to me too. And you know, honestly, I wasn't great at memorizing lines. I'm not even great today memorizing lines. And if Paramount, you had to know your lines to a T. And I remember the script supervisor, like you'd yell at me if I missed even like a like an article of any kind. So Ken would defend me. He said, no, no, calm down, dude. Calm down. It's okay. It's okay. Ten years old. So, yeah, Ken was just a wonderful man. I must remember it was really difficult for him on that show because he was he was just consistently fighting the studio. The studio wanted to do a, a complete redo, as they always do, of the original. And he had all these original ideas and all these great jokes. So I remember he spent so much time up in the boardroom, like, fighting for what he believed in. And it kind of taught me because I, I saw him once come back to set. And I said, Ken, you know, what's, what's wrong in, you know, my 10 year old style way. And he said, oh, nothing all over. And I could see that he was upset and I was intuitive to that. And it showed me, you know, if you have a vision, you have an idea, a lot of people aren't going to see it. They're never going to see it. And a lot of people might hate what you're doing, but if you believe in it, you got to fight for it. And that's what I learned at that, at that very young age with Ken. So tell me a little bit more about your experience on Poltergeist. You said that you were screaming all the time. And the more I think about it, poor Robbie Freeling, he's abused consistently <laughs> through that. I mean, at least Carol Ann gets to escape and go through the TV. Well, people always ask me, he said, Oliver, were you terrified when you were doing Poltergeist? Everything was so scary in that movie, especially for then. And I tell them, I said, no, and they're, and they're really shocked. And I explain, you know, when you shoot a movie, especially over several months, it's completely shot out of order. And it's all special effects. And this is before it even we could even see things immediately. There was there were no digital effects. We were at the point where you know it was shot out of order, and they, they asked, and I said, I said Toby, who's the director, I said Toby, what am I streaming at? Like, what am I so scared of? And he said, we don't know yet, but Ion's going to put it in, and it's the scariest thing you could possibly think of. So I just thought back to my childhood, and oh, I believe I grew up in this like haunted townhouse in New York City when I was a little boy. So I I kind of tapped into those fears. And, you know, I wasn't afraid at all on set. As a matter of fact, it was the best time I ever had. It was like camp because Frank Marshall, the producer, and Kathleen Kennedy and Toby and Steven, they read it such a fun set for me. And like, and I remember like Frank Marshall would say, Oliver, we're going to, we're getting, we're going to go back to MGM. You're going to play with all these toys. You're going to have, you're going to have the best time. And, and Frank and Kathleen, you know, were such sweethearts and so kind to me. I mean, it's such a wonderful production. I think, I think all of Steven's team were like amazing and such really, really nice people. And I didn't realize how special those crew people on that set was until I, you know, was on other movies where things were a little more tense. And I'm just so glad and I was so privileged to get the opportunity to work on my first film with those people. These days, I hear a lot of actors talk about how they're shot against a green screen and they're acting against tennis balls. I know you weren't shot against a green screen, but what were you reacting to? They had sticks. They literally were standing there on set. And like when we see, when we see the ghost coming down the stairs or like, like, for instance, there's one scene everyone might remember where we first see, you know, they video recorded all the ghosts coming down the stairs. And we rushed to the video monitors and we're looking at the monitors like, who are they? Who are those people? We're looking like in boxes. We're not looking at anything, you know, and then they did an insert, you know, we do the reverse shot and we see them walking down, you know, the stairs and I go. So it was always like that. We were always looking at pretty much nothing. They would just give us an eyeline and they see that piece of dirt on the wall or that a piece of tape. Well, that's your eyeline, guys. And the ghost is there. And then the ghost is going to go to the right. So just look six inches to your right and look back. So that's the kind of thing. They'd always give us direction like that. 
that's pretty much what we were looking at. Uh, we weren't, it wasn't at the point where you could actually do an entire green screen. We had blue screen on Poltergeist 2 when we were in the Ashton Dimension. But, you know, CGI and a lot of these digital effects were not around really quite yet in the mid-80s. Tell me a little bit, how did they do the tree effect for you? It was such an interesting process, and it was challenging in a lot of ways because you have to remember, they did not have CGI at all. So it all had to be practical effects. Um, they might have had a few opticals they threw in, the, you know, rotoscopes and some things out. But they, what they did is they had five different trees, like one tree for the arms. So you know the shot where um, a tree's coming in, and it looks like it grabs me and takes me out. So you have that tree. And then you have a tree where it's eating me. And all that was, that was the least, uh, the lowest common denominator of special effect you can think of. It was just me on a platform pretending to be eaten, pulling myself in. So the special effect really there was just the tree, uh, you know, set, and me acting, pretending to be eaten. And then you had the big tree, you know, the tree, the, the far shot. And then you had, I think you had, and then you had another couple of little angles of the tree. And so basically, it was two weeks on various sets on stages at MGM. And that was really how they did the whole sequence. So it was all practical. And I think, you know, because it is practical, it, it actually looks more real than, you know, than if they had CGI. Because some of the, you know, let's face it, a lot of the CGI I do today kind of looks like a video game. You said that you were tired of screaming, and I, I have to ask, did they bring you back in to loop a lot of your screaming, or was that shot on the stage? The scenes where we're just sitting there talking, we shot them on the soundstage, so a lot of that did not have to be ADR. You know, maybe a little, maybe there was some production sound that wasn't perfect. For the most part, I don't think those are really ADRs, I remember. Um, but every one of the screaming scenes, all of those scenes were adr I mean, everything. And I think if you're in a big action movie or a special effect movie, you're going to be ADR in most of your lines because there's no way you can save the production for that. The production simply becomes a guide track so you can kind of get back to that moment um, when you are doing ADR. When it came to the sequel, was that pretty much a given or had you already been signed up for, uh, was that part of your contract that if there's a sequel made, you're part of it? No, you know, there was no discussion about a sequel. I think when we originally did the first movie, while we were shooting the movie, People thought, oh, my God, these dailies are amazing. And people really began to understand this film might have a light of some kind, and people might like it. So then people on set half-jokingly were saying, well, get ready for the sequel one day. Even a big studio movie, you have no idea if there's ever going to be a sequel. You don't even know if it's going to be success. You don't even know if people are going to like it. Otherwise, I guess every movie the studio makes would be a, be a blockbuster. So not until like the film came out, and they waited a little bit of time to actually do it. So I got a call, like, I guess, like a year or two later, and they said, hey, we're going to be doing a sequel. Do you want to be in it all? I'm like, sure. I was actually a little, you know, hesitant. They had me come to the studio, and they said, okay, we have this vision for this scene, Oliver. And I said, okay, what is it? And they knew. I looked in them in the eye, and I could tell that it was something they thought that I might not like. And they were right. They wanted to cover my body entirely with bees. I'm not joking. I mean, like, head to toe in bees, because they wanted to do a sequence where the bees were actually attacking me. And so I said, no way, not doing it, can't do it. And I said, don't, don't say no yet, Oliver. And remember, at this time, I'm like a precocious 14, 15 year old kid. So they had me come back to the studio and they actually had a, a, bree, a, a bee trainer guy, like a bee wrangler. And in Hollywood, they have those kind of people. They said, look, we have, we can train the bees. The bees will, you know, um, will take commands and the bees will be on top of you, Oliver, but don't worry. Because when we get, when the trainer gives the command, the wrangler gives the command, the bees will jump off you. And I said, okay. I, I was really precocious. I said, okay, seeing is believing. I, I want to see a trained bee. 
So they actually did. They actually brought me into the production office and they sat me down and they, this guy brought in this like tray of bees. And meanwhile, of course, I'm terrified of bees. I, I like wildly alert to them too. And he takes a bee out and he's like, look, I'm going to give it a command and it'll jump off. He tried that. It didn't follow the command. The bee, it, it, the bee totally ignored him. I said, okay, well, there it goes. I, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing the bee scene. But, you know, as a result of that, and this is really true about filmmaking, filmmakers are forced to go, okay, what are we going to do? So they came up with the idea of the braces. Braces are much more in tune to my character, kid going through puberty, and everyone can identify with braces far more than they can ever identify with bees. Because that's, you know, it's cool with the bees attacking me, but at the same time, it's pretty generic, and it has enough, it's not character-driven at this point. So the braces, that's how that scene came about. How was that revisiting that character and especially those other actors that you had gotten so close with? Like you said, it was like summer camp. How was it going back to camp four years later? It was like we just went back in time and we went back to that moment. It was like nothing had really changed. We got along so well. And I learned, you know, as a filmmaker later in life, that's not always the case. A lot of actors, to say the least, don't like acting with each other on screen or they're just tolerating one another. We love each other. And, you know, Joe Beth Williams was a mom to me. And Craig T. Nelson was so cool and calm and collect. And he was just so funny. And, you know, we had Michael Grace and Mark Victor, who had worked with Steven on the original draft of the script. And they wrote the draft of the second one. They were just cool, nice guys. So everyone in that production was, was wonderful. Unfortunately, the director was, you know, was under duress at that time. So I really didn't get a good understanding of his true capabilities, um, Brian Gibson. And as a movie maker myself now, I understood you can't really judge someone simply on one movie or just, you know, you don't understand the circumstances they're, they're under. And I learned later that, you know, the studio was under pressure at MGM to actually sell the studio. And they actually were thinking of actually canceling the production halfway through. So, you know, Brian Gibson, he was completely under the gun. I mean, the entire time. So he was probably under so much duress, you know, that I can't even imagine. I'm sure it aged him. So it made him hard. And meanwhile, I'm this precocious, obnoxious American kid. He's British. And I told him what I thought half the time. And I don't think he was quite used to that. I think he got used to that later in life of working with other American actors. I never fall in line. I fight him and I question everything. So I guess I was kind of trouble as a kid, but at the same time, I did that on Poltergeist, and they loved it, and it really was like a team effort. That it was a, kind of a, a little bit of a different dynamic on Poltergeist too. Did they ask you back for Poltergeist three? No, they never did. I think I was a troublemaker. That's why. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. I think it was really due to budget. I don't think anyone was really asked back on that. And the director, I, I've never seen it. I know I should, but but I understand he did a great job with all of the practical effects and they didn't have a lot of money. And as a movie maker name, I really appreciate that when you have the limited resources and a very fast schedule, he really did some, you know, highly creative things. My understanding. Thanks again to Oliver Robbins for taking the time to talk again. You can hear the other part of our conversation over at www.projectionboothpodcast.com. Up next, we'll hear from Mark Victor about his work on Poltergeist and about his earlier days in show business. I was actually practicing law, which actually taught me how to write and how to leave clues. And I had a great professor who uh, told me once, you know, you're writing a brief, but the judge is he's getting in bed at night and uh, after a couple of drinks. So you better say what you got to say in a uh, compelling manner, which applies to all writing of anything, but I took that to heart. I started uh, writing with a writing partner who had done uh, a rewrite on a 
TV show. And then he came out to where I was practicing law and had me write with him. So I wrote a Beretta and a Starsky and Hutch was really sort of the first full thing way back when I was uh, 22 or something. I don't know. Then we wrote a script on spec and we were uh, were sort of recognized as talent. It got read around the town. We called it Arctic Rampage. It turned into a movie called Death Hunt with uh, Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin and Angie Dickinson. And so that was pretty exciting. Uh, And then the scripts we had written, a couple on spec and movies, Spielberg uh, read them and asked to meet with us. So we did something. We had written a comedy called Turn Left or Die that he loved. It was about air traffic controllers. And so we were trying to find something to do together. And at first he wanted us to do uh, a guy named Joe, which we didn't really want to do. He was talking about a ghost movie. We said, well, we'd rather write a ghost movie. And so that's how that evolved. Can you tell me a little bit about your writing partner? Is it Michael Grace? Is that how you say it? Yeah. I read a a little thing that he wrote for a book uh, about screenwriters, and it sounds like he might have been the the id to your superego. He seemed like kind of a wild child. Yeah, that was a book a long time ago. I think I got asked to write a chapter and never did it. I would have to get the content of it, but um, I would say he he brought some different emotions to the table, if that's a fair way of saying that. I can't believe you're out there practicing law and then move into the screenplay and writing business. Well, I wrote something after college and before law that kind of got my mind high. Before that, I had, I'd been at sort of this jock getting me into college and then the law school kind of got my mind going. But the year before law school, I went and wrote something on uh, some island, in a remote island in the Caribbean. That got my mind high. I kind of liked the process. So I figured they were negotiating to make me a partner. And I was thinking, well, if I do that, I'll be doing that the rest of my life. So I might as well give this a try now. So I took my, uh, I hate to say this as an example, but uh, my wife and six-week-old baby and uh, left the practice of law and drove to L.A. That is incredible that you just had that chutzpah to do that. Or stupidity. You could call it whatever you want. <laughs> That's what happened. So when you meet with Steven Spielberg and he's pitching these things, you know, what would eventually become Always, and then talking about ghost stories, I mean, how formed was that idea when you guys initially started talking? Well, initially he was talking to um, Kubrick, The uh, the Shining, and Kubrick and he sort of couldn't agree on uh, writing credits or how it would be done. He came to us and see if we wanted to write it. And it wasn't very formed at all. You know, we sat down and started doing um, note cards for scenes and, uh, you know, doing a lot of research. Uh, Stephen's idea was, you know, he wanted to do a suburban ghost story. So that was sort of a, you know, more of a general thing. I don't know. I guess that was the genesis. 
So how does the the story finally start to form into what we know now as poltergeist? Well, we adopted a uh, a writing method that I think was kind of fun and different. We would uh, do research on cards, and then if we had scenes we liked, we would pin them up on a wall, and we would color code them. So the most intense scenes were in red, uh, the least intense were in white, and you could actually stand back from the wall and see your movie. If it's white a really long time, you know it's going to be boring. And if it's uh, red forever, you're not getting uh, some breaths in there. Um, that was sort of the, uh, I think, the first time we had tried doing it that way. And it worked out very well. And that scene started coming about, et cetera, et cetera. So is it the two of you working together primarily and then Spielberg checks in? Or how does that because I think all three of your names are on the screenplay. How did you actually collaborate with him? Well, there was a um, a collaboration agreement. So the credit was sort of predetermined, so to speak. And we would meet occasionally and, you know, run stuff by Stephen. And, you know, he had his own ideas and et cetera, you know, what he wanted to do. I think at the beginning we were willing to be a little more vicious than he was. We wanted to kill somebody. He didn't want to kill anybody. Uh, then he said you could kill one person and, you know, joking around, we said, well, what about the little girl? <laughs> the family is so important to that film. Did you model him off of anybody that you knew or did you just say this is going to be the configuration of this family? There's a familiarity to it and everybody has little things they grew up on. That scared them. You know, I remember a tree outside uh, my window that would, you know, take shapes at night. The family itself, you'll probably find this in hindsight being a little bit strange. I think it was the first movie ever done where the parents were normal suburban parents where they were shown smoking pot which I don't think I'd, we'd ever seen in a movie. A lot of things we thought we were doing as a first now don't exist. You know, the TV uh, ended with the national anthem and went off the air. Well, you know, when we were growing up, that's how the channels ended at like midnight. You know, there are just all these things now that kind of stick out. But the family was just treated as sort of... Uh, uh, normal people with a good relationship. There wasn't a uh, psychological issue related to it. Perhaps in the sequel, we dug into that more because uh, uh, Craig and Joe Beth were signed, so we spent a fair amount of time interviewing them, and Craig had just come off uh, spending a lot of time on an Indian thing, and Joe Beth had lost her mother, and I think you'll find all those character ideas and traits in the uh, in Poltergeist 2. The thing about the pot always surprised me, especially because I'm trying to think, this was 82 when the movie came out, and I think Nancy Reagan had declared her war on drugs at that point, because usually people that took drugs in movies were really punished at that point. I do remember some flack um, because it was a PG rating. And there were some parents, I think, that were, I uh, got a couple letters, upset that it was too scary for PG. But if you look at the movie, there's really um, 
There's no nudity. There's really no profanity, almost. The first quarter or third is almost a comedy, you know, with the family discovering the stuff and playing around. That was, I think, more of the focus of the flack. We didn't, uh, I don't recall anything about the drug part. It might have been there, but, you know, it's not like I'm, uh, this is fresh in my mind. I'm pretty surprised that it was a a well-put-together family as far as there being a father figure there, because I know so many of Stephen's films don't have father figures to them. Yeah, you know, I didn't uh, notice that, but um, we're doing a family. Things go one of two ways that I've seen, which is after you're done writing, they shake your hand, send you on your way, and off you go, or you manage to stick around, hey, do some rewrites, we're there on the set, and I'm curious which way things went for you. Uh, you mean, do they uh, trip you and uh, hit you from behind on your way out the door? In general, what you're going to find is directors don't, you know, and often producers don't seem to want to have the writers around on set or when they're done because I think there's a fear that your ideas may conflict with theirs, whatever they may be. We certainly didn't have that on Poltergeist 2 at all. They kept using us for rewrites. On Poltergeist 1, we were on strike, uh, the writer's guild. So we're in this odd position of, uh, I guess, striking while the movie was shooting. So we're only on set uh, once or twice. You know, Stephen's a, uh, a sufficient writer, and, you know, so it wasn't like, uh, someone was saying, we've got to have you here, but we couldn't be there even if we wanted to. We didn't get the chance to get, you know, fully beaten up. Yeah, I mean, meaning that the strike took it out of our hands. We weren't allowed to write at a certain point. When the movie came out, was it pretty similar to what you had turned in for your last draft? The movie was better than I expected, and my experiences usually they're worse. When you're writing and you're talking about special effects and the monster and this, and it comes out of the thing, <laughs> at that point, there were a lot of movies like that. You didn't know how it would look. So I would, I really give the um, production a, a lot of credit. I think that picture probably came out better than we had hoped for. I couldn't really tell, so I didn't have a high, you know, an expectation. Um, there were some things that were written that I thought might look corny or goofy. You know, I was afraid of that Stephen would say, no, they weren't, you know, so we got to trust that. But I mean, you know, the bodies coming out of the swimming pool and shooting up. In my mind, I'm going, uh, boy, that could really look cokey. And so I thought they did a uh, terrific job. How soon after the first one came out was there talk of doing a sequel? You know, I don't remember I do remember uh, we were going to write something else. We were going to actually going to write Great Balls of Fire, Jerry Lee Lewis. We'd been working on that, and then they came in and offered us to write and produce the sequel. We hadn't produced anything yet, so we said we'd do it, and that took up from writing it, seeing it through production, probably almost you know two years of our lives. How was that being a producer, and how did those uh, duties change for you? Well, uh, we enjoyed it. You know, we didn't find it. It was all novelty uh, for us. So 
so we were able to, you know, Craig would want to try a line because we we're writers. We could go, yeah, uh, Brian Gibson. It was very collaborative, and we enjoyed that. It was a uh, very sort of lighthearted, fun set. I think people enjoyed that part. I guess my funny part is we drove to the lot the first day. We're in our 20s. We're driving to the lot. I mean, on location. And they have the, uh, you know, the arrows of where, you know, parking down here. We'll drive you in, you know, six or seven in the morning. And I remember the first day I rolled down the window, traffic guy, and I said, uh, well, where should we park? And he said, well, who are you? And we said, well, we're the producers. And he said, well, you can park wherever the fuck you want. <laughs> and so <laughs> we we rolled up the window and looked at each other and said, well, all right then. We've been very collaborative because you're right with each other. So we weren't, I guess we weren't in the normal bully mode um, that you might find with some people. That was a uh, terrific experience. We sure learned a lot in the push to being on time and on budget. We certainly um, didn't spend money like other producers. We just had figured we were being paid. So I, I don't think we charged anything to the movie that people would, you know, normally charge, you know, not even, you know, a breakfast or something. I, I suppose veterans would call us naive, but we ate on the, um, we're on with, uh, I, I, the whole thing was a great experience. It really was. Uh, we didn't want to do the third, which they took, talked to us about. I just, I couldn't do that again right away. And I think I wanted to get away from the horror arena. We were probably offered a lot of horror movies, uh, that we should have done, but I don't know. We just weren't in the mood to keep doing that. Well, I know they eventually made Great Balls of Fire a few years later. How much involvement were you? did you have in that after Poltergeist 2? Uh, none. The people who took control or got control went in a completely different direction than we were going to write that movie. You know, we put the rights together, so we're an executive producer, but we really didn't work on the movie. The intent of our movie was uh, to make it, we wanted to make it Raging Bull to music, which we thought would have been just a fabulous movie and tell you who this guy was. Instead, at that time, they were so afraid of Jerry and the 13-year-old cousin and that whole thing that they just went for this sort of, musical thing I, I to be honest it might be a really good movie i just i didn't want to see that movie i had done way too much research on who this guy really was and what would have been great scenes and so forth that it was a, a a big disappointment it was something i always wanted to write as a matter of fact i had booked jerry lee lewis into our high school to play there i think i bankrupted the uh, high school you know, when I was a senior in high school. So this was a big disappointment. We were going a whole different way. I just think it would have been, you know, if you think about it, that's a great movie if you have him. Because, you know, he was sort of his own man and in a way, you know, a bit of an outlaw with his behavior. But, you know, that's how he grew up. He came from generations of... Uh, outlaws and stuff and all this religious stuff and the 
emotional conflicts and you're a star one day and then you're banished the next, uh, you know, I, I, there were just uh, so many scenes that aren't there. My probably one of my favorite is when he finally went to get Myra for being kicked out of her house. She uh, packed her clothes in a dollhouse. It's just crazy. I mean, there was just incredible scenes. You know, everyone I'm sure has those in their career, but that's one I would have loved to have written. Well, you did write one of my favorite Steven Seagal films, Mark for Death. How did that come about? We saw Seagal in Above the Law, and we thought he could be like the next um, Clint Eastwood, you know, Dirty Harry type character. So we asked to meet with him. We sat down and pitched ideas around, you know, we wound up writing a script on spec for him, I would say... um, that was one uh, unusual person to be in business with, I can tell you that. <laughs> I've heard some stories, yeah. Yeah, well, I think he got more and more power probably when each movie went on. But uh, he originally, we were talking about ideas, and he had this great idea for an opening scene, uh, which was a terrific opening scene idea. And we are going, great, you know, and it was when Japan was hot, and we said, okay. And he was leaving the country. We said, okay, that's great. Maybe we'll start going off of that opening scene, which sort of dictated a lot of things in the movie. And then we said, well, we better read this other script, Black Rain, because it takes place in Japan and is coming out just to see what they did. And we read it, and it was the exact same opening scene he had pitched us. And we went, whoa, we had been talking about doing a, picture about uh, Jamaican drug gangs. So we did the research and wrote that with uh, Stephen in mind. He, of course, decided that uh, to arbitrate for uh, writing credit. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <Even, laughs> I, I had to prove he was out of the country when we wrote it. I mean, you just never knew where it was coming from. That's like a small percent of... Uh, you know, I could I literally write in a chapter in an important, you know, in a book about uh, being in business with him, what we encountered. I, I do have to ask you, too, how you got involved with Cool World, because I, I was working at a movie theater when that came out, and that was the first time I had experienced um, Ralph Bakshi's work. We met with Paramount, and they told us uh, they wanted to do a... Um, live-action animation movie for adults instead of kids. So we met with Ralph, who loved the idea we were doing. And then we wrote, um, our idea was that there's this um, guy doing tattoos and cartoons in uh, prison, and they're coming alive for him. And then he moves across the street of the lady who ID'd him. And it was it was fairly intense, but really fun. And I think the script was really good. Um, and then uh, Brandon Tartikoff came in from the network and saw that and said, well, this can't be in our movie. We've got to make it a G or PG. And so it was uh, rewritten into... To be honest, something I didn't recognize by the time it was in the theater, even though we were, you know, still the credited writers. Um, it was just a completely 
different tone. And, um, you know, I think uh, Ralph probably caved to all the uh, powers that be just to get the movie done. And uh, I thought the movie was a little schizophrenic, to be honest. Her original script uh, is probably the, it was odd. At Paramount, they knew what a good job we did, so they wanted to hire us again. But other people who saw the movie were going, well, that movie was screwed up. What's going on? <laughs> so that's one of those weird career things. What was your experience like with the uh, the remake of Poltergeist? Did they involve you much at all or just kind of license the characters? Nah, they just licensed it. Whatever path they were on, they were on. Did you actually end up seeing that one? I got to tell you, by the time you're done making a movie, I, you know, I can tell you this with Poltergeist 2, when you're in there, and I mean, we were very diligent producers. We we're on set every day from beginning to end, you know, in the sound, in the, you know, all these things. And, uh, you know, we're grateful to learn them. But with all the effects and the sound and the music, by the time you're done, uh, you don't ever want, I'd never want to see the movie again. I just, I literally, if it, you know, maybe I went to the premiere and that said, I can't watch the whole thing on TV, any of them. I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, you know, it's like someone made you write and read a book over and over again, and you don't want to read it again. No, I totally understand. Yeah, if you get so close and so involved with something. I was just, uh, you know, I was just, didn't want to, you know, just didn't want to do it, couldn't do it. The sequel, I probably would have been interested in a remake, uh, you know, talking about it. But the script I ultimately read on it just seemed very similar to the first. And I think you've got to be significantly, you've got to have a real new angle. I think when you're, remakes and sequels are very difficult. In terms of distinguishing yourself, you probably, they're just very hard because often the writers wind up in the studio, well, we'll just make it bigger, more effects, more that, you know, rather than you really appreciate a sequel or remake that has a different kind of story. It's probably in a lot of ways why I consider uh, The Godfather 2, you know, one of the best movies ever made, if not the best. They moved away and they had the whole character story and De Niro was unbelievable playing Brando at a young age. You know, it was just so compelling. I just thought it was really uh, fantastic, you know, rather than, uh, you know, part two, part three, part four of the, uh, you know, uh, the same thing, the same journey. After Cool World, and I could be wrong about the timing, but I, I think after that, you moved into producing pretty much full-time, correct? I got much more involved in producing, and we had a management company. We were trying to arrange financing. We did far less writing. I think some producers maybe didn't want us on board, uh, perhaps because... Maybe they thought we only wanted to do it if we produced. I don't really know. But yes, we spent a lot more time kind of aiming in other directions. When there's not a global pandemic happening, what have you been working on lately? I wrote a script for the first time from sort of beginning to end. 
on a thing called Memo from Turner, and it is really intense action and uh, has a political edge. Um, it's about a uh, a South African cop um, who's black uh, coming up in, against incredible odds. So uh, I like it a lot. So we'll see what happens. i got to get it out into the world. I'm happy with it. That isn't always the case. I'm pretty picky. The flaw of being a perfectionist is a problem. Mr. Victor, thank you so much. This has been terrific. Okay, well, uh, I hope it helps. Let me know when it's on, and, uh, you know, try not to make me look too bad in your editing. just talked about Jaws on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I think everybody pretty much agrees, yeah, Jaws is the monster of the movie, but really the bad guy of the movie is Mayor Vaughn. And I have to say, same thing with this. Mr. Teague is the villain of this movie. He's the guy who probably approved, you move the headstones, you didn't move the bodies, and just... We're here to make money, and we're just concerned about money. He's not concerned about Stephen's health, necessarily. He's just concerned about getting those sales made and having Stephen there to just continue to sell these houses. He wants more sales, and they're going to do the same thing again. They've got this other cemetery, which I think was the original one, but they're like, okay, we're going to move these headstones now a few more miles away, and then we're going to build up here. And Stephen, you can have a house up here and look down on the valley and see everything that's down there. Isn't that going to be great? And when they reveal that they're near that cemetery, because I think they, they use that as a surprise for us, that they're walking along that fence, and then finally the camera's on the other side of the fence, and you start to see those headstones. It's like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, this is, it's another one of those like, hey guys, if you didn't, pay attention before here's what's going on but we'll really reveal it to you later on when these coffins start popping out it's interesting watching this film and all the other movies the sequels and the remake because they really say something about america i'm 1982 things are looking great the freelings are doing terrifically well they're in this fantastic house in this you know great community and yet there's this rot underneath that is entirely based on greed. And then if you flash forward to the 2015 remake, the Freelings, I don't know if they're still called the Freelings, I can't remember, but return or go to a suburb, but it's a horrible suburb. It's an old suburb. that It's a bad neighborhood because they don't have any money because the economy has collapsed and, and Stephen Freeling has lost his job. It was an odd experience watching the remake for me because I made that connection, but also because I felt like not only was the film tracking the downward tra trajectory of America, it was also <laughs> unintentionally tracking the downward trajectory of cinema because I, I again, I, I don't want to be too hard on the movie because I actually think it's quite well directed and there's some really fine work in it, but I did not care for the digital photography 
it was well lit. There was a coldness to it and a kind of antisepticness that comes. And I'm not even opposed to digital digital photography in principle, but the way that it was done in that film, they contrasted starkly with the original movie. And I, I felt like the filmmaking has degraded since 1982. Like, I like the filmmaking in 1982 better than what's happening in 2015. Like, I, I feel like the medium itself is being degraded by the way things are evolving or, or devolving. It was quite an interesting, you know, I know that wasn't anybody's intention in making that movie, but it was it was interesting to see. Well, yeah, even in the second Poltergeist, the way that Stephen talks about how I'm into downward mobility, and then he, <laughs> he he's very much the millennials and even some of my generation who are still living at home, because here they are living back with Diane's mom, and... He's selling vacuums door to door, and the vacuums seem to have a mind of their own, and he's just, he's not doing good. And as much as the first movie was about women, I feel that the second movie focused more on Steven and more on uh, the Samson character and Taylor. That Steven's interesting and all, but I really prefer Carol Ann. I prefer Diane. I would much rather have this about them. I know it's not necessarily the fault of the filmmakers, but to not have any sort of line in there to talk about what happened to Dana and that she's just gone from the movie. And at one point they're talking about how the family has to be together. And I'm just yelling at the TV going, but the family isn't together. You're missing a person. You're driving around with four people in the car. There needs to be a fifth person in here. As a self-proclaimed Dana super fan, obviously I would have appreciated some kind of lip service to that because she was very absent from the first one, but she was there. I mean, when they're digging through the closet to look for Carol Ann, she's with the adults digging to look for Carol Ann. Like she's a presence in that movie. So to just have her be gone is just, I didn't, I would like to have had some kind of, even if it was a throwaway line about like, she can't live, she can't be in this house with all those people. She's in with her friend. Like, great. We at least have some kind of, you know, idea I did miss her. She was funny. It says something about MGM, because I feel like MGM is the studio that just, I don't know, endlessly sequelizes and remakes movies because it's a failed studio. I don't know about Poltergeist 2, but certainly Poltergeist 3, which had its own issues. I almost feel like those movies shouldn't exist. I know Gary Sherman feels like Poltergeist, who directed Poltergeist 3, feels like Poltergeist 3 should not exist. He didn't want to finish the film after... um, Heather O'Rourke died, yes. Now reading about Poltergeist 2 and re-watching it after having read so much about it, there are just moments in that movie where I'm like, okay, what just happened? The whole Tangina character just completely disappears twice from the movie. She's there, she shows up, and then she's gone. And you're like, wait, what just happened to her? And then she shows up again at the end, and then she disappears again. And that ending scene with the big battle between the family and the cane monster, it just feels so truncated, even to the point where the soundtrack feels like it has an abrupt cut to it. And you're like, whoa, what just happened here? It's just so anticlimactic that we've gone through this whole thing of fighting this Kane character, that it's this whole idea of, can he come into the house? You know, how is he going to get into the house? I don't necessarily know how he gets in through the worm, but then he gets in that way. Okay, that's cool. We've got all this stuff. There's a couple moments that are pretty freaky. I have to say that the gentleman that plays Kane, um, Julian Beck, 
fucking fantastic. I remember watching a thing on MTV where it was the band Anthrax talking about their favorite movies. And of course, Killer Clowns from Outer Space was right up there, but also Poltergeist 2. And they were like narrating the scene of him out in the uh, outside of the door, screaming into the the family about how they're going to die. And there's a point where he pulls his finger up and puts it to his, his temple. And they're like, look at his finger. Even his finger's scary. Now, before it's too late. You're gonna die in there. All of you. You are gonna die. There's good things in Poltergeist, too. I think there's some really good direction in it, and it doesn't end well, unfortunately. Um, and then the native stuff is pretty, you know, eye-rolling. But uh, I actually have a soft spot for 3. It took me forever to see 3, but then when I finally saw it, I was like, oh, okay, this this kind of works. I kind of enjoyed that movie. I agree. I don't think 3 should exist, but there are some really great things in it. I appreciate that you know, putting poltergeist in, in like a a suburban home instead of like a big gothic manor was it was like unique and, and new. So putting it in a high rise is really interesting to me. I, I love the feel of it in, in that in that building. I love the use of the reflection reflections, all the mirrors, the puddles. There's so much good imagery in it, but it's just wrapped around this story that is now made subpar by the filming limitations. So I don't know, is it worth it to have these, these interesting high points and cool visuals and unique things or should maybe it not have existed because it couldn't exist in, 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 in its proper form? I, I don't know. Like I, that puddle, that puddle scene, her getting pulled in that puddle haunted me. I, if you had said, adult Christine, have you ever seen Poltergeist 3? I'd be like, eh, I don't know. And then you explain that puddle sequence where Carol Ann gets pulled into it. I would have been like, oh, yes, that haunts my nightmares. I barely remembered this movie. Uh, I had seen it when I was young. It's just that scene is terrifying. And it does a similar thing that the first one does is it taps into these these childish kind of fears. Like it's irrational. A puddle isn't isn't infinitely deep. Except in this movie it was. So maybe they all are that way if you catch them at the right time. It, it did that thing, but it's uncomfortable to watch. I don't know if you guys felt that way. Like, it yeah. makes me feel uncomfortable. I agree. The moment when um, Lara Flynn Boyle crawls out of Zelda Rubenstein's body. Uh, oh, God. Uh, and she's screaming like crazy. That's amazing. Like, isn't that fantastic? It actually... Poltergeist 3 has a very David Lynch quality to me. It stepped, yes. it stepped into the realm beyond the genre into like the realm of surrealism at points. It has a, there's some really, something very interesting going on in the film, but I, I just, when you see Heather O'Rourke and you know, I guess she was taking steroids or something, like there's just something, you feel like there's something wrong and there's some like real human suffering behind this movie that makes it hard to watch. The use of the mirrors and stuff, it feels almost uh, Jean Cocteau at times. It's just such an interesting way of, of doing it. Christine, you talked about the puddle. The one that gets me is when Carol Ann is walking down the hallway and there's no reflection on the left-hand side, but then on the right-hand side you see the doors opening and the cane mm-hmm. stand-in coming out and standing at each door. 
that one really worked for me. I thought that was very, very creepy. Again, we're talking about special effects, and I think the best effects in this movie are the practical ones, are all of the use of the mirrors and the glass and the one-way glass and just the way that they shoot all this stuff is just really effective and very, very gorgeous. The story, I like the idea of the uh, high-rise. I like the idea of this high-rise where they never seem to leave. I think they leave at the beginning for Carol Ann to go to school and for Lyra Flynn Boyle's character to go to school. But the rest of their lives are just all spent in this building. The art gallery is there. The Tom Skerritt character works there for security. So it's like this whole land of the dead, J.G. Ballard type. Everything is here that you need. You never need leave this, except maybe when it's haunted. Isn't it interesting that Gremlins 2 has a similar kind of backdrop? Like it's um, and And I feel like Gremlins and... Poltergeist are obviously of a similar ilk. It's just interesting. And they both came out around the same time. Gremlins 2 is, I don't know, 1990? And Poltergeist 3 is 88? Yep, 1990, yep. I don't know, again, I don't know what that means. There's something going on. Like, it's a very interesting... I I don't know, somehow I... Well, and I imagine American Psycho was written around that time. Well, and it's also the era of Trump and this whole Trump stand-in of uh, John Glover as that Trump character. Totally. Like, I feel like these movies are, you know, not intentionally necessarily, but are just truly tracking <laughs> what is going on in America in a very specific way. I talked about how Teague is the real villain of the first movie, and... In uh, this one, it's the teacher, the teacher that won't believe Carol Ann, the one who keeps thinking that everyone is falling under her hypnosis. And then what is he? He's also a hypnotist. He's hypnotizing her. He's hypnotizing the, the boyfriend after he comes back from the puddle. And I'm like, okay, this is really strange that you have this power of hypnotism, but you don't believe Carol Ann. I guess maybe her powers are stronger than yours. But what a weird villain to have in this movie, this total a-hole teacher guy. And that goes back to the all the really great groundwork in three, because that is an extremely interesting character. What is this movie trying to say by having this? I don't know. I don't want to call him a fake intellectual, but this this overblown intellectual, this self-important intellectual telling a little girl that she's lying when a whole neighborhood saw something happen. I don't know. That speaks to me on like a on, on a real emotional level, like of all the people that didn't believe me when I was a little kid. Or I wonder if we could have seen this movie maybe as it was originally intended. I wonder if it would have paid off a little bit differently. And also that just the whole this isn't a high rise. It does speak to that like mollification of America. One stop shop. Just hit, hit J.C. Penny and then go to Orange Julius and then pick up your tires and then like head home and all you need is here seeing that in movies because that was very much my childhood when i grew up go to the shopping center and just hit all the stores and go home and that's your saturday afternoon seeing it represented in film is always interesting to me because it 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 speaks to my life experience and there is a there's a cynicism to it but also it was just kind of reality so having it shown like spooky things can happen here too even though this is a modern construct that's effective too (laughs) somebody remake this movie (laughs) so so i can see poltergeist 3 in all its glory by 1988 we've got this guy who will not believe this person who was traumatized and then in 1982 when we have the original poltergeist 
there is it's very little convincing to get the parapsychologist to come in. The one guy is doubting things, Marty, the guy who ends up pulling off his face, the guy who will not come back to the house eventually. He's looking for things, you know, is there a signal coming from here? Are they broadcasting from inside the house? Yada yada yada. But the woman, Dr. Lesh, she believes Diane and she's right there. She's the one who starts when the coffee pot moves across the table and it's marty who's looking under the table looking for magnets or, or it might be ryan but she's right there she believes her you know it's that whole hashtag believe women thing it's like here's poor carol ann six years later having experienced two really traumatic things and now going through a third and here's this guy who's supposed to be a protector and he's the one who's doubting her and questioning everything that she does and trying to figure out the trick it is obvious that these female characters from the first one specifically are very, everybody's very willing to believe what's going on. And that's a construct of a lot of haunted stories that bothers me, the doubt, the doubting husband, or sometimes the inverse. Um, I just like when people believe the things that are happening, there's a, a efficiency to that, but also like, please just believe when you see things. It's funny to me that then this, this man is like, I don't believe you. In spite of the things I'm seeing with my own eyes, like he sees that coffee mug get thrown, but he's like, mm, can't be true. This little girl's a liar. I, <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's some real implications there. I don't, I don't think you're uh, blowing up nothing, Mike. I love that. It's a Freud mug that he has as well, which is <laughs> nice. Now is a good time for us to take another break and play an interview with the director of Poltergeist 3, Gary Sherman. Let's go ahead and play that right after these brief messages. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime-slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series Tales from the Crypt. Here's what a rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. <laughs> Tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at TwilightZone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. From what I read, you actually started off more as a musician than a filmmaker. Filmmaking was something that I fell into. I, I was an artist looking for a medium. From the time I was like, you know, this big, I drew and painted and did sculpture. And I was taking art classes at the Art Institute of Chicago in the Saturday school, which was for kids. And I did that all the way through grammar school and high school. And when I was about 11 or 12, I started playing guitar and, and singing. My dad was a piano player, and I used to, from the time I was just little, we'd sit on Sunday mornings and he'd play piano, and, and my brother was a singer as well. We just used to sit by the piano and sing. And I loved music, and I loved singing, and it was Chicago, and I really got into blues and gospel, not for any religious reasons, I just loved the music. 
So I, I was just into music and then had a rock and roll band in high school going into college. And, you know, just kind of a garage band. We played mostly covers. We did a few original things. Now I'm in college and I'm in art school. I'm at the Institute of Design, still searching for my medium. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and that was why ID was the perfect school, because the first year you do everything. You do absolutely everything. They Actually, they try to kill you the first year. And you, you just try every different kind of media that, that you can think of working in. And I discovered a camera, and I, I was shooting, I started shooting stills. And Aaron Siskin, who's, you know, the father of modern photography, came there to critique our work. And he saw my work and he asked to meet me and he said, I take on three students a year. Would you like to be one of my students? And I, how, how do you say no? Even though I thought I was going to go into, into visual design, which is the major I was leaning towards, I switched over to photography. Anyhow, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, earning money with my group playing and I was doing other odd jobs. I worked in a photo lab and was doing, I was kind of putting myself through school. And, and so anyways, my group cut a record. We, we were signed by the by the Quill label, and Quill recorded a chess. So we went into Chess Studios, the old 2120 South Michigan Avenue, the old Chess Studios, and we cut our record. And Ron Malo, who was the head engineer, pulls me aside after our session and says, you read, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, you got a great voice. He said, you, and you got really good range. He said, you know, I could use you as a background musician, as a backup singer. And I said, great. I gave my phone number and he started calling me and I would go in and do uh, sessions at chess. Anyhow, I was uh, simultaneously at the same time, I, I, I discovered a movie camera at school, an old World War II Aeroflex that had just been sitting in a closet forever. And I took it out, cleaned it up. And with a friend of mine, we figured out how to rework it and make it make it run and and so I just started playing around with it and shooting some footage. Aaron had given us an assignment, Aaron Siskin had given us an assignment to indicate work, show people at work. You know, and Aaron meant that it's something very abstract because that's the way Aaron thought. Anyway, so I'm doing a session with Bo Diddley and singing background on a Bo Diddley album. And I said to uh, him, can I shoot some footage of you? Because you're working. <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, just ask Ron if it's okay. So I asked Ron Malo. I said, is it okay? And he said, yeah, sure. He said, just stay out of the vocal booth because I won't hear you. They make so much noise in that goddamn studio. Just stay away from the vocal booth and we'll all be cool. So I'm shooting away when I'm not in the booth singing with, with, with Bo. I'm picking up my Aeroflex and, and shooting footage and Marshall Chess walks in while I'm doing this. And Marshall says, Sherman, you know, he knew me as a studio musician. He says, Sherman, Sherman, what are you doing? I said, this is for school. He says, I want to see it. Anyways, a few days later, I drag a 16 millimeter projector into Marshall's office with all my dailies under my arm. <laughs> And, and show him 
what we shot. He starts calling everybody in, his dad and his uncle and everybody, and says, you guys got to see this stuff. And he said, this stuff's wild. It's so hip. And it's he says, let's make a movie. I said, all I know how to do is shoot. He says, you just do what you do. I'll hire you a crew. And he hired me a crew, and I went on the road with Bo Diddley, and we ended up putting together a, a film called The Legend of Bo Diddley. And Marshall sold it to 75 television stations around the world. And then it won all kinds of awards. And all of a sudden, I got other record companies and stuff calling me. And then that led to somebody seeing, I did the thing for Crescendo Records for a group called The Seeds. So I shot this whole film on The Seeds that was like, may have been the first music video. Because <laughs> I shot them running around through a greenhouse and we did all this stuff. Somebody saw that and, and showed it at a design conference, the Aspen Design Conference. And the next thing I know, people are calling me to do commercials. So I'm still in, in school. I set up my own production company and for boop, I'm shooting commercials and shooting docs and doing all kinds of stuff. And I graduate and my company's going guns. I hired half my friends from school to come work for me at the production company. And we had this production company. And then came the convention in 68. <laughs> and I'm a bit of a political animal, a very left-wing political animal, and got in lots of trouble during the convention. Just decided I couldn't be here anymore. And I, my mother's British, so I went to England. I immediately got a green card because of the fact that my mother was British. And I just went there to do commercials. I... Jonathan Demi and, and Michael Mann and I set a company up together. We were all three expats in London, and uh, then Michael left, thank goodness. <laughs> One of the most objectionable human beings I've ever known. But then that's an old story. Everybody has Michael Mann stories. I've got some some Michael Mann stories myself. Jonathan and I set up this production company. And Jonathan keeps saying to me, you should do a feature. You should, you know, Jonathan was producing then. He wasn't, he had no want to direct at that point. Jonathan kept pushing me. I kept writing scripts. Jonathan and I wrote a couple of scripts together that we sold that never got made. And I came up with the idea to do Deathline. I came up with the story idea and I was, we're on location. We're on a big location. We're shooting this Procter & Gamble launch campaign that had a budget that was probably twice the size of what the budget of Deathline was when we finally made it. And the, the, the agency producer was, had just written a novel that I had read and it was really great. It hadn't been published yet, but it was really great. And we started talking and I told him about this story that I had. And so he said, let's write it. So that was Carrie Jones and Carrie and I sat down and wrote Deathline. And then Jonathan took it under his arm and said, I'm going to get it sold. And he got it to Jay Cantor and Jr. And the rest is history. It all fell into place. And I made Deathline and, you know, Jay Cantor and Alan Jr. produced it. And then they went, they left England and went back to Hollywood and ended up running 20th Century Fox. And they dragged me away from London back to Hollywood. And Jay's kind of mentored my whole career. There's a long break between when you do Deathline and then when you direct your next film. Are you doing uh, more writing during that period? I was doing commercials. 
I, I was doing commercials, and, I was, and commercials were really lucrative, <laughs> and I was enjoying myself. And I, I actually didn't enjoy that. I enjoyed making Deathline, but when it ended up getting sold to AIP, and they turned it into raw meat, and they completely recut my movie, and it made it awful, and then did that terrible exploitation campaign, I said, that's not what I want to do. And even though Jay and Laddie had gone back, to, they, they kept telling me, come to Los Angeles, come to Los Angeles. And I said, no, I don't want to make it movies. I want to continue to make commercials because at least I get to do what I want. And so anyways, they finally dragged me back. And when I, when I got back, I really couldn't find a picture I wanted to do and television came knocking on my door. So between I guess it was 76, 77 when I finally came back to Los Angeles. I started doing a lot of television and I, I, I just wanted to cut my teeth and get used to shooting in America, which is different than shooting in England. At least it was back then. And the fact that Deathline had become raw meat really hurt me here. No, nobody was pounding my door down. In England, they were looking for me to do more horror movies. But I didn't want to do another horror movie, actually, because of the way that Deathline was treated so badly. Then Ron Shusett came knocking on my door, and, you know, and Ronnie was amazing. I mean, he was just one of the most incredible people I've ever met. And and he and Dan had, had all these scripts that they'd written, Dan O'Bannon, and he just puts this pile of scripts, he says, here, I love Deathline. Deathline's like one of my favorite all-time movies. And you got to make more movies. And here's a pile of movies. Let's go through this. You can write. You can direct. You can do whatever. And then he said, well, what do you have that did, did you written that you don't want to direct? And I said, I gave him a script, and that was Phobia, which ended up being done by John Houston with, with Ronnie as a producer. And Dead and Buried was really the target. We, I really loved it, and I wanted to do it. Ron was trying to get it set up and get it set up, and then Alien opened. And literally the Monday morning after Alien opened, Ron called me, and he said, I think we're going to get Dead and Buried done. <laughs> and we did, and I, I really wanted to do that movie because it was when we originally got into it, it was going to be a dark comedy. Yeah, that's what I read. How would you have uh, used the comedy in that? It was. I mean, Jack Albertson's part was written purely for comedy initially, just the way that Donald Pleasant's part was written for comedy in Deathloom. And I, and I really wanted to have that same kind of balance going. Well, it's a long story, and it's uh, it's very boring. You could hear it on the commentary on the DVD. The company that started to make the film... The production cut was always Avco Embassy as the studio. It was a negative pickup. So the, the production company was in charge. And so the first company that, that was, that we were doing it with were all in, they loved the script. They loved the comedy. They got bought out by a second company. Now the second company went along with it too. And we were shooting and everybody was happy and we shot. We get into post production. We're like, Three quarters of the way through post-production, when Aspen Productions gets bought out by PSO, and Mark Damon comes in, and Mark looks at the movie and he says, what is this? He says, I thought I was buying a horror movie. 
He said, what is this? He said, you know, and he turns to me and he says to me, he said, if I wanted Bergman to direct a horror film, I'd hire Bergman. Now you give me a horror film. And they basically just started, we had changed stuff. I was, I was going to walk and Jay Cantor, who had always been my mentor, said, don't get a reputation for being hard to work with. Just go along with it, get it done, take it as far as you need to take it and then go start, go do your next movie. But that's what I did. That, that led to Vice Squad. Then I went from Vice Squad to doing a lot of television. Um, I, I just, Suddenly, television was just attacking me, and I, I was enjoying it because instead of spending two years on a movie, back then you used to do 26 episodes a year of television. And so I started creating series and, and directing shows and produ- executive producing shows, and uh, and I was having a good time. And it's re- really funny. I, I walked into a party one night, and Jim Bridges and Alan Parker jumped on me and started screaming at me and they said what the fuck are you doing you give us vice squad and then you leave us and start making television <laughs> then i came back and into into movies and i did i guess wanted i did wanted dead or alive and wanted dead or alive led me right in i was in post-production on wanted dead or alive when when jay and laddie called me and said we need your help i said you need my help. They said, yeah, we need a poltergeist and you got to do it. I said, I don't want to do it. They said, no, you got to do it. We need to do it. I said, I don't want to do a poltergeist sequel. I had been asked to do poltergeist too and I wasn't available because two, I had a pilot to shoot and another one of my pilots got picked up to go to series. And I just, I just had a beg out of doing poltergeist too. I also didn't like the script very much. Victor and Grace, who I like both of them. I mean, especially Mark Victor. I really like Mark. I, I didn't want to go in and say, I don't like your script. And with the writers being the producers, along with Freddie Fields, I figured I was going to have no weight at all changing the script. So I, I passed on Poltergeist 2, which uh, Mr. Gibson did, and he did a good job. So I absolutely love Wanted Dead or Alive. I saw that when it first came out on VHS and I love Rutger Hauer. I love Gene Simmons and those two together. I mean, Gene Simmons, I always thought played such a great villain in things. And some of those, some of the stuff that you did in that movie was fantastic. Thank you. I, I, I had a good time making that movie. We had no time, time when that, that film also was, was kind of a favor. It was Bob Ramey was running New World. He had left Avco Embassy and he was now at New World. He had been my, my, my rabbi at, at Avco Embassy for two pictures. He tried to protect me on Dead and Buried and he absolutely protected me on Vice Squad. Vice Squad was my movie because of Bob Ramey. I, I love Bob Ramey for that. He just, he, he stood up for me and he said, this is Gary's picture. And He's going to do what he wants to do. Then the producers were just held back in abeyance, and I got to do what I got to do. They had sold Wanted Dead or Alive based on the title. They didn't have a script. This guy, Bob Peters, had bought the title and, and, and the title Wanted Dead or Alive, and then they brought in Arthur Sarkissian, who, you know, to actually really 
be the producer on the movie. So they sold it based on the title, but they didn't have a script. They got a script delivered to them that was unreadable and unshootable. They couldn't believe it. And I mean, uh, I won't get into personalities, but it was a writer who's written some really good stuff. And this script was absolutely abominable. I don't know if he just thought this was a quick payday and he could get away with it or what, but it was awful. It was absolutely dreadful. So Ramey calls me up and says, I need your help. Come in here. So I, I drive down to the studio. He hands me the script. He said, I have to, we're facing a, a director strike and possibly an actor strike. And I've got a delivery date on this movie. I've got to have a script and I've got to have a movie. Please rewrite me the script and you'll direct it. And he said, I need at least a working script within two weeks so that we can start pre-production. You can keep writing, but we have to start pre-production. So anyways, he, he hands me the script and I take it home and I read it. And I said, he said, can you fix it? I said, no, I can start from scratch though. I have an idea. And I went in the next morning, pitched him an idea. And I said, but I'm going to need a co-writer. And Denise Denovi was working for Bob at that time. She was a development executive with him. It was before she did Batman. Cause I said, I need help. And she says, I got the writer. And that's how I met Brian Taggart, who, you know, Brian and I went on to write a lot of stuff together. So anyways, he put me together with Brian. I met, I met Brian for dinner. I pitched him the idea that I had pitched to, uh, Ramey in, in the morning and Brian loved it. And we just, we basically worked all night the first night to come up with an outline. We took it back to the studio the next day and they said, go. Sarkissian set us up in an office and uh, we had a word processor. Nobody had word processors back then, but Arthur actually hired a guy who knew how to work a word processor and Brian and I would sit and scribble pages and hand it to this guy who was typing away and on the computer and we, you know, <laughs> and we could make changes and it, it really sold me on computers. I have been a, a computer file ever since then, a technophile. Within two weeks we had a script, but I, what I didn't have was that last line, that last scene. And it was so funny. Arthur sitting in his office down the, down the corridor from us in our offices. And he hears me scream and he comes running down and he says, what's the matter? What's the matter? And I looked at him and I said, fuck the bonus. He said, what? I said, I figured out how to end the film. He said, what are you talking about? And I told him, <laughs> I won't go through it here. We won't ruin it for anybody that hasn't seen it. But, but I described the scene for him and I took it right up to fuck the bonus. And Arthur ends up screaming and going, fuck the bonus. I love it. And Wanted Dead or Alive was born. So we took the script in. They, they loved it. Brian and I kept rewriting till the last day of principal photography. My only regret about Wanted Dead or Alive is that we didn't have more time to work on the script. I think the script is the weakest part of, I mean, there's some great lines in it. There's some, but it, it could have had, it could have been a better script had we, 
because it's a really good script. It's just not a great script. And I would have liked to have done that. And I would have made it a lot more political than I did. People think that Wanted Dead or Alive is anti-Islamic, and it's not. It's anti-terrorism. It's not anti-Islamic at all, and it wasn't meant to be. And anybody that knows me knows I'm, you know, the most open, colorblind human being on the planet. I was raised that way. My dad was colorblind his whole life, and and uh, my dad taught me that, you know, it's the inside of people. It's not the outside of people. I've never been prejudiced against anybody and, and, or, or expressed a, or even told a racist joke. It's just not me, and uh, it's not the way I was raised. And I got very upset when critics called the film Islamophobic and, and racist. And it upset me. But anyways, one of the things is, is that, you know, Jay and Laddie loved it. And that's, they said, you, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not going away. You're, you're coming here. You're doing Poltergeist 3. And I said, I don't want to. And they, they said, yes, you are. Yes, you are. I said, okay, two conditions. Well, there were more than two conditions, but the two main conditions were I shoot it in Chicago and my hometown because I, and I wanted to shoot a movie in the Hancock building ever since it had been built. I love the John Hancock Center. It's just an amazing, sociologically as well as architecturally, it's just a, an amazing place. I mean, people can live their whole lives there and never leave the building. And I just was fascinated by that. I said, okay, so I get to shoot it in Chicago, and I'm going to have the biggest haunted house that ever existed. I'm going to haunt the John Hancock Building, one of the largest buildings in the world. And I'm going to do all the effects practical. And they said, you're crazy. I said, no, um, you know that. <laughs> but they, and Laddie says to me, do you really know how to do that? And I said, absolutely. I said, that's, I was raised on an Oxbury. And if you can do it on an Oxbury, you know, the multi-head projector printers, animation stands, virtual image, what they used to do all the opticals on back in the analog days. I, I ran one when I was in college. I said, if I can do it on an Oxbury, I can do it in a camera on the, on the studio floor. And Laddie said, how much is that going to cost me? <laughs> and I said, you know what? It'll cost you the same. Our shooting schedule will be a little longer, but post-production will be a third as long. And I'll save you the money in post. And he said, well, you convinced me about the tracking shot and death line, so I guess I'll believe you. <laughs> Because he didn't want me to do the tracking shot in Deathline either. And so, but Jay had said, no, let's just go for it. And we did, and it worked. And then, of course, the fact that the film went a long time, and then we there was an ending that was going to cost a lot of money and take several weeks to shoot. And they said to me, can't we save some money and do a simpler ending? And I said, well, we can, but I don't want to. But Anyways, they said, please. And I said, okay. So we shot another ending, and I hated it. And they hated it. And we finished that ending. We went out, and we, we roughed it together, and we took it out and sneak previewed it. And the, the audience hated it. So I finally convinced them we should redo the ending and do the original ending. And 
we were in the process of putting that all together and getting ready to do that when Heather died. And then I had to, I wasn't, we weren't going to release the film with the bad ending. So, I mean, that ending didn't work at all. It was awful. I had to come up with an alternate ending that could be shot without Heather, which was one of the saddest things I've ever had to do in my life. That's what we did. And I, after that, I, I just kind of walked away from it. Was, it was really hard. I just really didn't know, you know, what I wanted to do for a while. And it, it just it was really tough. And so I jumped back into television. I believe that's after Poltergeist, I put, uh, well, I had Sable on the air while I was doing Poltergeist. <laughs> then Sable went off and then, uh, I sold missing persons. And I did a few other, I did a lot of pilots and stuff in between them. You said, okay, I want to shoot in Chicago. I want to do practical effects. What are the pieces then that they say this has to be there? I imagine Heather has to be there, but what else? Do they say we need Kane to be the villain in this or how does that come about to set up all these pieces? Well, yeah, we, we definitely wanted Kane and we definitely wanted Tangina. Can't make that movie without Zelda. <laughs> I love Zelda. So, you know, that was the thing. And then we just decided, well, if it's going to be in Chicago. And then they also, I, I guess the, the original family wanted so much money to do number three. And the studio didn't want to do that. They said to me, how can we not have the original family in it? And I said, well, I'll put them with an aunt and uncle. And so that's how we came up with the idea of the Seton School in Chicago, where she was going because she was having emotional problems. Carolina. I mean, Poltergeist 3 was really meant to be Heather's story. And it really would have been had we actually done the ending that we were supposed to do that I originally written. And it also would have been a different movie inside because what we didn't shoot was about 17 pages. And so I had to make up that time. And I mean, you know, shooting practical effects, this, this film was scripted and storyboarded frame by frame. I mean, we knew within probably a, a, a minute anyways, exactly how long the film was going to be when it was finished because of how exact everything had to be shot because of the practical effects. So, I mean, every every shot every shot in the movie was storyboarded and overheads. And, you know, I do a lecture. I've been traveling all over the world lecturing about shooting Poltergeist 3, which is quite fun. Actually, I'm thinking with the pandemic because all the film festivals got canceled this year. So I'm actually working with an IT guy right now talking about putting on doing uh, the poltergeist lecture which is an interactive thing as as a as a zoom webinar or some kind of webinar whether it's zoom or microsoft team or what but we're trying to figure out the platform now so we'll probably be doing that before the end of the summer it's kind of fun it's a fun lecture i I just keep doing it over and over again, and every time the audiences get bigger and the questions get harder, and <laughs> and it's just been great. I just did it in, at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth, which was my last trip before we got shut down by COVID. 
we filled one of those huge lecture halls. I mean, it was fantastic. The audience was gigantic, and everybody had a great time, and it actually got reviewed, um, and the review was really exciting. So, It's pretty remarkable that you are able to go from Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams in the previous two films to having freaking Tom Scared and Nancy Allen. I mean, I love those two actors and just, they were so great in that. Yeah, I did too. I mean, you know, Nancy, we were trying to cast somebody that at least could kind of pass as Joe Beth Williams' sister. And uh, Nancy was uh, absolutely perfect. She had that roundness to her and, I don't know if they look like sisters standing next to each other in a room, but they sure did when you thought about it. And Tom Skerritt, I love Tom Skerritt. And I, I just wanted to work with him. And I thought, you know, Brian and I, we were talking about who we wanted to play these parts. part that Nancy played, we knew where that character was going because that character was Joe Beth Williams' sister. But who she was married to and, you know, the fact that it was a second marriage and, and he had a child from a first marriage. He was a, a widower. And then we cast a little young young woman who I had met two years earlier because I did a, a pi- the pilot of Sable. And I, and I was looking for a really good young girl for a very key part in the pilot. And Jane Alderman, who cast the pilot, brought, said, oh, I know exactly who. She, I've cast her in a bunch of commercials. She's never done a movie but I, or, a, you know, or a TV, but I think she'd be great. Laura Flynn Boyle. So I really was the first person to put her in a movie. I mean, I put her in a pilot. She actually did one other piece of television about the same time. They do. So that was her first film role, was, and, and she was wonderful. She was great to work with. But Tom Skerritt was so funny. He would come every morning and he'd say, okay, what event do we have today on the Poltergeist Olympics? Because of the fact that they were doing everything. They actually had to do everything that they were doing, including riding the window washing rig off the side of the Hancock building. The window washing rig at the Hancock building is like 15 times OSHA standard. You know, the safety standards. I mean, it's really a, a mechanism that is just fantastic. It's basically a train that goes up and down the side of the building. It lives in this huge building. Well, the building's a full square city block. So the roof is a full square city block, except, you know, the building's tapered, but it's not tapered that much. It looks more tapered than it really is. And when you're on the roof of that building, it goes forever. And there's this barn up there that the window washing rig lives in that is the size of a public building. I mean, it's huge. It, it just, everything's out of scale. It's just, it's fantastic. That was the one thing, though, Tom said, I got to ride on it? I said, yeah. He said, where are you going to be? I said, where do you want me? He said, close enough that I can grab you. So I am literally... Right off camera in every shot. I mean, right off camera. If I would have leaned in, I would have been on camera. What were some of the biggest challenges when it came to all those practical effects? They were all challenging. Some of the ones that were the most simple were the most challenging. The mirrors. Mirrors are always challenging because, you know, you, you, the, the physics 
that go into using mirrors, and mirrors have to be perfect. I mean, the slightest movement on a mirror, because when you move a mirror and you're shooting mirror into mirror, every time you're shooting it, it, it it's, it's logarithmic, the, the differences. Because one mirror, moving one mirror, is, is moves twice the distance of, of what it's doing. So you've got, you're squaring your, your movement with that mirror. You add another mirror, you've got a, you've got a square of that. And you add a third mirror, and I mean, it gets into the adjustments have to be so perfect that if anything is the slightest bit out of alignment, it doesn't work. And we were using front surface mirrors, we were using two-way mirrors, we were using glass, we were using no glass and no mirrors and double sets, and it just became a combination. And in a lot of scenes, it was double set and mirror and uh, a mirror on the camera to reverse everything. Because one of the things that I, that I wanted to do is, you know, today with digital, it's really easy. If you shoot something, you can flip it. And it doesn't make any difference. But back then, if you flipped it, you would have flipped it optically, which meant going another two generations to get to a negative. You had to go to an interpositive, and then the interpositive had to go to a negative. So you lost two generations. So it didn't look as good as the original negative, no matter what you did. And then you'd end up doing everything, taking everything down in quality so that it didn't pop out at you. And I figured if I was doing all the effects practical, I wanted all the negative to be first generation. In order to get things backwards, we had to run the film through the camera backwards or turn the camera upside down, depending on which was the best way to do it in the, in the situation. So, I mean, everything was just really complex. I mean, people look at the puddle scene and they say, oh, how'd you do that? You know, that was easy. That was just purely a physical effect. I mean, we built a set to match the location over a 5,000-gallon tank of water that had scuba divers in it. And <laughs> we could completely control the level of the water. We could control everything and the temperature. And I mean, there were problems with that, too. We had the light from underneath. And we couldn't put the lights in the tank, so we had to put mirrors in the tank, which meant we had to put windows in the tank. Well, a 5,000-gallon tank of water, the water pressure is unbelievable, so you just couldn't put a window in. The windows were almost a foot thick of laminated glass. And then with the, these arc lamps, because you didn't have LEDs like you have today, we had arc lamps that were 300 degrees, you know, and then we had to prevent heating the water because the light coming through was so hot. And the, the water's cold, the, the outside's hot, you've got glass in between. So we have to cool the glass and we have to use more light because we had to put enough you, you know, infrared filters in there to keep too much heat from going in. And then we had people, scuba divers, moving mirrors inside the tank to direct the light as it came through these windows it would hit mirrors and that would get the light to come up through the opening every shot in that movie is a magic trick and as much as i think it's my worst movie is a movie it's my least favorite anyway so a lot of people love it and they get mad at me when i say i don't like it 
but it's not my favorite of my movies, but it, but I'm very proud of the effects. How on earth did you make Nathan Davis look so much like the original Kane? Dick Smith, they found a casting. I don't remember who had the casting. It was Rick Baker or maybe it was Stan Winston. Somebody had a casting of Julian's face from another movie that they had done some prosthetics for him. Dick had that had the cast had the mold and made the pieces that went on Nate's face, which was actually which were actually cast within Julian's face mask. So I mean some people have called it a death mask, but it wasn't a death mask. A mask was made when he was alive. But it was creepy. <laughs> And poor Nate, man, he was in makeup for three hours every morning due to Phil Bad. You know, that's Andy Davis's father, Andy Andy Davis, who directed The Fugitive and The Prize. And, you know. yeah, is he another Chicago native? Yep. Andy and I knew each other back from college days. You know, Andy was one of those friends who worked for me at my studio back in the olden days. <laughs> How was it for you actually finally shooting a feature film in Chicago? It was great. Well, I had always wanted to shoot something in Chicago and I, that's, you know, and I did that. And, and then I ended up shooting Sable in Chicago because of the fact that we were doing Poltergeist in Chicago and I was doing it basically at the same time. Uh, and I loved, I love shooting in Chicago. Crews in Chicago are just the best. I mean, they're the union crews, they're IA crews, they're, and they're just really professionals. We're doing one of the really complicated special effects shots in Poltergeist, and we're in this huge studio because we have three stories of that John Hancock building built on the soundstage, which was an old warehouse that we converted into a studio. Now, of course, there's Cine Space, which is a real studio, which is great, which is here in Chicago. It's actually the biggest, it's turning into one of the biggest studios in the country. Back then we didn't have, we had Chicago Studio City and none of the stages were big enough for us and that was it. And in Oprah's studio, it was way too small for a while. So we're shooting this thing and I'm setting up the shot and I hear a voice say, Hey Gary, from way up in the rafters, you know, up in the, in all the, up way up in the lighting grid, high above us. And I said, yeah. And, and the voice says to me, is this the shot that goes after the one that we did last Thursday? And I said, yeah, it is. And he says, it's going to work great. And this was an electrician working up in the grid. People knew the script. They knew what we were doing. They followed along. They really cared. They were really invested. Everybody was totally invested in every moment because we couldn't have made that film as complicated as it was. I, I think my, my gaffer told me that the first production meeting went 17 and a half hours. And he says, and everybody walked out still not understanding exactly what we really needed to do. He said, we all knew that if you dropped dead, the film was done because nobody understood what you needed to do to get this film made. I did my lecture in Chicago about a year and a half ago or a year ago. I called everybody and I got Mike Moyer, Moisha, we call him, 
Mike Moyer, who is the, 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 the gaffer on the picture, and, and Brad Matthews, who's now president of the IA, but was the dolly grip on, on, on Poltergeist, and, and, it got, and Mary Carlson, who was the script supervisor, and I called them all and got them all to come, and they all sat up on stage with me for the Q, for the Q&A. So we, we had a lot of fun. Everybody wants to know why I haven't done more movies. I, I didn't need to do more. I needed to do what I did after, you know, I did Lisa right after, uh, after Poltergeist and MGM died while we were shooting Lisa. So Lisa never really got released. It went straight to television, which was a, a heartbreak for me because it was a script I really loved. And that's when I just said, Goodbye. I'm done. I'm going back to television. And television's been very, very good to me. And, uh, you know, I did Missing Persons and I, I put some shows on the air that I'm really proud of. And, and that's what I've done. And, uh, you know, Poltergeist Legacy and I just had, and then of course, you know, First 48 Missing Persons, which is a show I really love doing. How long did that show run? The First 48? Well, the, the, the homicide show ran forever, but our, our spinoff of, uh, of missing persons was about three and a half years we were shooting that. There's not that many episodes. The episodes that we made were really great. I'm really, really, really proud of them. And they're all very substantive and, and, and they, they talk about something. And they, they, they take you into places that you don't expect a television show to take you. You know, very political in a way. But the network was very strict with us on what we had one show that I was just so proud of. I mean, and I wanted it to go the whole hour. And it was about uh, some girls that came on Mother's Day to say, my, my mom's been missing. This is the second Mother's Day that she's been missing. And we just want closure. And the investigation was absolutely unbelievable. And they actually found her body in the morgue, which had been sitting there for a year and a half and nobody had identified it. And it caused a whole big scandal. And in fact, the medical examiner got fired because it ended up there were lots of bodies sitting there that nobody paid attention to. and Bodies were just getting lost. And it was so emotional and boom. And... It ended up that this woman had, had she, she had been a dental hygienist and then got into crack and went from being a, a, a mom and a, and a family person and didn't became a crack addict and ended up as a crack whore. And when she went missing, she was, you know, a crack whore. The network said, well, we don't want to do a story about a crack whore. And I said, wait a minute, this was a woman whose whole life was destroyed by crack, and why not tell that story? I finally talked them into doing this story, and then they said, but make it half an hour and put another story in the show. So that, that story had to share story. So we put two Mother's Day stories together called the episode Mother's Day. But, I mean, it was just it was constant fights with the network about stuff like that, and I just said, okay, goodbye. I'm done. Did you get all your answers? <laughs> I did. I did. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I've, I've had a really fun time. I was watching Poltergeist last month. I got a question. Why don't white people just leave the house when there's a ghost in the house? <laughs> <laughs>
house too fucking long. Get the fuck out of the house. Very simple. It's a ghost in the house. Get the fuck out. And not only did they stay in the motherfucking house and pull the guys, they invited more white people over. Sitting around going, I'll throw to Carol Ann's on the television set. I would have been gone. If I had a daughter been down the precinct saying, look, man, uh, I went home and my fucking daughter's in the TV set and shit, so I just fucking left. Um, you can have all that shit. I ain't going to back, back to the motherfucking, uh, I just came down so when she ain't up at school, you th don't think I killed a bitch or nothing like that. But she is inside the TV set. You can have all that shit. Fuck it. Uh, Mr. Murphy, didn't you try to save your daughter? Yeah, I'm a man. I tried to save. I turned the channel. The shit didn't work. I got the fuck out. One of the things I think is really special about the first movie is that the ghosts are not immediately represented as malevolent. And the way that the characters respond to them is not fear. Like, first, it's, one, it's wonder, which, is, of course, is very Spielbergian. And that's so unexpected. I mean, is there a haunted house movie that exists where the characters react with joy at the revelation that there is something supernatural going on and not horror? It's, it's very special. It's a really unique idea. That whole thing of, of Diane putting Carol Ann in the circle and having her shoot across the floor. <laughs> and then her trying to convince Stephen, like, oh, it's a, it's a tingling and it starts here. And she's just describing this thing that, for all intents and purposes, could be an orgasm. And she pretty much seems like she orgasms when Carol Ann passes through her later on in the film. It's just like, this is a very pleasurable thing for Diane, and Stephen is literally knocked off his feet. He falls to the floor during that part and is completely flummoxed. And then, did you guys notice the weird jump cut that happens during that? Like, the transition between that and then them over at their neighbors uh, just a, like a second later? Like, she's in the middle of a line when they cut and they cut to them on the porch of the next door's neighbor. And at first I thought it was supposed to be like a laugh line, kind of like a question answer. It's like, it's like there's this tickling, you know, right in here. And it, and it starts to pull you. The tickling pulls you. And all of a sudden it's like, there's no air except that you can breathe. And, and you're getting pulled along. And maybe okay. Hi, Ben. Oh, I missed your time. But it just is really awkward. It's I, I've never seen, who was a Michael Kahn, I think, did the editing. I've never seen him do a weird cut like that before. Yeah, it is odd. When I watched uh, this with my husband, it had been a while since he had seen it. And as Diane's talking about that, I find the way she describes it really interesting and very unique. And when it, when it uh, cuts away, I was like, I could have listened to her talk about that forever. And then I kind of thought, like, oh, maybe, maybe it did go. Maybe the insinuation is that she'd gone forever <laughs> and that they just had to, like, end it and, and move on. Like, she would not stop talking about it. And I was like, mm, I'll, that, that, that makes enough sense for me to, to make that now my reality. So that's, that's what happens in the movie to me. A good point that Michael Kahn cut it, who, of course, has cut virtually every Steven Spielberg movie. And it should be noted that Jerry Goldsmith wrote an amazing score to the film which is probably his most John Williams-like score. <laughs> I don't know why you would say that, Vincenzo. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because Jerry Goldsmith, who is a mate, you know, of course, a genius, his horror film scores, like especially for The Omen, or if you think about Planet of the Apes, they're kind of experimental. This score is not experimental. Oh, yeah. Planet of the Apes, it's like he listened to Bella Bartok before he wrote that one. But this one is, is very traditional and it's beautiful, magnificent. I mean, it feels like I feel like someone said to him, just give me your best John Williams. 
usually when I hear the chorus of kids doing something, I think of Danny Elfman, but then I also think of the score for uh, Home Alone. I mean, this sounds a lot like the score for Home Alone, especially the end credits, just that ethereal voices. And it is really creepy if you watch the movie all the way through to the end when the kids just start laughing at the end. It's just like, oh, okay. But yeah, I I completely agree. This is super John Williams-esque to the point where I thought that he had done this just like I thought he had done the score for Back to the Future. I think that is Alan Silvestri's most John Williams score. What if this movie did have different music? What if Toby Hooper was able to work more with Goldsmith? What if Toby Hooper brought in a different composer? Would it have had more of a Toby Hooper feel? That is something, too, because the music does play such a large part of it, especially in those opening credits and just how light and cheerful it is. And you do feel that warmth coming out of the music. It's just such a beautiful score. We were talking about the remake, and I did find it very interesting that the Tangina character has been switched to a male, and that it is Jared Harrison here. And I think that that also helps undo the message that we saw from the first movie. Now it is a male character that's coming in and saving the day and cleaning the house, doing all of those things. And I I just felt a little bad that... Now it is switched, so now it's... And, of course, they used to be a couple. He and and the Dr. Lesh-type character used to be a couple, and then they're going to get back together at the end. So it's almost like this reunification of the family who is going through hard economic times, plus it's a reunification of the parapsychologists who have had their own ups and downs. And I was like, that's a little much. I agree. I mean, if I think if it had been presented a little bit, differently i would have been all for it but there are just so many ideas and themes that are kind of lobbed at you that mirror the first one but it's not they're not really set up in any meaningful way so they feel kind of hollow like as vincenzo said i don't want to be harsh on it like it's not a bad movie it's just maybe if it poltergeist i i expect something when i show up to a poltergeist movie and this didn't deliver in any of those areas I think if you talk to a lot of people about why, if they found the clown scenes in the original scary or effective, if you ask them why, I think that they would have an answer for you. And I don't think the answer would be because it was there. And that's kind of how it was presented in the remake. Oh, the clown's scary because it's a clown and it's in front of you. But that's not why it worked. So there's the moment when the Robbie-ish cat in the tree is slamming against the window and it's just like a branch slapping the window. I thought a kid wouldn't think that was scary. A kid might find that annoying. A kid would find Robbie's tree scary. That weird stump that looked like a little guy reaching out at him. That's what a kid would think was scary. And and then it felt like, oh, this isn't through the lens. This isn't the same point of view as Poltergeist, so it doesn't really work for me. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff like that, and and there is a removal of, of the like the feminine that is so rampant in the original, but I can also say there's a removal of anything that really worked great in the original for me. So yeah, I didn't, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan, but, but maybe if it had been called like Spooky House, I'd be like, oh yeah, that was a good scary house, scary, like Haunted House movie, but it, it wasn't. It was supposed to be Poltergeist. Can I say unequivocally that I hate remakes? I know this comes up all the time, and I don't want to, you know, resurrect an old debate. And I know, yes, there are good remakes like The Fly and The Thing and so on. But those remakes were made 
were remakes of movies that were made when the culture was radically different, when the technology was radically different. The original Fly has its merits, but it's kind of a ridiculous film. When David Cronenberg remade it, culture had completely transformed. It, it was a it was a different kind of society. So that premise had an opportunity to be reinterpreted in a way that made it entirely unique to that moment. It's very hard to remake something like a poltergeist now because it has to be about this moment. Otherwise, it just becomes this sort of hollow echo of something that ex- existed before. And I feel like that film is a perfect example of that because, again, I don't want to s- disparage the craft involved. And I think the cast is like really strong. And I think there was even some really strong writing in it too. But ultimately, it was a very hollow experience. And I feel like it, that's because it was created cynically. It was it was something that was devised purely to make money. And by, you know, MGM, who seems to want to remake every single thing in their catalog and can't seem to be, as a studio, aren't really capable of making anything new. And so we feel like in a very visceral... And so it was really fascinating to watch these two movies back to back because we feel in the first film the warmth of that movie on every level. Like it is in a tremendous... For a horror film, especially, like, it is a tremendously emotional, emotionally charged, warm movie. And in the remake, because I'm inside this process sometimes, I can hear the conversations going on behind the scenes as to why certain decisions are being made. You know, well, the clowns can't possibly be Robbie's clowns. Like, why would Robbie have a clown like that? Like, why would he have ever had that toy? It has to be something that was left over from the people who were in the house before. There's a kind of logic that is being applied to the movie that undermines the emotional impact of it. And that is a very modern way of, of writing and kind of a modern way of corporate filmmaking where you have a lot of people, uh, a lot of voices involved in the process of writing a script. And so, yeah, that it was an interesting thing, experience watching that film because it is not a pleasurable movie to watch. Did you enjoy it at all? I found it, I found it. <laughs> I was impressed, like at certain points, but again, I think the director is a gifted director, but I did not enjoy that movie at all. That was a depressing film. It's strange that it starts off with them buying the house. They're already in financial straits and then getting the house versus them being in a pleasant position at the beginning and then having their world turned upside down. It feels like they've already kind of had their world turned upside down. The middle child is really not well-adjusted to anything. Well, all I hear all day long at school is how great Marsha is at this, or how wonderful Marsha did that. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha! I don't feel anything from the Carol Ann character. Christine, you talked about how much you love Joe Beth Williams, and it's like, yeah, I would like Joe Beth Williams to be my mom. I'd like Craig uh, T. Nelson to be my dad. I love Sam Rockwell, but I don't really want him to be my dad. He's kind of a scumbucket in this. And then mm-hmm. Rosemary DeWitt, she seems pleasant enough, but I don't really ever know her. I don't get inside of these characters with them. I don't feel like I'm a part of their family. None of the characters feel particularly present. And that's a bummer. Um, I do think that when you do a remake, you need to kind of embrace current circumstances and the climate. And I actually think that having them be struggling with money is, is super relatable and like a cool idea. Because sure, in 82, 
buying a house was like a normal thing that you do when families live in houses, but it ain't like that now. So to have it maybe be like a bit of a fractured family and everybody's struggling and money is this real dry, have this house that they're not really happy with, which was still a nice house. If that had been the base and then we had gotten to know them and they grew and they came together, which I think the movie tried to do, but I didn't feel that. I could write it on paper and tell you that's what happened, but I didn't, that wasn't like evoked in me. And and that's a real miss because it could have been cool. The moment when Sam Rockwell goes out and goes on that buying spree with the last credit card that seems to have any money on it. I mean, that's a devastating scene to me. And I don't think that it comes across as devastating as it is. You know, like I grew up in a house that had a lot of money troubles. That seems like something my dad would have done and been completely irresponsible and done something horrible like that. But it doesn't carry the weight. And it feels like almost as soon as that's over, then we're back into the haunting. And it's like, no, 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 you really need to deal with this domestic stuff first. Mm -hmm. It's either that scene is either a huge issue that is going to run through the rest of the narrative or it's not that big of a deal. And I don't think it really took a stance like it was like, oh, this is a big deal, but we're not going to mention it or she's not going to yell at him and tell him to return everything. Just the idea of somebody coming home with pizza when a meal is already being cooked just set me on edge. I was like, what are they doing? Why didn't he why didn't he ask? What I grew up with money problems as well. So I was like, what is he doing? This is this is huge, but it wasn't treated that way. But I could see why you would introduce that idea or that scene into the into the film. Again, it just didn't carry the weight that it needed to. Yeah. I feel like it reflected the moment, but as a film it was an, an utterly depressing experience. And again, I mean I I, I, didn't, I, I I know how much work goes into something like that and I really feel like there is real talent applied to it and some some smart stuff but there's something very depressing to me about how that movie reflects on the current state of movie making in hollywood because that movie exists for very cynical reasons it doesn't exist because someone had a great idea of how to remake poltergeist it exists because somebody needed to make a remake of poltergeist we got a hot property let's cash in that's all it was i feel like that movie more than most truly captures its moment and is a moment that will never return. Perhaps that's why it's so difficult to to recreate because that moment has has absolutely passed us. It's gone and and will never return. You know, the the kind of joyous enthusiasm with which it was made and and the spirit of it being a kind of funhouse ride, I don't think we can really do that anymore because I think the world's too scary. I mean, I think it's it's a great moment for horror films right now, but I don't think horror films can be playful the way they were because now, right now, the stakes are too high. So it's it's a it, it exists as a very special time capsule, and yeah, it should be appreciated that way. We're going to take our final break here and play an interview with the director of Poltergeist 2015, Gil Kennan, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fucks is the lie balls yeah. out. Because this punk it on out. She was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There were some butts. Yep, pillins. Yep, butt. Yep, pillins. Butt. Yep, pillins. If it's over 90% cheek, that's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... 
just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for a classy broads and a token dude talking horror. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. (laughs) And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Obviously, I want to ask you about Poltergeist, but I really want to know a little bit more about you and how you ended up getting into filmmaking, and especially, I mean, your feature debut is Monster House. It seems like such a, a an auspicious debut. I got into filmmaking, I guess, like most people through film watching and loving. And um, I grew up in a few different places, but sort of ended up and and did most of my uh, growing up in Reseda, California, which is this storied movie suburb. It's where you set a character when you want to suggest that he's just on the wrong side of the tracks, but like has access to their aspirations. I did know growing up, that movies were the thing like i had most of my transformative experiences happened in movie theaters usually watching things that i wasn't supposed to that blew my mind and freaked me out like my dad took me to see the tin drum in the theater when i was six maybe so i'm not the right age i learned basically about human sexuality in in the tin drum. Everything I know about sex, I learned in the tin drum. Stuff like that left a a solid imprint that I I guess it never really left. And then I I, I was lucky enough to have, um, there was a chain in Southern California called 2020 Video that had a really great cult section. And there was one within walking distance of my house. And I, I was allowed, I was sort of, I had a long leash in what I was allowed to rent. And mostly it was just, you know, driven by covers, like VHS covers. So that was kind of how I how I made my way through through films. Um and uh and so that that was kind of the 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 sowing of the seeds. But then I as I got a little older, uh, going into junior high and high school, I started writing stories, making books, illustrating them, got really into animation and the concept of being able to do animation on my own without needing an apparatus and being able to tell sort of big stories in my bedroom became uh, something that was exciting and possible. Um, So I started making sort of tabletop models and creating small, dark, animated shorts. Uh, And at the same time, I was getting really into theater. And uh, that was basically one of the things that kind of saved me in high school. It gave me a framework to figure out who I was, who my people were. Um, and, and really, theater was sort of the place I cut my teeth in terms of being able to work with actors, write, and 
conceptualized drama. All of that really came through theater. But then the Northridge earthquake came and put a, an abrupt end to my theater career. I was a senior. I was a senior in high school. I was directing a British sex farce on the on the big stage at high school. It was. Um, I just finished my dress rehearsals, and it was kind of a big deal to be able to get my own slot. Usually, it was the theater direct, the, the head of the theater program, the teacher who who directed the plays, and she knew that this was my passion, directing. I had a, I was such a nerd. I had like a, but what I really want to do is direct t-shirt that I, I wore most days in, in junior and senior year. So she took the shirt at face value and, um, and, and gave me one of those slots. And I decided to be clever. And I imported a British sex farce, this play Run for Your Wife by Ray Cooney. And it would have been a disaster. But then like uh, uh, the night of the last dress rehearsal um, was the Northridge earthquake. And the first car on my street that dawn, as fires were still raging all around my neighborhood, and the only people who were sort of moving around the streets were the National Guard, was this Ford Aerostar that drove up towards me. And inside was my drama teacher. She was bawling. Her mascara was running down her cheeks. And she said, it's all gone. And the theater collapsed, swallowed by the earth. Everything had to be rebuilt. But that was the end of my theater career. And I... uh, and so I, I pivoted to to film and started making um, more shorts, went through um, college, then applied to film school, went to UCLA, made a thesis film that got recognition, won some awards in school. And it sort of was uh, screened in the showcase that UCLA, my film school, um, had. And that showcase screening was the screening that sort of changed my life. And um, I was given an opportunity in that out of that screening basically in the lobby afterwards get representation and they started sending my it was one of those film school stories that you hear about when you go to school and you think is just bullshit because it doesn't sound possible and it happened you know it wasn't like automatic it was still a year and a half of me free lunch which was great i ate for a year um but not really much else and then robert zemeckis saw my short and you know dug it invited me to come in for a meeting and i I, that was basically the moment that set the path of the rest of my life in in motion when you're making your animated films when you're younger are you doing them you can't be doing them on video you must be doing them on film are you doing like eight Super eight, sixteen. Super eight. Super okay. Eight. Wow. Super eight. So I, I had, I had, um, I, I, I would get them in garage sales. I had a super eight um, camera and a, a little super eight editor, um, and I would drive down to Hollywood and drop them off at this lab that uh, obviously is long gone, doesn't exist anymore. It was probably just kept afloat by people bringing like blue home movies in for fifty years. Um, but um and then me bringing some weird like claymation duck that's you know that's like breathing its last breaths as it's being cooked in a vat of its own liquid that was kind of how i made movies and it's for a while i was shooting them on film and then i would trans i could because i couldn't really afford to continue down the super eight process because it was really 
complicated making an, an inter negative and, and 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 a print and, and i wasn't really making them for festivals i didn't really know i mean spike and mics was around but there wasn't much else and all of that stuff seemed like out of out of reach so i was really just making them because i was i had to tell stories and um yeah so that's that's how that's how that happened so i know you did animation then was your thesis film was that animated I was kind of always one foot in each camp and even all through um, animation, um, the, the animation program at UCLA, which is w- what I got my master's in. I was kind of incorporating live action, whether it's through p- uh, pixel, uh, pixelation or optical printing. So Zbig Rubzinski was like a huge influence for me. And um, I was really excited also by the, the process that was used to create the original Tron, which was like the masterpiece of optical printing. And so I, I tried to find a way to tell a story. First, I had a story, then I had to figure out how to tell it. And then I, I thought that actually a, a reconfigured homebrewed version of that process was the right way to go. So I spent a year and a half in my kitchen doing a slightly updated version of optical printing where I shot live action actors on completely built sets. So, but all black, all the sets were black, all the props were black. And then I took time to like cut them out frame by frame and, uh, and then composite them into an animated, uh, but, but photo real environment. It was not the most efficient way to make a movie, but it, it didn't cost that much. The whole movie was $400 in like material costs. Um, but then way way more in time i guess but yeah that was really it was really fun and super hard to make but uh, so i guess the answer is there was a little bit of both in it which is part of what kick-started the conversation with zemeckis actually because i think he saw that there was like a way to take the process that he was just starting to play with for his film polar express and maybe take it in some different directions and so because I had come in with this animation background and, a, and, a, and an understanding that there were ways to sort of take the good of human performance and the, the good of sort of animation and, and world building that it allows you and, and combine them in a, in, a, in a new way, that was sort of um, – I'm pretty sure that was some of the stuff that got, got that conversation to the next level. So did he already have Monster House there and say, hey, I want you to direct this? Or how does that happen? How do you get connected with that? There was a brilliant script that Rob Schraub and Dan Harmon had written. They didn't write it as an animated script or a mocap script or anything. They were just these like super clever, funny writers who had pitched this idea as part of like, I think the story is that they did a speed pitching session of like 10 ideas a shoe that takes over the world, a house that eats children. Um, and, um, and at some point I was like, well, what was the last one? The house that eats children. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> they had written the script. It was quite different than the film ended up being. But um, I had been sent the script and immediately, by the way, I had the script like, I think it was two days before the meeting. So I knew I was going to have this meeting, but I didn't know there was actually going to be substance to it. I thought it would be one of the many, many super cool, but ultimately fruitless general meetings that I was having. But then I got the script sent to me um, and and said, you know, um, uh, uh, this is what you guys were going to be talking about. So I read it. I immediately saw what the movie could be and knew that I was 
able to tell that story because it evoked so many of the same moods that I had absorbed and studied and lived through as a kid, both in movie theaters and on the streets, the mean streets of Reseda. It's the kind of downcast version of the prototypical suburb, which I think is totally germane to the to the poltergeist conversation down the line. But the um, the the idea was that there was a way to revisit the the ultimate movie playground of the eighties, uh, and it wasn't actually called out in the script. The script was written contemporary, uh, you know, as a sort of contemporary piece. But for me, it immediately started to live and breathe as a, as a way to tap into that mood of what it was like to be a kid and both in the theater and out of it. Um, and, and, so, and so that was kind of right there from the beginning. I started to make drawings. And so when I came in to, to sit down with Zemeckis and to, to freak out about what this movie could be, I, I had a stack of drawings with me. And that's always been like the card up my sleeve when I go into a meeting is when I can show people that I can see what the, what the world is. It's made the conversation a little bit easier. So how was that experience for you, making that as your first feature? Yeah, it was amazing. It was like the greatest first movie experience I could imagine for myself because I had two movie gods in Zemeckis and Spielberg producing my first film. And even when I was just making like the the animatics of the thing, uh, where I, I built up all the storyboards and put music to them, sound effects, recorded, scratch uh, dialogue, I would screen those. And, and I had this surreal first screening experience where I, I, I honestly, I, I think I kept waiting for the thing to just sort of go away. Like, all right, we let, we let him goof around now we're going to get serious about this and and and, and it never happened and it, and it didn't happen um to a degree where i i remember the lights coming up in one of these screenings in the amblin screening room on the universal lot and i just screened the first version of the animatic it was like just under 90 minutes but almost like the whole movie and the lights came up it was just the three of us in the theater and uh and First, Bob started uh, talking, asking some questions, then Stephen, and pretty soon it turned into this conversation where where Zemeckis was invoking concepts of storytelling that he had sort of crafted in the Back to the Future films, and and then Spielberg started referencing ET, and and I just remembered having this out of body experience at that moment, reminding me not to take it for granted this was actually happening and that we were talking about these drawings that I was putting up on a screen. Um, anyway, it was, it was pretty surreal. And, and both of them did um, a, an incredible job protecting me and the, and the film. They would drive down to Culver city and sit on either side of me at every studio meeting just, and not even, not even really be vocal or, or combative, but just there as a show of support because I would have been completely, you know, swallowed up by the system making this giant movie for a giant corporation. And, uh, which happened to me later on, uh, with my second film, but the, uh, cause I didn't have them sitting on either side of me. It was definitely an ideal environment to create a, a first film. in, and, uh, and I, I was really fortunate in that there's over and over again, they went to bat for me and, and let me make the film the way I had sort of intended to and, and hoped to, down to, you know, bringing the composer who had scored my student film, Douglas Pipes, to, to score Monster House. So, you know, it's just like those sort of 
like that that kind of advocacy is hard to find it later in your career let alone on your first film so i was i was really you know i know luck had a lot to do with it and i was i was definitely the beneficiary of it so you get that great experience for your first film, and I'm sure the second film is exactly like that, if not better. <laughs> um, so much, so much about about the process of making my second film was great until it wasn't. That it's it's hard to. I mean, the staging of it and filming of it had some real euphoria to it. I was able to really build and cast the film to a degree and shoot it really without very much uh, interference. And the world only came crumbling down as I went into the cutting room. Um, so this is City of Ember, my, my second film, which was sort of a famous disaster in that um, it was kind of, it fell in between the cracks of two studios. Really, the studio that had made it was about to go into receivership or bankruptcy and a lawyer took over the company and became the chief creative executor of the, which is really great. If you want to make a good movie, you get a lawyer to oversee all the creative uh, decisions. That was a really painful one. And it's actually only uh, weirdly uh, not connected to this conversation. Um, although strangely timed i was going through an old drawer yesterday where i keep all of my weird old movie memorabilia and at the bottom of it i found this thing i've been looking for for 15 years which was my director's cut of city of ember which only got screened once in one friends and family sort of test screening before they took the movie over and recut it and, and ruined it so I thought that thing was gone forever. I was really excited to find it because one day maybe the scars will heal and I'll be able to restore it and, um, and, and, and that thing can see the light of day. So it was all post-production is what killed you on that? Yeah, yeah. Basically, the movie was um, – they screened the movie once and I don't know what they thought they were making. But um, I think I was pretty clear from the beginning that we were making a post-apocalyptic underground city uh, family film. And, you know, there's a lot to be excited about there, but there's also some huge marketing challenges that, that come with it, come with the territory. And I was excited to embrace all of those. I, I felt like that was, you know, I had a little bit of clout coming off of Monster House. And I, I, I felt really excited to be able to make something that continued to push the concept of what a family film was in the way that I had grown up with the sort of looser concept, not disrespecting a younger audience and their parents and making a more challenging experience or a more perplexing one, a weirder one. So all, all of those things were front and center in my mind and kind of still are, you know, in, in, in the choices that I make, but they were not ready for that. And so basically they, they fired my editor and Douglas, my composer my daughter was being born at just at that moment. Uh, my wife, who was an art director on the film, was let go just before that, and it's just like it was. A, it was a really difficult, difficult moment. And for all the people who heard the first part of the story and were thinking, "Fuck that asshole!" like forgetting all those all those things handed to him after his first uh, film uh, sort of lined up magically, you know, you get the second act that you were hoping for because it was definitely like the pits. And um, it was really hard. I, I, I was able to sort of recoup some measure of 
of control just at the end of the cutting process. And I really just came in because I love the actors and the concept of the world that we have built so much that I really didn't want the thing to just get crapped out. What I wish I could have gone back to say is like, look, guys, you're not going to sell this movie anyway. Let's just admit that you didn't get the movie you wanted. You're not going to put any money into it. Just release the cut that I'm proud of. At least we can have something that some people will be psyched about, uh, maybe in 20 years. Um, and ultimately, they just thought they could recoup some money by recutting and turning it into something that it wasn't. And that was really sad. I learned a big lesson there about sort of studio politics and ultimately the idea that when you're creating a product that somebody is going to need to sell, it's really important, A, that you're looking each other in the eye and you know exactly what you're making together. That was that. That was really hard. And then I decided I was kind of, I had a few other experiences after that where things got close, but didn't really happen. And then I sort of decided, okay, I'm, I'm sort of leaving the studio side for a while. If, if, I, if I'm going to say no to a lot of big things, because I was offered some big studio movies after that. And I was just so scarred by Ember that I said no to a lot of things. And I really, I'm not, I don't regret any of that because um, either the movies didn't turn out into something that I would, would have been proud of, or, you know, nobody went to go see them. I decided to take some time to write and I, I really turned off everything. I, I got a, a small office and, um, and uh, put my energy into, into, into the craft of storytelling and wrote a film that I got very, very close to making a few times called The Giant that was an independent but very expensive <laughs> film about this guy who never stopped growing. It was about you know, 18 feet tall when the film starts. And then that didn't happen. And sort of at a moment where I thought, well, you know, I had a pretty interesting run. Um, I, uh, I got a couple of me meetings back to back. And one of those meetings was with Sam Raimi, where he brought up Poltergeist and um, and, and, and so I had one more, one more whack at making a movie. Um, and that, how that sort of worked out. So you didn't have a lot of parental supervision. Had you seen Poltergeist? Were you a fan of the original? I had not seen it in a theater, but it was one of the, one of the intriguing, uh, cult, uh, or horror VHS covers that I had brought home with me and, uh, and was absolutely transformative. So that movie had a, a huge impact on me. And I remember the feeling, and, and this, this happened a few times in my, in my experience as a movie lover, where I would watch something and I felt like the fabric between the world of the movie and the world that I was growing up in was permeable or there was some connection, like solid. And I definitely felt that with Poltergeist, which was shot not too far from from where I grew up, it was shot in or the exteriors were shot in Simi Valley, which is one valley over from the story um, and 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 grungier but much more soulful San Fernando Valley, where where I did most of my growing up. It was an important movie for me, also in that it tapped into a tone that I think really like worked its way into my bloodstream. Um, that that kind of grounded but slightly. Slightly heightened comic tone that never really leaves, even when the horror goes full tilt. And I was, I was really excited to talk to Sam Raimi, who was obviously another film god of mine. And uh, and I felt like I had had such a good experience working with filmmakers that I really 
um, respect and and look up to. And so I felt like, you know, working with him as a producer on the film was setting the table in a way that made me a little bit less hesitant. Although I was really worried about getting into that world for obvious reasons. And a lot of them ended up being, you know, accurate. Like I, the, 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 the warning signs that I was feeling at the beginning about just even even wading into the pool were definitely there right from the beginning. But the, there were enough things that as a as a storyteller kept pulling me that I, I just couldn't resist. So I, I was trying to figure out what to do because I was like, you know, as I mentioned, I, I'm, I'm this is a sort of warts and all window into my into my career so far. And, and so I was really like not sure how to approach the, the, the choice of making this film or not. And, um, and so I, I called, um, I called Robert Zemeckis up to ask his advice. And I don't know if he's told this story, but I, I, he told me this little story that somehow made all the difference where he was like, he sort of laughed a little bit and said, poltergeist. I remember when, um, I remember when Steven was working on that, he was producing it. We were all sharing an office Bob Gale and, and Bob Zemeckis were retooling uh, Back to the Future because their first pass famously, you know, didn't fly, was too expensive, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and they were retooling the, the script uh, while um, Stephen in the, in the next office was building up his draft for Poltergeist. And he brought him in for a sort of story pitching session and they were just all throwing horror gags at each other and, and just saying, you know, what if this happened? What if this happened? What if this happened? And somehow him telling me that made the thing feel like, okay, it was less, less this thing that Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg, two gods of filmmaking, sort of created out of galvanized celluloid, something that was like a complete and unsullied construct that was born whole. It was like anything else, something that a bunch of bunch of storytellers like worked on and labored on. It was a it was a piece of craft, and I I really I really he told me just what he he probably knew I needed to hear to feel kind of liberated to be like all right just you know whatever it's a story just go go tell it like don't don't worry about it too much like if you feel like you can do something that's honest and and you can get psyched about. Just go and go and make it. Sorry, my dogs are excited. So that was like a really helpful bit of information. And, and then I, I talked to Toby Hooper about it. I stalked him at a um, at a at a at a screening. Uh, there was a uh, in Los Feliz. There was a um, a uh, a new print, a restored print of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was so incredible to see in a full house on a big screen. Totally amazing. I tracked him down and uh, and told him that I was I was working or I was I was thinking about working on this thing, and he was just like, "Go for it, have fun," you know, you know. Basically, he was like, he was just like, "Yeah, you." Uh, I, 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 he, he might have been more like, "I don't care. Like, why are you bothering me? You're stepping on my foot." But um, but it, I heard it as. Um, some sort of a, I give you my blessing. And so I felt like slightly better about the whole concept of it at that point. I know how hard it is. And at that point I'd, I'd had all the, all the highs and lows of what, what the process of, of caring about something and knowing how much of myself I have to put into a movie just to get it off the ground, let alone shoot it and then, and then craft it and, and release it. 
that I just wanted to make sure that I was going to be able to do that and look myself in the face afterwards. That was, that was really it. I definitely was protected by the, those conversations. I felt like they gave me a good foundation, at least for myself to be able to do it. Obviously the audience has their own relationship to a, a, a classic film. And those are very, very difficult um, uh, and very personal relationships to wade into. And so that part you can't really ever prepare for or, um, it, that's more of a case by case scenario, but but for myself as 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 a as a storyteller, I felt prepared uh, by the time we waded into it. So that was that's how that that's how that thing happened. How do you decide? I'm going to keep this. I'm going to change this. I'm going to create something new off of this. I mean, what's that process like for you? It was definitely a, a process of trying to think about, and, and maybe some of this had already happened on the side of the producers before I came on. But I remember when I first came on to the, to develop the script with David Lindsay, a bear who, who wrote the thing that there was a sort of half in half out concept that it was a, a sequel, not a reboot. And the sequel side of it was really never quite developed. Like it was developed more as the idea that the television had some continuity between the original and it, it felt like that's a it, it, th- that idea felt superficial to me that an object a prop especially one that meant something so different by the time we were making the film had the continuity and so i i remember sort of lobbying for that to be worked out and to, to make the thematic idea the, the the sort of spiritual connection between the two films the idea of what a suburb is that in the original poltergeist and that was definitely like inherent in the script that david lindsey abair wrote which was a sort of re-examination of the american suburb it was a it was after the economic collapse of 2007 2008 a lot of the neighborhoods had been completely recontextualized by the uh, foreclosure disaster that this country went through and so there was just this opportunity to say okay and and i guess for me as a as a filmmaker my touchstone the way i enter a story is through the relationship of place and character it's what i've always been curious about it's what i'm chasing continuing to chase it in the in the films that I develop and I'm making right now. And so for me there was just this opportunity to to you know scratch a little bit deeper in the ground and and and, and reevaluate the relationship of the American suburb to this very storied, very like prototypical uh, American horror film. And the, the you know the original Poltergeist sort of took what we all felt comfortable with was this relationship we have with these big spacious houses with expansive lawns and that our neighbors all have houses that are just like ours and everyone lives their life with some sort of comfortable repetition. And it turned that on its ear by suggesting that there is a rotten core at the center of it that's going to swallow us all whole, right? And so there was an opportunity to just reevaluate that basic premise. And I thought that was interesting. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, and then I got to start thinking about these characters and casting it. And, and that was another place where I, I felt really excited by being able to bring this family together anchored by Rosemary DeWitt and Sam Rockwell, who I felt, you know, could, could really bring a, 
a, a kind of uh, reality, a looseness to the thing. And so it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of those factors that kind of came into play. Yeah, for my money, you cannot get better than Sam Rockwell. He, I love everything that he's ever done, uh, no matter what it is. And he just brings such a, a different energy to everything. And I was so glad that he is kind of this neutered father. He's not the Craig T. Nelson who has the physical presence as well as the, um, you know, he's actually part of the suburb. You know, he's, he works with the, the suburb and, and everything. And you've got Sam Rockwell and, and the whole family coming in at the beginning and, we see them before they move into the house and we hear more about their story. And we hear, as you're talking about the economic downturn and that he is without a job at the beginning. And the woman is the breadwinner. I was just like, okay, that's a really clever way of approaching this. And then that there's such that tenseness when he goes out and buys things that he shouldn't be buying. That was the first scene we we filmed actually. And it was, um, it was important for Sam and for myself to, to figure out that, 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 that character, had this massive hole in him that he felt like he couldn't define himself because he he grew up with this idea that he needed to provide for his family and had lost the ability to do that and felt like he was lost himself. And so, you know, there's there's this concept that was kind of woven into it, which is trying to equate the idea of the lost people or the spirits that were unsettled with the family themselves who were feeling economically and socially adrift. They, they had all moved away from the place where they had lived before, which the idea is that they're, they're downsizing or, or downgrading their life in some way by moving to the suburb. And that's another way of su- suggesting that by the time this film was made, which is like, you know, 2014, 2015, that the suburbs meant something else. It was no longer aspirational. It had become the sort of, the, the, it'd become a the kind of refuge um if uh, or or a, a wasteland depending on where you where you live yeah those were all thematic um elements that 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 we were we were chasing and i remember i had a really uh one of the great experiences of making that film was trying to convince sam rockwell to do the movie um because he's really picky and uh as he should be which as as you say like shows in his filmography because he makes choices that usually he's not embarrassed of Uh, and that's not an automatic process for him and it's definitely not a a money-driven process for him he he's an artist and he chooses very specifically what he works on. Um, and so the process of getting him involved, um, uh, took me going down to New York twice and getting a, an apartment that then he and I would spend two weekends in over the course of the development of the, of the film, he would bring his dog and, um, and, uh, we, we put the movie up on its legs basically with, with, with him acting out the, his entire side of the script and me doing all the rest of the parts and, um, and workshopping every single scene in the film just to start feeling it out. And, um, I've done that a couple of times with actors and it's a totally incredible, um, way to start to understand what we're after. Um, if you, if you understand the movie as a piece of writing, not just as a piece of, you know, as a, as a guide for shooting or performing, you, you have a, a totally different relationship with it. By the time you do have to go in and share it with 300 people it, with trucks and craft service tables and all that stuff. 
um, it's uh, it's a really good foundation to build. So that was that was a really that was so cool. I love doing that. I do have to ask you, how was it working with Bob Tappert and Sam Raimi? They're awesome. So um, Sam is uh, the greatest. Bob um, was mostly working on the film side. I'm uh, sorry, on the TV side of what they were um, working on at that point. Although he was a, a huge booster of the, of the film and was a great supportive producer. But um, Sam Raimi is the ultimate movie lover and um the uh, like the greatest audience you could ever ask for whenever you're screening something even a very very rough version of the film because for him every time he's watching something it's like a kid in a matinee screening in their town's local local theater you would see a transformation take place where he opens himself up and I think you can tell that in his movies too, as, as you know, the movies he makes, there's such a joy and a love for the, for the art form and the craft. And, um, and so it was really, um, an absolutely like positive and I learned so much from him. And one of the great gifts he gave me was sharing Bob Murawski to help me cut, cut the, the film. Um, and, uh, Bob is a legend and I know a friend of the show's. And uh, was brought in this great anarchic spirit into the bringing the thing in. You're working on A Boy Called Christmas, and then you've also got Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I think was supposed to come out this year, but now it's been pushed because of the virus. What are you working on first, uh, or are you even... Because you're one of these directors that... But you've got so many things listed on IMDb Pro where it's just like, in development, in development... One of the best things I've ever done is stop looking at IMDb completely. And I really feel like my life became so much easier for myself to manage. But um, I um, Ghostbusters is almost done. It was going to come out this July. Jason Reitman uh, and I conceived and wrote that thing um, over the course of a year. I guess 2018 is when we wrote it. And then Jason went off to go and shoot that. And uh, I went off to go shoot A Boy Called Christmas um, all around Europe. So that that's my main day job for the last two years. I've been mostly based out of London. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles right now, but I'm about to move back to London for the next year uh, to finish that film. And so it's a, it's a huge... Uh, movie and there's a there's a, a much more animation in that film than anything I've made other than Monster House. I've been working with a brilliant animation and effects house in London to bring that thing to life, and it's it's pretty close. Um, I'll be I'll be wrapping it up in the winter, uh, and then it'll come out probably because of the question mark hanging over the whole concept of theatrical distribution right now. It too will be released in Christmas of 2021. Um, yeah, right at the at the moment, I, I happen you happen to be catching me at a moment where I actually have two movies that are happening, which is a very different world than where I was ten years ago. How did you and Jason Reitman get together to come up with the with Ghostbusters? And I mean, that's especially after the last Ghostbusters, it takes a lot of chutzpah to go back to that well. With Ghostbusters, I'll talk more about my relationship with Jason, um, and then uh, to the film itself. I think it's. It, I'd love to have a follow up conversation with you about it closer to its release, out of respect for that process to allow the film to be finished. But actually, when I was making Monster House, I had a, I've had a few dalliances in my life where I've tried to pretend to myself that I'm able to play organized sports. It's really only happened for two brief flashes before 
everything else proves me wrong. But um, I one of those moments was as a way to quote unquote blow up some steam while I was editing my first film. I decided to um, pick up adult amateur ice hockey um, on Wednesday nights next to the Culver Studios where I was making that film in, in Los Angeles and. And I went um, to one of these open uh, amateur adult nights and I was in the locker room lacing up and I got into a conversation with the guy who was lacing up his skates next to me. And it was just sort of like a, hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Uh, w- what are you doing? Uh, lacing up my skates. What do you do? Uh, I'm uh, making a movie. Oh, really? I'm making a movie too. It's my first one. Oh, my, I'm making my first one. So he was he was editing Thank You for Smoking, and I was editing Monster House, and we struck up a friendship that we've had since then. Um, and uh, and we only started writing together uh, maybe four or five years ago, and um, that sort of came about on a couple of scripts that we wrote together and really enjoyed the process, but the scripts never got made. We found that as two directors who knew what we were looking for in in storytelling and in dialogue, we were kind of able to activate each other in ways that was really fun to, to do. And, and Ghostbusters was something that we had talked about a couple of times, uh, but, but hadn't really uh, opened the door to. And then I remember one day we were just um, walking around in his backyard and he asked me again about it and, and pitched one idea and that really just opened the floodgates and, and I, I started pitching back to him and then we kind of very quickly over the course of a couple of days built up a concept. We, yeah, but then we took a year to write the damn thing. But, but, but the, that concept had such firm thematic foundations, which is what I've really the trick I've learned as, over my career is that, you know, you can do a lot of things to a movie in the process of making it and unmaking it and editing and whatever. But the one thing that you have to really understand at the very beginning of everything is, is, is what the damn thing is, what it's about. And not what it's about in a plot way, but, you know, on, on, a, on a deeper level. Like, that's the thing that the audience really ultimately is taking away when they leave the theater. It's the thing that sort of haunts them or irritates them or makes them passionate or, you know. So, so really, it, was, it, was, it, was, it had super strong foundations and, 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 and it made the process of crafting it um, uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the real joys I've had in this business so far. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, I kind of feel the same way about you know I'm 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 in a, you're catching me in a good moment. I'm really happy with um, with my film A Boy Called Christmas, even though it's so far away from being seen by people. I just I I felt like the process of making it um, and the studios I've been making it with and the producers I've been working with. This is one of those situations where maybe it's because it's a European film. Uh, uh, ultimately, I've had the room to tell the story with the support to not feel like it's I've been fighting against an immovable wall. And so I'm super psyched about it. I can't wait for audiences to see it. Is this your first time shooting in Europe? Um, well, city of Ember shot in Belfast, uh, which is sort of <laughs> somewhere in between, but, um, these days. Yeah. Yeah. So, so not, not really. Um, we, we I, I, I guess that was, you know, I was born in, in London. So I had this like kind of weird two and a half years at the beginning of my life in London. And that means I have a passport and it means I'm a basically like a secret British citizen. Um, and so, um, uh, so, uh, it was, 
it was not my first time, but it, it, this one was like definitely a European production with a capital E. We shot in Finland, in the Arctic Circle, in Slovakia, in Prague, um, and in, in London, um, in a few places in London. Um, by the way, when I was in Prague, your Czech New Wave dalliances of the podcast came in really helpful. Uh because I got really into like Marketa Lazarova and and uh, a few other uh, Czech Czech New Wave standards and and found the the conversations really helpful in in sort of processing my excitement for the films. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. <laughs> sure. Um, cool. So yeah, that that's that's kind of where I'm at. Gil, thank you so much. This was great. Such a nice conversation. I've really enjoyed this. Likewise, thanks for um, thanks for the show that you put on, and um, yeah, I'm happy to um, down the line when there's other things to talk about. I'm, I'm I'm always happy to chat. There is something happening in the woods no man can explain. For it is here, beneath the souls of men, that the passions of the beast run wild. Here, that the childish fantasies of innocence come face to face with the nightmare of unrelenting evil. The company of wolves. The fairy tale ends when the wolves come out. The Company of Wolves. Rated R. That's right. We'll be back next week with another Shocktober pick, The Company of Wolves. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Vincenzo and Christine. Christine, how are things over at The Feminine Critique? Oh, they're really good if you like us. You hear people talk about old episodes of Masters of Horror and uh, Fear Itself, the Mick Garris uh, television projects, which we have been covering every episode of. So if you are for some reason into that, please come and listen. How's your fiction writing going? It's going well. Uh, I'm on Twitter at XDeanMakePeace. If anybody's interested, I post links to things I write all the time. Follow me and enjoy. And Vincenzo, how has the pandemic been treating you? I'm kind of blessed. It's been nice, actually. I um, I don't know what will come of it, but I, I finished my first graphic novel. Oh, wow. Congrats. I wrote and illustrated. Who knows if anyone will ever see it? Or read it, but uh, but yeah, it could, it only could exist because of the pandemic because I have nothing else that I can possibly do. Well, I know you were also working on the stand at the beginning of the pandemic, which I just found so incredibly ironic. It was very strange working on the stand for a whole host of reasons, but um, it wrapped up just well. Actually, literally last night, I I remote directed the last scene in it to speak of you know the world that we live in right now. Everyone had their masks on and. It was interesting making a film about a pandemic that wipes out 90% of the world population while there's a pandemic. So far, not 90%, but we'll get there. We'll get there. I have faith in the American people. And you know what? You want to call me selfish for not wearing a mask? I want to say to you, all the people calling me selfish, you're the one who's trying to force me a medical procedure so you can feel more safe. Um, The risks are very, very low. This is a virus that has a 99.6% recovery rate. This is a virus that is very well contained. This is a virus that um, the CDC is removing epidemic status from. How I view it is everyone's health care decisions are their own, and everyone is responsible for their own health care decisions, as Chris said. If you are afraid, if you are at higher risk, feel free to stay home, feel free to wear a mask, feel free to social distance. That is your choice, and we respect it. We want our choices respected as well. If anybody can do it, we can. <laughs> going to make America first.
I believe in America. I think you guys are going to take a turn for the better. Uh, from your mouth to God's ear. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. I just moved in my new house today. Moving was hard, but I got squared away. Bell started ringing and changed right loud. I knew I'd moved in a haunted house Still I made up in my mind to stay Nothing was gonna drive me away When I seen something that give me the creep Had one big eye and a two big feet I stood right still and I did the free he did the stroll right up to me Made a nod with his feet to sound like a drum Say you'll be here when the morning comes Gonna run me on In my kitchen my stove was a blazing hot The coffee was a boiling in the pot The grease had melted in my hand I had a hunk of meat in my hand From outer space that sat a man Pots and pans. Say that's hot, I began to shout. He drank a hot coffee right from the spout. He ate the raw meat right from my hand. Drank a hot grease from the frying pan. He said to me, Now you better run. Don't be here when the morning comes See, yes, I'll be here when the morning comes I'll be right here and I ain't gonna run I bought this house
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.